Hey, I think it'll work. Of course. It's a cinch. You know, it may be crazy, but we're gonna do it. The Dooming Cavalier is now a musical. Hot dog! Hallelujah! Whoopee! Fellas, I feel this is my lucky day. March 23rd. Oh, no, your lucky day is the 24th. What do you mean the 24th? It's 1.30 already. It's morning. Yes. And what a lovely morning. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way. It's too late to say good night. So good morning, good morning. Sunbeams will soon smile through. Good morning, good morning. Granted, had to be in Louisiana in, in the, the morning. morning. In the morning, it's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. Might be just as iffy if we was in Mississippi. When we left the movie show, the future wasn't bright. But came the dawn, the show goes on, and I don't want to say good night. Don't say good morning. Good morning. Rainbow shining. Good morning. Good morning. Bonjour. Bonjour. a musical? What do you mean? Lena. 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 
not talking about Lena Dunham, but uh, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being recorded live and broadcast live. August 16th, 2019 is the date, 9.08 p.m. Pacific Time. That was the good morning number from the movie Singing in the Rain from 1952. Such an old movie that two 18-year-olds on a date watching that in the theater at the time would now be 85 years old. (laughs) That was 20 years before I was born this came out. That song is often misinterpreted to mean actually good morning. People think it's like a morning song. It's not. It's actually a song about staying up all night. And the fact that it's technically morning once it passes midnight. Very, very misunderstood song. Anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I played that song because this show is usually on all through the early morning, especially if you're on the East Coast. I have not been on since August 1st. I took a trip, and I'll tell you about that near the beginning of this show. But this is the first show we've had in 15 days. And I chose this date, August 16th, 2019, to be the date of this next show since August 1st. I chose this specific date for a reason, and I'll get to that very shortly. Related to that, we have a $200 free roll tonight, which begins in five minutes, and then you have 25 minutes to get into the free roll through the late registration process. Don't text me, don't PM me asking to get in at this point. If you didn't already get that done, then too late for you. You'll have to do it next week. Or you can PM me now or text me now, but you're not going to get in until next week's free roll. So this $200 free roll, I know you're going to be surprised, but the this $200 free roll actually is uh, funded not by the listeners of this show. This $200 free roll is actually fully funded by me. Oh. And I blew out your ear by playing that too loud. Sorry about that. Had the volume settings wrong. But yeah, I put up all $200 for this free roll. Not a penny came from anybody else. It all came from me. And there's a reason for that. The reason this $200 free roll, where you get $100 for first, 50 for second, 25 for third, 15th for fourth, and 10th for fifth, that's 150, 25, 15, and 10 are the five prizes we're giving away. Real cash money. The reason I am giving $200 away is to celebrate how much I have improved health-wise, especially mental health-wise, in the past one year. And the reason I say the past one year is because my problems began last year on August 16th, 2018, exactly a year ago today, and I decided that this episode would be on the one-year anniversary of when all the problems started, which actually started one day after radio last year. We had a show on August 15th. Everything was fine, though. Actually, going back to old emails I had sent, I had actually emailed my brother two days prior to that on August 13th, I guess three days prior to the real problems, telling him I was feeling some issue with kind of like lumps in my throat. 
but it wasn't that bad yet. But it was August 16th that everything blew up and caused me a lot of problems and ended radio for a while. And I ended my poker play for a while. Ended pretty much everything for a while. And here we are on the year anniversary of that. And as you guys have probably heard, if you've listened to this show in the last several months, much improved. Not 100% back, but most of the way back. And to celebrate that, I'm giving away $200 of my own Jewish gold. Going to you guys. This was not donated. I don't owe this in any way, but I decided to give this as kind of a celebration that I am back, that I'm able to do this show, that I was able to play the World Series of poker without any kind of problems and run deep in the main event. So I decided, hey, I actually decided on the plane going to my destination, my my first flight uh, going to Boston, from L.A. to Boston on August 2nd, I was thinking about when's the next radio going to be? And then I thought, hey, you know, why, why not make it the actual first anniversary of last year's problems? And, oh, I should do something special for this. Well, what special thing should I do? The free roll. So I'm going to give $200 away. So I'm doing it. Do you have some time to get in? You have until 940 to start with a full stack on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. It is very simple. You need a separate account there. You can register, you can play. It doesn't even require any email verification. But you do have to be verified and approved by either me or Belly Buster on the forum. One of us two has to approve your account to make sure that you are not someone who is multi-accounting. So we have to approve each and every new account that signs up. Only a one-time approval process, just, just to make sure that it's on the up and up. By the way, don't try to multi-account because we, we are watching for it. We can see things. And if you do, you will be banned not only from the free roll, but from the forum. And I'll probably put out your information as well if I'm 100% sure that's what you were doing. If I'm like 75% sure, I won't put out your info, but I will ban you from everything. So do, do not cheat. Do not cheat in the free roll. Not, not that I think it's happened. I haven't seen any kind of hard evidence that this has happened. But that's the reason we have this verification process is just to protect it, which is foolish that we have to do this for this amount of money. I mean, it's, it's a nice little thing to win while you're listening to the show live. You can play the free roll and win a little bit extra cash. Like, look at this. It's, it's a small pool of people you're playing against, and you can win 100 bucks tonight. You know, it's 100 bucks. It's nice. I, I would probably play to win 100 bucks if I'm doing something else anyway, if I'm listening anyway. So that's, it's just a thing I'm giving away. It wasn't announced that much in advance. I announced it a little while back that I'm going to do something, but I didn't state exactly it's going to be $200. But yeah, it's $200. So enjoy. And just something I decided to do. I don't want to go too much into the whole story about what happened to me because I've done it before. I've done it on a lot of episodes. But it is something I think about a lot. And it is something that I'm thankful for that I came back from. I just took a trip that I could not have taken if I had these problems because it required a long flight in each direction. And there was no way I could get on an airplane the way my mind was at the time. 
and the way my mind seemed to be stuck for the foreseeable future. But I got out of it, which most people with that condition do not get out of it. I'm not completely out of it, but I'm mostly out of it. Most people with that condition don't because it's something they inherited, unfortunately. And it's kind of part of them, and it's very hard to cure that or even suppress it. Mine was not part of me. Mine was a result of, I don't know for sure, but I think it was a result of a few things combined to cause kind of a temporary problem, which caused a chemical disorder in my brain, which then caused severe anxiety, depression, and something called anhedonia, which is where you lose the ability to feel anything positive, including love, by the way. And I don't just mean you're feeling lousy and that means you you can't be happy. I mean the ability to have those feelings has actually been extracted from your brain. And you can't understand these things unless you have actually been through them. You can think you understand it. I used to think I understood it. People used to talk about anxiety and depression and I'd say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. I understand it. I've never had it, but I understand it. No. Even if you've been depressed at times because bad things have happened in your life, Something depression has happened, you know, maybe you've had a relative die, you've, uh, your dog has died, you've uh, gotten a divorce, been fired from your job, and you may get temporarily depressed, but uh, it's not the same thing. Because I've had that type of depression before, it's not the same thing. That's situational depression. If you actually have a chemically-based depression or anxiety that's a completely different thing and you just cannot understand what it feels like unless you go through it. And I know this as someone who never experienced it before and then at age 46 experienced a very severe version of both. And it makes me feel very bad for those who have to deal with this for a much longer time than I had to deal with it. And if I was still the way I was in August... In September and uh, even part of October of 2018, then this show would have been gone. I, I did one little show in late September to tell you guys what was going on briefly, but that was it for a while. But I, I wouldn't have been at the World Series. I would not be doing this show now. I would not have taken the trip I just took. And my life would have been devoid of any kind of pleasure. And I mean any kind of pleasure, because I, that's the way it was stuck. The ability to feel anything pleasurable was actually gone. The ability to feel love for anyone was gone. I didn't tell anyone about that until after it was over, because I didn't want people to think I didn't love them, because uh, it didn't change who I loved. It didn't make my love for people go away, but I couldn't feel the emotional side of that love. I knew I loved them. My rational brain knew I loved them, but the feeling associated with it was gone. The feeling associated with eating good food was gone. The feeling associated with listening to good music was gone or watching a good show or or seeing a good comedy act or or a funny video. You can't laugh. You can't find anything funny. You can't enjoy anything. I watched the Dodgers have exciting walk-off victories. Didn't feel a thing. 
and that was just one of many problems I was experiencing at the time. All together at the same time. And I couldn't lie down without feeling like I was choking. Every time I'd lie down, I'd feel like I was choking. Very, very tough to get to sleep like that, as you might imagine. (laughs) It was uh, pretty much hell. It was. And I didn't know when I'd be getting better. If I could look and say, okay, well, by such and such date, I'd start to have a lot of improvement, then I could at least tough it out and say, okay, well, this many days left. No, I, I didn't know if this would be me for the remainder of my life. And there was no easy way to cure it. I ended up curing it. I shouldn't say curing it. It's not totally gone. And it probably never will be totally gone. And I I had a little bit of a relapse the last two weeks. Not a terrible one, but a minor relapse where it's... uh, I probably went from like 98% of the anxiety being gone to about 90, which is still good, but it's not as good as it was. I was a lot better a month ago than I am today. I didn't just say a lot better, but it was better a month ago than right now. But right now, still good enough for the moment. And no, I don't know why. (laughs) Just uh, can't explain that. But anyway, what I figured out was that I had to do what was right for me. And that meant that uh, I had to try what I thought was working for me, what might work. Anything that seemed to be helping, I would continue. Anything that wasn't helping or I thought was making it worse, I would stop. I didn't listen to all the conventional advice. At first I did, but then I looked at it more critically and said, I've got to figure out what to do for me because to solve anxiety and depression, it's something very individual. It's never a one-size-fits-all solution. And that's important to, to know if you're having these problems. And oddly, there were three kind of uh, unlikely, especially two of them, big factors which sent me on the road to getting better. The first one was biotine dry mouth rinse, of all things, which my girlfriend bought me just because she heard me say that my throat was dry when I was having these problems lying down. I feel like I was choking. I mentioned my throat was also dry, so she bought that. And I found that that was preventing me from choking. So it's not supposed to do that, but that's the effect it was having. And I didn't expect it would. It's not like it was a placebo. I I used it and then noticed I wasn't choking. And I go, could this possibly be helping? And I did it again. And yeah, it was helping. And that's still what I use. And that's what allowed me to start sleeping again. So that took away the stress of the choking every time I lie down and the sleep deprivation, that was a big factor. So that allowed me to not have that being a big damaging factor anymore. I brought back the caffeine I had quit. And I realized that the caffeine had been helping me all these decades, not hurting me. And I brought that back and that improved some things. And I found that Xanax despite being as vilified as it is, and in some cases rightfully so, if you abuse Xanax, then you can be in a world of hurt. It's a dangerous drug to take if you're taking it irresponsibly, but it can be very helpful if you're taking it responsibly. And I I talked to various people about Xanax, and some were 
telling me you don't want to start with this. Do not take it. It's a huge mistake. Don't go down that road. And, and others were, were pressuring me to take it almost like I was back in high school and facing peer pressure to take drugs. But some people were actually getting mad at me that I was resisting the Xanax. But finally, when I took it, I noticed that I was getting a longer term improvement from it than you're really supposed to. It's only supposed to last a few hours. And while that was true, I also, the anxiety was not coming back as strong when I took the Xanax. Like after it had worn off, it didn't come back as strong or as quickly. It had some kind of weird after effect that prevented it from coming back as much. And there's actually a reason for that because my brain basically needed a break. My brain needed to see normal again. Because 24-7, it was kind of like in fight-or-flight mode. It was all messed up, and it had it had to relearn normal. And being on the Xanax for that even that short period of time would allow it to relearn normal, and it would take a little longer then for it to return to the period of having the bad anxiety again. I don't take Xanax anymore now, except for when I go to the dentist or take a flight Something like that. For the most part now, I don't take it at all. So that was a success. So between the Xanax and the regular caffeine consumption, which I had been doing for 30 years and took away when I started having these problems, which just made everything much worse. So bringing back the caffeine and making sure to take it regularly, doing the Xanax about once every five days, and using the dry mouth rinse were really the three factors plus time that allowed this to go away for the most part. And allows me to mostly be the same guy I was before all this started. And I'm very thankful about that. I'm very thankful I didn't go down the road of Lexapro or any of that other stuff, which I know some people have to use. I'm not saying you shouldn't take it, but I'm glad I didn't have to start with that and deal with the side effects that come with that. I don't know if you guys know this, but <laughs> some of you know it for sure, but those type of drugs are called SSRIs. You actually, if you're male, you, you will usually have the problem where you can't get it up while on that drug. And that's something I did not want. That's something that I definitely did not want. That's a part of me I didn't want to lose. And most of this audience is male, and I'm sure it's something you wouldn't want to lose either. If it happens naturally, then so be it. But to have no problem and then to have to take a drug that makes that happen and just keeps you that way. You can imagine that's not very appealing. So I'm glad I didn't go down that road. And once you take it, it, it for a while it gets difficult to get off. I, I read so much about all this stuff. So a year later, about 90% of the anxiety is gone. About 98% of the depression is gone. 100% of the anhedonia is gone. The LPR, eh, maybe 50% better. The LPR is that lump in my throat, the inability to lie down without the choking. That's about 50% better than its worst point. But it's to the point where I've gotten used to it and can deal with it, especially with that rinse. So while my life has had to have a few changes to accommodate these things, I have to sleep on a bed now that's at an angle, like I'm sleeping downhill. When I went on my trip, I had to bring this wedge pillow with me 
the stuff into every bed so I could continue sleeping at that angle. At the World Series of Poker, I had to bring that thing to the Rio. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not everything can be perfect. And I said when I was going through all this, if I can mostly be normal again and mostly live my life normally, then I will deal with whatever inconveniences or imperfections that come along with the remainder of this. As long as I can mostly have a normal life, which I didn't have while this was going on in its first uh, two months or so. I'm looking at who's playing the free roll, by the way, and I see some familiar names. People I haven't heard from in a while, like F and Donkey. Glad to hear he's back. And I even see that uh, Brandon's playing. Brandon Drexel Gerson's playing right now. Interesting. Well, I forgot to do something. At some point, I'm going to have to stop the show. I, I, I forgot to do a few things, actually. I forgot to load all my sound effects. And I also forgot to bring my charger for the computer. So the computer, I'm doing this on a laptop. The laptop's going to die at some point if if I don't go and get a charger. So I'll, I'll take a break at some point soon and get that. I also didn't start Skype. See, I didn't load things like this yet. <laughs> now it's loaded. Now, now that I played it, it's loaded. Start Skype so we can get our good friend Trader Ruski on. And we can begin this show. I know I rambled a bit at the beginning here, but we don't have a very heavy agenda tonight. We really don't. If you're looking for the eight-hour show to be done again, that's not going to happen. That eight-hour show actually got a good reaction from... What's happening, Druff? Trader Risky, hello. How's it going? Congratulations on the anniversary. Yes, yes. And uh, Trader Ruski, as I've said before, he was very supportive through this whole thing, and I, I appreciate that a lot. I, I still think about that sometimes, what a good friend Trader Ruski was during this uh, dark time I was experiencing, and uh, that means a lot to me. And uh, anyway, what was I going to say here? Yeah, so I've, I've got to load some more sound effects. I, I don't know why I'm kind of just out of it here with preparing for the show. I did prepare the agenda. I did do research on our topics as, as I always do. So I, I am going to know what I'm talking about tonight. I'm not just shooting from the hip completely. Just the, the computer preparation. I could have done a better job. We, I expected a massive list of topics to have to go over after not being on for 15 days, but this has been a very slow news period in poker and gambling. It, it really has been. So we're not going to have the eight-hour show. I had a lot of people loving the eight-hour show, telling me that uh, they loved having it for long periods of time that they were doing things or traveling or whatever. And there, there were people that just loved it. They took a, they took five different sessions to listen to it, but got through the whole thing, wanted more of it. That's not going to be a regular occurrence. I can't do an eight-hour show every week. It just happened that week. We had twenty. We literally had twenty topics. <laughs> so. It was an eight-hour show. This week, I'm, I'm actually surprised we have as little to talk about as we do. 
I, I actually threw in a few topics I probably wouldn't otherwise cover if this was a heavier week. So here's the agenda for the week. Actually, before the agenda, I should give the phone numbers. 775-FRAUD-55 is our main phone number. 775-372-8355 is the number to call the show. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. It's located on Mount Charleston in a cabin there, the top of Mount Charleston. It forwards to me wherever I go. It's an old 70s rotary telephone. The call to listen line is a number you can call to listen to the show from any phone in the world. does not require a smartphone, an app, a data plan, the computer, the internet. No, 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 no. Just just any phone, any old school or newer phone, whatever, that can dial. You can just listen to the show. It will never, ever, ever, ever buffer. I guarantee you. There's been like a million minutes listened to on that thing. I'm not even exaggerating. And not one of those minutes was ever buffered. What you're hearing is just playing right through. And that's the beauty of it. You don't need a good connection on your cell phone. You can have one bar. You can have zero bars. You, the phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. The backup call to listen line is 641-741-1095. 641-741-1095. Those are our two call to listen lines. They both do the exact same thing. You can use it to listen to the live show, or when we're not live, you can just call it and listen. It'll play just a random rerun that it picked, and it runs all the way through as if it's live, and then picks another one over and over and over again until we come back live. It it did that for 15 straight days as I was gone since August 1st. And you can chat in the chat room if you're listening live. Just click the chat button near the top of the screen. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads, and you need a forum account that's validated and in good standing. I think that's it. We'll talk about the agenda, and then we'll get going. I took a trip to the eastern U.S. and to Canada. I'll tell you a bit about that and how I did on the flights each way. Remember I talked about the move-over law and the ticket I got? Well, the ticket has been adjudicated in court. The matter is complete. It's over. I can tell you what happened. Something not very surprising. I'll give you that hint. Speaking of court, Michael Borowitz. Remember him? He was on our show, the airport scammer, the poker player who uh, basically shot off all his money playing Gow over and over. And he would get a bankroll back by going to airports and scamming people with pretty much the same story over and over at airports. And despite the fact that he was repeatedly arrested for the exact same thing, he just kept doing it and getting arrested again and again and again. Well, I know you're probably shocked, but he did it again and he was arrested again. He just never quits. World Series of Poker main event... Seventh place finisher, Nick Matchington, who would have been the youngest ever main event champion. He was only 21. He would have been the youngest ever main event champion had he won. He finished seventh, still won well over a million dollars. He is being sued by a staking group known as Seabiscuit Stables. That's letter C, Biscuit Stables. I've actually dealt with them. I, I know 
one of the guys involved with that. It's two guys together who do it. The one named Colin, I know him, not like personally, but I've dealt with him about uh, some kind of business-related matters, nothing that big, but uh, he's done like rake back and things like that with me. And I'll tell you all about that lawsuit and who I feel is in the right. A poster on 2 Plus 2 has accused Bovada of demanding money for a phony chargeback. That is, they claim that he did a chargeback when he really didn't, and they want him to pay them. I will tell you what I believe happened there, and I'll tell you what to watch out for so you do not become the victim of the same thing. I I do believe the guy's story, by the way. The IRS is sending warning letters to people who misreported their cryptocurrency income. We will talk about those letters, and if you have something to worry about, if you have been using cryptocurrency to deposit or withdraw, especially withdraw, to or from online poker or online gambling or sports betting sites. A home game scandal has occurred near Cherokee, North Carolina, involving the custom backs of cards which indicated the suit of the card to anyone who was in the know. There were slight differences in the backs of the cards, which uh, someone who was in on the whole thing would know what suits of cards you were holding. And this was discovered. I will tell you about what happened there, and I will tell you how to prevent this from happening to you if you play at a home game or any game that's not at a licensed casino. Poker journalist Haley Hintz, who we've discussed many times on this show, very, very good poker investigative journalist. She's written a lot of great pieces, continues to write uh, mostly at flushdraw.net. It's not her site, but she works for them as, as a freelance author. There, there, there's a few, like two authors there pretty much. Uh, but she really, really writes good pieces, does incredibly good research, very smart woman. She learned more about the AP scandal, the super user scandal on AP, than, than anyone in the world, other than the perpetrators, maybe. <laughs> she probably even knew more than the perpetrators did. She knew everything. Boy, did she take that apart. So, let's see, we have a call coming in. I'm going to interrupt this for a second. I'm going to take a call here. Caller, you're on the air. Caller, Hello. Hello? Yes, hello. Oh, um, I hope I'm not on radio. You are. You are on radio. No. You no, are? I was trying to ask you a question without being on radio. <laughs> well, this, this is the wrong time to do it when I'm oh. actually on radio. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to play the um, the tournament, and I couldn't log on. Uh-oh. I was hoping you can help me, and then I realized you don't do that, so yeah, I'm a little embarrassed here. Well, yeah, that's that's the problem. In fact, it, it's too late anyway. It's 940 now, so even if I wanted to help you, I couldn't. But, yeah, I, I told everybody that there's no way to get in unless I did it beforehand. But, uh, anyway, th- this is actually a female listener to the show. This is an actual female listener to the show. I know who she is here, but uh, this is someone who listens. It's, it's a legitimate female She's she's been a, a listener for a while, and uh, so I decided to take the call. And then I, I I thought actually you may not want to be on the radio, which is why I took the call. That makes it more interesting. Oh, yes, <laughs> I did not want to be on. I had too many drinks. 
okay. at the casino, and I rush back for the tournament, and guess what? I'm not in. You're not in. Well, it's, it's unfortunate, but, uh, yeah, if, if you had mentioned it a very short time ago. I Draw read... for one of our female – oh, and, oh, late registration already closed. Yeah, I can't, do, I can't do it. Like, I can't even make an exception. because oh, you it's... didn't even do it. No, it, it, it's, yeah, it's closed. Yeah, no, the, no, the system uh, – in fact, it's, I don't even run the – this whole thing is not even run on my computer. It's run in England on Belly Buster's computer. I, I have – the only way I could get her in is if I shut down the whole thing and restarted it. And I don't think that would go over very well. Even, even if it's for a female listener, it wouldn't go over very well. So. Well, I'm sure it would be it great down. for half the shut people and down. not great for the other half. Yeah. <laughs> Drop. Shut it down. No, 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 no. Um, okay, well, you know, I, I was registered. Let me tell you. I had somebody in the hotel, and I said, make sure I get in. And it says I'm registered. And then I came back. and uh, Oh, if she's registered. In. Oh. And you can't find her password draft because if she's already registered. She yeah, if you're already registered, you're, so what's the problem? Can you, is your password not working? Or what's your problem? It says I'm waiting, and it says waiting three. Gookie, GM, and Angel Face. I'm logged in, huh. but I see nothing. You're, well, if it says you're waiting, you may have registered too late. There should never be waiting unless you've uh, – that's really weird. I, I don't know what to say about that one. I feel I feel you should be doing this in your Dell call center Indian voice. Okay, so. that's that's a good point. Uh, my friend, uh, I I cannot do much for you here. The, the tournament has already started and we closed the registration, so uh, we we cannot help you. But uh, you you can uh, go to www.dell.com and you can submit a support ticket with your service tag number, and I will I will get back to you. Oh yeah, my but God. I tried just logging out, log log back in. And then just press play online poker now and then open the tournament. It's probably because it probably just has you sitting out. Wait a minute. I, I thought I thought out, I'm the, I thought I'm the tech did. support guy here. What's, what's going on? Trader Risky took over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely. I was trying that. to. Well, look, here, I'm, I'm clicking on the tournament here and I see there's only one person that says waiting. No, no, you're in. You're, you're in and you're blinding off. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're in. So log off and back on. Or, or just just hit, uh... and then you just gotta open up the tournament. Open up the, t- make sure you open up the tournament window because it just has you sitting out. Yeah, and then you just have to say, "I'm ready." Yeah, your ships are blinding off, so you got you got to hurry up. But uh, you're there. You're oh, playing. Oh, this is amazing! I'm in now. Okay, great success. Great oh, success. Oh, thank you for answering my call. <laughs> I mean, like I, I didn't do anything, but I'll take credit anyway. Thank you. Okay. I came well, back. I was like, I told the Uber to drive so fast. He was flying. He almost got pulled over. I was like, I've got to get in this tournament. <laughs> Why do we need to drive you fast? Because I want to play a free roll on PokerFraudAlert.com. Well, I didn't want to miss the radio, but yes, and that. Girls okay. are so stupid. Who's Who the hell is this? <laughs> who, said, okay. who said girls are so Thanks, stupid? Who said, who said uh, that? It says, Says D U P E D. Who's she? Oh, oh, oh that's that's Dupe oh, Samaritan. He's Dupe Samaritan saying the girls are stupid. I, I can't agree with that one though. It's just yeah, some girls are stupid, but uh, I, I I can't agree with that blanket statement. So okay, um, good luck to the tournament. I'm glad you got in. I'm glad we had a success story here. And I, you, your Uber driver rushed back for a good reason. Yes, I'm going to take this tournament down. Okay. Angel nope. face. What am I? Zero. Angel face 27. I'm not 27 anymore. I'm actually 28. Yeah, well, so we, I got to change that too. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll worry about the next week. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> and hundred hundred bucks, hundred bucks for the winner. Hundred bucks for the winner. So it's yeah. a good one. It is a good one. You got in. All right. Good yep. luck. Thank you. Good luck. Okay. Have a good night. I'm, I'll be listening. Bye. Okay. This, this this is female privilege on this show. Like if a dude called up and asked about this, I'd say, "Hang up." We I already said I'm not helping you. I said I'm helping nobody, and then it's a, a then it's a girl. I'm like, "No, no, no. Hey, what's your problem?" We have to. We we got to keep the very small number of female listeners we have. We've got we got to do everything we can. Like dudes are a dime a dozen. There's tons of dudes to listen to this show. Like if it's a guy who's like 45 years old, I go there. There's like a million of you. Like if we lose you, it's no big deal. If we lose if we lose the 28 year old female, that's a big deal. It's all about uh, keeping the de- the demographics of the the ones we're having trouble. Attracting to the show. It's like 0.02% or 25%. Yeah. Okay, so going on with the agenda here. I'm going to get so many calls now with people trying to have me help them get in. But seriously, the thing's already closed, so she just got lucky that she was already in and it dropped her in. I, I don't understand what this waiting thing was. Wait, why, why was this duped guy... Why was Dupe Samaritan bashing her about being stupid when it showed him on the waiting list too? <laughs> like he was in the same position. Maybe a little. He may be a little bitter because he can't get in. <laughs> I mean, he's sitting going, "What? Why did it let her, not me? Not fair. It's rigged." Okay. The uh, so anyway, uh, Haley Hintz was the victim of a scary room invasion burglary attempt. It's, it's pretty much everyone's nightmare at a hotel that the door just opens to your hotel room and just some strange dude walks in while you're sleeping. This really happened to her. So I'll tell you what occurred to Haley Hintz. And don't worry, I'm not giving away her private business. She posted about this on Twitter. But it's an interesting story. And then I'll give you my advice of what to do if you're in any situation like that. John Mahaffey who's had his battles with WSOP.com. In fact, at one point, they were threatening to ban him from all Caesars properties. He wrote an article listing all the faults with regulated Nevada online poker and his suggestions on what they should do differently. This is at the state level, not WSOP.com itself. So I will read you what he wrote, and I'll give you my opinion. He's usually right on with what he puts out there. It's rare that John writes an article and I don't agree with it. The World Series of Poker is very likely to return to the Rio in 2020. So if you hate the Rio and you thought you were out of it for good because it's moving to the convention center, which they haven't announced yet, but it's going to do it. It's not happening just yet. It's very likely to be back there in 2020. I'll tell you why when we get to that segment. Finally, I'm going to start doing something that I have not done yet. And that is in the year 2020. I'm going to start playing mixed game tournaments at the World Series of Poker. Up until now, I have only played Hold'em tournaments and Omaha 8 tournaments. Nothing else. I've played variants of Omaha 8, like Big O and PLO 8, but I have only played Omaha 8 and Hold'em. Nothing else. And until 2015, or through 2015, I only played Hold'em. But I'm going to start playing mixed game tournaments in 2020. And I'll tell you why. 
And I'll tell you why I think that it's a good idea to start doing. And yes, I'll be ready. Okay, so that's our agenda. I'm going to get going here. The first topic is about my trip. This trip, I, I take a trip every summer. And it's always after the World Series of Poker at some point. This year, it was especially important to take a trip because I needed to see that I could take a trip on an airplane for several hours and be fine. I took one test flight back in April from L.A. to Vegas just to see if I could do any flight, and it was fine. It went very well. So I decided the next step was going to be, can I do a, like a five-hour type flight? And I figured if I could do that, then I could do any flight. Keep in mind that at the worst point of this whole thing, I couldn't even be comfortable sitting in my own living room. I would have to keep going outside. I would feel like I couldn't breathe. It was a very bad situation. So an airplane where there is no escape and you're trapped in a pretty small space. And it's not just so much that it's a small space, but you're, you're really just stuck in there and you can't leave it. And that's something you really have to be sure about before you attempt when you have the problems that I had last year. Now, prior to that, I'd flown a ton of times in my life with no issue. So it's not like I had a problem with flying before. But this was going to be the big test. Can I go across the country and not have issue? So I decided to book this trip to the eastern U.S. and eastern Canada. And by that, I mean fly into Boston and basically drive northeast through uh, Maine and then New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia and then fly back. It's going to be a one-way road trip, basically. And this required a flight to Boston from L.A. and then a flight back from Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is longer because you have to take two flights, one short than one long. And also it's just slower going west because of the way the wind blows. So I booked all that mostly in the middle of June during that downtime between my two World Series trips. I hastily threw together a trip. And when I say hastily, I actually put a lot of hours into it. Like I spent a long time each night for several nights in a row researching a good itinerary, hotels, things to do, uh, the timing of everything, when the best dates to go were. Like it, it's, for those that have planned like a lengthy trip like this, especially where it's something where you have to book all your own stuff, it's not like a cruise where you're just on it for a week. This one you have to book so many different things and find different things to do in each place. And it, it's a lot of work. So I did that in the middle of June, and I took my flights, and it was fine. I brought with me Xanax. I also took the Xanax, only 0.25 milligrams, which is the lowest dose possible. But I, I took that before each flight, and then I also brought with me a little handheld fan. Because I found that when air is blowing in my face, then it kind of feels better. Kind of more relaxing, 
And uh, so I brought a little handheld fan, which I didn't need on the way there, but on the way back I was happy to have it. I know they have those little things on the airplane itself, those little fans above you that you can twist and they blow air on you, but sometimes they're not all that strong. Sometimes they're too strong, sometimes they're not all that strong. On the way go on the way back it just it wasn't that good. And the current it was blowing at me was kind of too narrow. It was just nicer to have a fan. I bought a good handheld fan for about 20 bucks on Amazon a few months ago. So I brought that. And I bought first class both ways, which is good for me anyway because I'm tall. I can't really fit for any length of time in a standard coach seat. I could squeeze into it for an hour, but even before all this started, like it was just too small. So on the way there, I actually got a very good deal on Delta One, which is their kind of upgraded version of first class, kind of like first class plus where it has those lie-flat seats. And that was interesting. Benjamin, he was he was with us on the trip. He he really liked the Delta One. He really liked uh, lying flat on the bed there. He actually slept, too. He actually lay down, laid down and slept for a little bit. And he really liked lying flat. He, it was a thrill to him. I couldn't lie flat. I, I learned that the Delta One lie-flat seats are not for tall people. So, so I could... I, I couldn't make use of that. I actually had to sit up some. If I tried to lie flat, then I just didn't fit. But it was still nice. It was still nicer than a regular first class. I flew back on Air Canada, just in a regular, they actually called it business class, even though there's no first class on the, there's nothing above the business class on the flight. But that was very mediocre. Still better than coach. But yeah, it all went fine. So I, I can fly now. I can fly anywhere now. Which is very nice. I, I would watch stuff on TV and see these beautiful vacation destinations and go, crap, I can't go there because it's somewhere I need to fly to and I can't fly. And it was very, very demoralizing to see that. And now I don't think that. Now I think, oh, okay, you know, plan a trip there sometime. So that worked. I did not have any hotel fails this time, which is very surprising. On these long trips with so many different hotels, there's almost always a, like a moderate level or higher hotel fail. There's always like small problems, like the toilet doesn't work or something. You know, I'm not talking about like small maintenance problems that, uh, that I got taken care of. I mean, like, like real memorable problems that happen at the hotel. Usually with a lot of different hotels I'm going to, I'll, I'll hit one of those. But this time, nothing. Minor problems, but that was it. However, I had a major car fail. And it was a problem I had that I'd never seen before with any car I've driven, rental or otherwise. Fred Ruski, have you ever had a car that could not go into drive? You could take it into park, reverse, or neutral, but not drive. Um, no, I have, I have not. Even weirder, that's what happened to me, but even weirder, the gear shift was in the drive position, but it was in neutral. The car was in neutral. The gear shift was in, it was an automatic car, but the gear shift was in the drive position, but the car was in neutral. And I tried this over and over and over, and I could not get it into drive. And this is after, after successfully driving the car for three days. This happened three days into the trip, so it's not like I didn't understand how the car worked. Well, I figured out... How many we, miles were on it? Uh, not that many, like 12,000 or something. So the... Wow. The, 
I figured out what happened, but it was something that I couldn't fix and that wasn't fixable for anyone without taking it to the shop and probably doing a lot of work. This gear shift that was actually meant to resemble the like, kind of like an old school automatic gear shift where you're actually shifting it down from park to reverse to neutral to drive, like you're actually physically moving the thing. A lot of cars these days, you just kind of move it up, move it down, but it stays in place. And a sensor knows if you're pressing up or down and then just tells the computer you're shifting gears. This one, you're physically pulling something down. This was an SUV, by the way, a GMC SUV. So I physically was able to move it down to the drive portion, but it didn't go into drive because what I learned is that this physical moving of the gear shift is meaningless. It's just... They, they make it that way so it feels like you're actually shifting gears. But in reality, you're just passing by sensors that are telling the computer to shift the gears. So what happened is the sensor on the third position where neutral is was broken. It broke somehow after three days of our trip. So if I move it from park to reverse, that's fine. It knows it's in reverse. If I move from reverse to neutral, then it does not know. And it still stays in reverse. Then I move from neutral to drive. It knows I moved it down one. So then it switches it from reverse to neutral. And then I'm at the bottom at drive and there's no further I can go. So there's no way to get it in drive. So that third click there, it did not register. And there's no way to get it to register. I I tried it so many different ways. I turned the car on and off so many times. I I tried everything I could. There's no way to get it to go to drive. So that, that gear shift where you're actually physically moving it up and down, all you're doing is telling the computer of the car that it should shift one up, one down, which I never thought. I really thought those that where you're actually physically moving it, that you're really mechanically changing something as you're moving it down. But no, you, you're not. So <laughs> that's something I knew that I learned. But unfortunately, that meant I had a car that I could not get into drive. The problem was I was in a small town in in Maine that was not uh, particularly close to any airports. And I had rented from a company that's only at airports. And uh, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but it was a pain in the ass to get a replacement. I finally did. And I did from... Uh, one of the other companies that was associated with this company. But then the branch of that company tried to lie to me and said they didn't have any replacements for this uh, SUV that they really did. I ended up taking a minivan, which wasn't my first choice, but at least it was big enough. And that's what I kept for the rest of the trip. But they lied to me and said they had nothing but pickup trucks, which weren't going to help me. And then hours later, they admitted they had minivans and pretended that I just misunderstood them, which clearly I did not. They, uh, we even went over it several times. Are you sure all you have is pickup trucks? You know, that's all we have. Sorry. And then a few hours later, suddenly they have minivans that told me they had them the whole day, and I just misunderstood. It was, it was really frustrating. I lost almost a full day of that trip where we were going to do something, and we, we couldn't do it. We were going to see Acadia National Park that day, and we, we ended up seeing very little of it because of uh, this fail with the car but that was really the only fail that occurred near the end of the trip i met two 
people from Poker Fraud Alert, both of whom listen to the show, both of whom post on the forum. I met the Shrink and DJ Chaps. And I believe I'm the first person that either has met from the forum. So not only was the first time I met them, I think I was the first person they ever met from Poker Fraud Alert. In fact, I, I asked DJ Chaps and he told me, yeah, I'm the first one he's met. Uh, the Shrink, I, I spent a little longer with him because uh, we went to lunch and uh, he paid for it, which I appreciated. He, he offered to take me and my family to lunch and I appreciated that. He was a nice guy and we talked about a lot of stuff at lunch. And uh, then DJ Chaps, he had to get up very, very early the next day for work. So I met him only briefly. We probably like stood out there and talked for about 20 minutes and then... Uh, he had to go. But it was good meeting him. I have some pictures of... Uh, for some reason, we didn't take a picture with a string. I, it just somehow it didn't happen. We should have... I wish we had, but we didn't take one. Um, DJ Chaps. The, the shrink has never been public with his picture. I think he's shown his body before, but he's blocked his face. So he probably wouldn't want me to post it anyway. Uh, DJ Chaps has been very public with what he looks like. So I will uh, post that picture sometime soon. The shrink, by the way, looks normal. He hasn't been public with what he looks like, but he, he he's not some uh, hideous creature that that's hiding in the shadows. He looks like a normal guy. And, and so does DJ Chaps, to be honest. But you, you guys have seen him. Or at least you have if you read the form. So it was nice. Both of them live in the Halifax, Nova Scotia area. So it's always nice to meet uh, Poker Fraud Alert members. I still have yet to have a bad encounter Unlike Brandon, who's just run so bad with when he meets people, like somehow troublesome things happen. Uh, so I've, I've run much better than he has with meeting up with forum people. I, I've, I've really had no problem. I, I've had other problems with people from forums, but as far as like planned meetups with people, or even people I've met that it's not planned, like I, I just don't have, I haven't had any problems. They always go well. One problem I had on the trip, which was a little bit weird, was finding a lobster dinner, which you think would not be a problem in places like Maine and Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia, all three places which are known for their good lobster. So how did I have a problem finding it? Well, see, I didn't want to just go to any lobster place. I wanted to have a lobster dinner. I didn't want chilled lobster. I didn't want lobster rolls. I wanted a lobster, a cooked lobster dinner. The problem is that because these places are known for their lobster. There's a lot of really gimmicky lobster places that are not very well rated, that are very expensive, and just aren't very good. Like, if it was expensive and very good, then fine. Then I'll, I'll open up the Jew wallet, spend the money, and have my good lobster. But these, these are places that are mediocre, that take advantage of the fact that people are there and say, hey, I've got to have lobster in Maine. So they spend a lot of money. The place is very gimmicky and touristy. And... The meal isn't even that great. So I didn't want to go to one of those places. So I crossed those off my list. So I'd, I'd look at reviews online, and the places that looked like what I was looking for, it just never worked out. So many different things happened to prevent me from having my lobster dinner. Sometimes the place would be closed on whatever day we were there. It's like, oh, this place looked great. And it, it, it's a, like a Tuesday, and it says closed Tuesdays. Or... By the time we're going to get to the place, it's going to be like 10 minutes after they close. Or 
one place actually ran out of lobster. And I said, how often does that happen? They said, like, just about never. <laughs> it was like a Monday when that happened. It wasn't even like a Saturday night. I had another place that looked like it would be good, but they had a liquor license. This is in Halifax. And they something about their license, they couldn't allow minors there after 9 p.m. So we had to drop that reservation. And I only found that out once we got there because they didn't know in my reservation that that uh, there were minors with us. So like stuff like that happened over and over and over again. I just could not get my lobster dinner. I, I, I also went to two different places in Prince Edward Island, which looked good and had good reviews. But then I get there and I find out that they're only still serving chilled lobster, not cooking it, which I didn't want. One of them even tried to say to me, well, you've, have you ever had chilled lobster? Maybe you should try chilled lobster. I said, yes, I've, I've had chilled lobster and it's okay, but that's not what I'm looking for here. Like, I don't dislike chilled lobster, but that's not what I was there for. I wanted to have a good lobster dinner in a place that's known for lobster. What I was really looking for, ideally, and this isn't what I ended up doing. I ended up having a lobster dinner at just like a regular restaurant. It was pretty good in Halifax. But what I was really looking for was kind of like a small, non-touristy, non-gimmicky place where they just serve good cooked lobster. And the funny thing is, I, I should have posted about this on the forum, because when I posted about this after the fact, when I was already home, Sanilmar, who's a very active poster on the forum, actually posted a link to some place he found. I'm not sure if he'd been there or if he just found it looking on the internet, but it was a place in Prince Edward Island, which was pretty much exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> I go, yeah, that would have been really good. It was like a... Like a older couple that runs a small lobster restaurant on the beach and you go eat the lobster sitting on uh, like picnic tables at the beach and they boil a lobster for you. It seemed perfect. And it was very well rated. God, I missed that one. Probably would have been closed though when I got there. Something would have happened. Something would have prevented me from having it. There was some force just trying so hard to prevent me from having lobster. And the weirdest thing is that at the place I finally had the lobster, we went in at 9.15 p.m. and it was on a Monday. And the sign on the door very clearly said that Monday through Thursday, their hours were 9 to 9. <laughs> this is 9.15. I almost didn't even try to open the door. Because I saw very clearly they had been closed for 15 minutes. So I tried to open the door. And right then an employee comes up to like where the door was. And I'm sure he's going to say we're closed. And then he opens the door and says, "Now uh, I help you? I said, yeah, you're closed, right? He says, no, no, we're open. I go, really? Says, yeah. I said, okay. So, so we went in at 8. So they must have changed their hours or something to 10. Maybe for that week or maybe they just changed it permanently. I don't know. But... Somehow they were open after 9, well after 9, on that Monday when they weren't supposed to be. That's how I finally got my, my lobster dinner. With lobster, there really is a lot of variance in how good it is. Uh, you, you would think that there wouldn't be that much, but there really is. Like, there can be lobster that really just isn't that good. And then there's lobster that's, like, excellent, that you just want to keep eating and eating and eating. So it's uh, 
I was looking for it there. And this is something I wanted to have a lobster dinner in that region. It's something I can't just duplicate over here. Not that you can't have a decent lobster dinner over here, but it's not quite the same. It's kind of like you want to have pizza when you're in New York. Okay. Did you, did you swing by the new casino at all when you were in Boston? I did not. I wanted to, but uh, I was with the family, and I, I I couldn't do it because I mean yes, I could have just left while everybody everybody went to sleep and gone there, but I couldn't have spent any time there, or I would have been exhausted the next day. So it was something I really just couldn't do. I, I wished I, I I really wanted to see it, and I really wanted to play there, but. It also wasn't that close to where we were staying. So I, I saw it. We actually drove by it, but I, I did not go in there. I did not go into Encore Boston. We didn't really stay in Boston. We, we arrived in Boston and immediately drove south a little bit and then went to Newport, Rhode Island the first day, the first full day. Oh, wait, one more thing. This is really weird. This is something that happened for the first time in my life and probably won't ever happen again. I got injured on the first full day of the trip in Newport. I got injured not once, not twice, but three separate times that day. Never had that in my life where three completely separate incidents injure me. None of them serious, thankfully. The first one was pretty minor. I just cut my finger, but it was annoying. But that would, that would, that would not be worth mentioning had it not been for the next two things. In Newport, I slipped and fell on uh, jagged rocks at the beach. Twice. A few hours apart. Both times could have been really, really bad. Um, the second time, or should I say the, you know, the last time, the second of the two falls, it was so slick that I was having a hard time getting up because it was so slippery. And both times I went down just really fast and uncontrollably, and I, there's a lot of things that could happen. I could have broken something. I could have banged my head on sharp rocks. Or, a lot of bad things could have happened there, especially at my age. Somehow on both falls, I didn't get anything worse than some scrapes and, and bruises and cuts. I still have some residual pain from it. Like in my my right shoulder has had some pain ever since. But it doesn't seem like anything major. So, so this could have been really bad. And it was on the first full day of the trip. It could have just killed the trip. But somehow in, in both of those falls on the jagged rocks there, somehow both times I landed in a way that nothing bad happened. Very fortunate. That was weird. The... Second of the two falls, I did get very dirty because I landed in kind of like seaweed-colored, very wet seaweed-covered rocks that had like dirt on them too. And then I had to walk like a mile back that way. (laughs) But uh, fortunately in the car, we had all our stuff, so I was able to change my clothes. So that, that was unfor- that was a fortunate thing. I, th- I thought about that. I go, so many bad things could have happened there from like kind of bad, like 
breaking a bone to like horrible, like hitting my head and something really bad happening. Got to watch out on the slippery rocks. But twice that happened to me. And then the rest of the trip, whenever I was like walking on rocks near the beach, I was paranoid it was going to happen again, even though I was not stepping on anything slippery anymore. Somebody didn't learn it the first time. I had to fall a second time to say, okay. But I, I don't think in my life I've ever hurt myself three times in one day. Trader Risky, has that ever happened to you three times in one day that you've been uh, at least a little bit injured from three different things? I can't say that it has. Yeah, Maybe I, in a week or something, but certainly not in one day. Yeah, one day, it's, I can't imagine that's ever going to happen to me again. Because they were all unrelated. They was not like... Uh, like something happened that caused the second thing. These are three separate things that happened in a, in a single day. And then the whole rest of the trip, nothing else hurt me. So, okay. Let me get to the last story about me, and then we'll move on to the stories about everybody else. The move-over law ticket. On the way back from the World Series of Poker, I got a ticket for passing by... A traffic stop. I was driving one mile per hour under the speed limit. I was not on my phone. I was not driving erratically or dangerously in any way. And the cop who pulled me over admits all of this. I got the ticket for being in the right lane while a traffic stop was going on, even though nobody was outside their car at the time I passed by. It's not like I zoomed by an officer and almost hit him. Or No, everybody was in their car. I didn't almost hit anybody. When I passed by... There were two officers on the scene in two separate cars, and the second officer was waiting to jump out and pull someone over for doing exactly that. He, he jumped out and pulled me over the second I passed by. It was, it was basically a trap. I talked about this extensively on one of the past radio shows, so I'm not going to go into that whole discussion again. You can find it in the archives if you want to hear all that. But there is an update. So the weird thing was that for a while, this ticket completely disappeared from the system. See, after you get the ticket, after about a day, what you can do is you can go online and just pay your ticket online. Now, when you do that, you get a point on your record. It's like pleading guilty, and you pay it and get the point on your record, which is, is bad. But uh, And before I go on with the story, I see that I am about to run out of power, which is not good. So what I'm going to do here... And even though he's not, uh, he has not sponsored this free roll tonight. This is all my Jew money, but this is a guy who has given so much to the free rolls here, very, very generously, and I, I appreciate this, even during weeks where he has not given anything, because uh, he has given a lot of money just to be nice. And this is Eric Benzamokin. I'm going to play his ad just to uh, have something to play <laughs> while I'm going to get the charger here because the the computer is going to shut down and this show will end and we don't want that so i'm going to get the charger i'm going to plug it in and then when this ad is over i will be here so we'll be right back Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me. 
to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. By the way, I got an endorsement from uh, uh, for Eric from a listener who told me a few days ago that Eric helped him out in something he needed. So definitely if you have uh, any kind of legal need, email uh, eric at eblawfirm.us. Trader Risky, you still there? Oh, maybe he took a break, too. Hi. Oh, there you are. No, no, no. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. So let me get into the uh, move over situation, the move over ticket. So I thought this was a ridiculous ticket, and I, I went over this on a previous show, but Basically, not only do I feel it's a stupid reason to pull someone over, but the whole law does not accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. What they're trying to accomplish is that everybody gets out of the way when law enforcement is on the right side, uh, on the right shoulder, to where people don't accidentally get out of their lane and, and hit the officer who is doing his job. And on the surface, that sounds like a great idea. The problem with this law requiring people to get out of that right lane when there's something on the right shoulder is that the only people who are likely to hit someone and veer out of their lane are those who aren't going to follow this law anyway. Because if you're driving normally, you're not going to veer out of your lane. 
you're just going to keep driving straight. If you're paying attention, you're driving normally, you're not impaired, you're not on your phone, you're not drunk, you're just going to drive straight, you're going to drive right by that, you're not going to hit anybody. The ones who are going to veer out of their lane are the ones who are drunk, on drugs, not paying attention, texting, whatever, and they're, you're not going to get out of the lane because it's the law if you're not paying attention enough to drive straight. So this is a law that seems to be good on the surface, but then when you think about it, the only people that are going to be deterred from driving in that lane are the ones who are going to drive safely anyway. The problem with this law is that it causes people to panic that they're going to get a ticket if they're in that right lane and then they scramble to get out of there or slam on their brakes because you can, you're, you're also allowed to pass by if you go like 20 miles per hour lower than the speed limit. So everyone either slams on their brakes or panics and tries to get out of the lane and this can cause accidents. Basically, it causes a panic reaction of the driver when there's not actually danger right in front of them. And any law that does that is very dangerous. You should never have a law in the books that causes the driver to panic to do something immediately when there's actually not any danger that's in front of him at the moment. And that's what this law does. And there, there have been accidents and multi-car pileups that have happened because people go, oh my God, the move over law, I better move over or I better slow down. And they slam on the brakes and bang, 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 a big uh, chain reaction behind them. It's a terrible law. Well-intentioned, but a terrible law. Anyway, the big problem for me is not the $198 ticket. It sucks, but it's not like I can't afford that. The problem is the point on my record, because this causes your insurance rates to skyrocket for three years, even a single point. So I had to do something about this. So what I did was I actually did kind of a trial by facts, would you believe? This, this was kind of a backward court I was dealing with. They did not have an email address, would you believe? If you wanted to communicate with them, you either had to come in, and I live nowhere near it, so that wasn't an option, or write a letter to them, or fax them. Even calling them is incredibly difficult. I, it, it, they almost never answer their phone there. So I sent in a letter to the judge by fax, and basically put my defense there. And my defense was pretty simple. I actually said that unlike most matters brought before you in traffic court, this is to the judge, I completely agree with everything the officer put on their ticket. That the officer and I are in complete agreement about the facts of this case. And that's true. I didn't dispute a single thing that the officer wrote on the ticket. And I pointed out the facts that I was driving one mile per hour below the speed limit, that I was driving safely, that I was driving responsibly, that I was not on my phone, I was not drunk, I was not impaired in any way, I was not distracted. And that the officer would agree with all of these assessments, which he did. He even told me this in person when he pulled me over. So basically, the only thing to decide was, did I deserve a ticket for being in that right lane? So my defense was that I wasn't aware that this was the law and that I stayed in the right lane there because I felt it was the safest place to be with cars zooming by me in the left and center lanes, which, by the way, is correct. There was actually a study done a number of years ago 
that being significantly slower than other traffic is the most dangerous for you on the highway. So if people are zooming by you, you want to be in the right lane and be away from them. I did not criticize the law itself in my facts to the judge, nor did I say that I felt it was a trap, even though I felt that way, even though I felt the law was stupid. I did not mention these things because this would not be helpful to me. In fact, it would only hurt me. You're not supposed to criticize the law when you're writing to the judge, nor are you supposed to uh, state that you feel it was a trap. Basically, you need to focus upon whether you broke the law, and if you did, why you did so. So that's what I focused upon. I said I did not know that law existed. I stayed in the right lane because I was trying to be safe, that I did not want to get into the center or left lanes driving at this speed with other traffic moving so much faster than I was. I was afraid I was was creating a hazard by doing so. So I would stay in the right lane where I felt it was safest, and I didn't know this law existed. All I was trying to do is drive as safely as possible. Now I'm aware of that law. Now I will follow that law in the future, which I will. That's true. I don't want to get this ticket again. And I asked the judge if he could either dismiss it or if he can't do that, at least give me a reduction and change it to a parking violation. And what that means is they change the violation from a moving violation to one that is a non-moving violation, which means zero points on my record and no insurance increase. Basically, once you pay the ticket, it's like it never happened, other than your Jew wallet being thinner. So that's what he ended up doing. The judge wrote to me and told me that my ticket was reduced from 198 to just 98, so cut almost cut slightly more than in half, and that it was changed to a parking violation. So the matter is complete, and... That is that. Cost me $98, but will not affect my driving record in any way. And that was the main thing I was going for, was to not have a point on my record. Still sucks. I still don't like having to pay $98 for this. But that was as well as I was going to do. I was not going to go to court in that remote location and probably get no better of a result than this. I just didn't want the point of my record, and I've accomplished that. Someone on the forum said I weaseled my way out of a deserved ticket. I said, how did I weasel my way out of anything? I wrote to the judge and told the truth. In fact, I said everything written on the ticket is true. So how could you be weaseling your way out when you admit in your facts to the judge that everything written on the ticket is true? And I stated the truth. I really was in that right lane because I felt that was the safest place to be. 100% that's why I was there. So everything I wrote to the guy was true. I did not weasel out of this one. I, I stated the true and correct facts of the situation to the judge in that facts. And he decided to reduce it to a parking violation and cut the fine in half. Which is about as good as it was going to get for me. So that is how that story ends. And I will be careful not to go by 
anyone stopped in the right lane anymore. Even though I think that law is stupid, I'm going to be careful not to do that so I don't get any more tickets for that sort of thing. But as an aside here, is something I want to mention. To show you how stupid this law is, when we were in Nova Scotia, I'm driving on a like a one one lane each direction highway, 80 kilometers per hour, which is about 50 miles per hour speed limit. The traffic was going very slightly over the speed limit, maybe about like 85 kilometers per hour. But it it was kind of like semi-heavy, not to where it slows down, but to where there's a lot of cars kind of in a line traveling at around the speed limit. And all of a sudden, the car in front of me slams on their brakes. So I have to slam on my brakes so not, as not to rear-end him. And I didn't rear-end him. But I'm going, what the hell was this? Well, there is a situation where the right shoulder had a police officer pulling someone over. And Nova Scotia has this move-over law, just like Nevada does. So someone three cars up panicked and was afraid they were going to go by it too fast and get a ticket. So they slammed on their brakes to get back to whatever speed you have to go when you pass that. And there was no lane to move to because this is the only lane. So you had to slow down. So this guy's in the front, slams on his brakes. And then all the cars behind him, it's a chain reaction. They have to slam on their brakes. This could have been a multi-car pileup. Thankfully, everybody was quick enough to hit the brakes and nobody was close enough to each other to where there was not an accident. But there easily could have been. For what? So people don't violate this stupid law? Like there was the the guy slamming on his brakes in the first place. There was no hazard in front of him. He wasn't about to hit something or someone. He slammed on his brakes because he was afraid of getting a ticket over this. And my girlfriend... Her neck kind of lurched forward because I had to slam on the brakes so abruptly. And after this, her neck was hurting. And at first, we didn't know what this was about. And then we looked up and we saw three cars ahead that there was a cop on the side of the road pulling someone over. It was all because of this stupid law that someone slammed on their brakes. And the first thing she said is, this is a good example of why that law is dumb. (laughs) I said, that is a good example. But imagine like if a multi-car pileup happened there. All because of that law. So, interesting we had an example of this. Such a, about a month after I'd gotten pulled over for it. I've always said, when crafting traffic laws, you've got to be careful. You can't just do something for symbolism You can't just do something because on the surface it seems correct. You have to do studies. You have to actually pass laws based upon the way traffic really operates and whether the law you're passing is really going to save lives and really going to prevent accidents. And if the law you're passing is either going to cause more harm than good, like create more accidents than it prevents, or if it's something that's just going to generate revenue but not really make anything safer then you shouldn't have the law. That's not what traffic laws should be about. They shouldn't be about revenue, and they should not be about just doing something because it feels right or something that the public will approve of because they don't want to think about it too much. People love to 
support things with the knee-jerk belief that they're supporting something that's the right thing. People like to feel good that they're behind something that's good and just and right. So you hear there's a law passed that is meant to protect police officers from being hit on the side of the road. Of course you're going to want to support that. You sound like an asshole if you say, no, I don't support that. Who would support killing police officers on the side of the road? That sounds insane. Unless you detest the police that much that you want them killed. A normal person would say, yeah, of course I support that. But you have to think about it. You have to think when you write the law, what is this really going to accomplish? And if, it was, if all that's going to be accomplished is creating new accidents while really not preventing what you were trying to prevent in the first place, then it shouldn't be a law. Even if it feels like it should be, any traffic law that is written should have a practical application that's going to do good for society. And if it's not, it shouldn't be on the books. No matter how good it feels to write the law, and no, no matter how much, in theory, you feel it should help. If in practice it's not going to help, if in practice it's going to cause problems, it shouldn't be a law in the books. And this law has now been perverted to just be used for revenue purposes. Keep in mind, I was pulled over not because the officers felt I was creating a hazard, but they actually had someone waiting there to grab someone, the first one to go by in the right lane that didn't slow down at least down to 50. And I was that guy. Okay. Moving along here. Just just in general, I've never been someone who believes in symbolism over substance. I've never believed in just doing something because people say you should or people say it's the right thing or it feels good to do because it makes you feel like a good person. I, I don't believe in any of that crap. I, I believe in only doing things that are practical, that have a real purpose. Now, I'm not saying that uh, I don't sometimes follow laws because it's just the law and I don't want to get in trouble. I, I do. I There's a practical purpose to that, too, to where I don't get myself in trouble, even if I don't agree with the law. That's why with this, I'm going to follow it, even though I don't agree with it, because I don't want to get in trouble again. But as far as what I support, as far as, far as what I think is a good idea... It would only be things that have a practical application in real life. I'm not just talking about traffic. I'm talking about anything. I hate rules just for the sake of being rules or rules just to feel good about it. It it sounds very different, but the whole cruise ship tipping thing where you're forced to leave a tip every day to the staff in general, which is split among all the different workers on the ship. And then that's kind of expected to replace the individual tipping people used to do. And it's like $14 per person per day on a cruise ship. You may say, what does that have to do with anything here? But if you look into it and you analyze what's really happening, the cruise ship is really keeping that money. You're not actually tipping anyone. What they're really just doing is paying the workers less than minimum wage and using these tips to make up for it. So whatever tips that are being forced for you to leave, you're not really tipping. It's just an accounting trick. These workers are still making a flat wage. 
the tips you're leaving, suppose the tips you're leaving that you're forced to leave are really going in the pockets of the cruise ship company. But if you bring this up to anybody, most people get really, really mad because there's a way to opt out of these tips. And even if you try to explain over and over that opting out doesn't take the money out of the pockets of the workers, it takes the money out of the pockets of the cruise ship, which I've never done. I've never actually opted out, but I've, I've discussed like how opting out actually isn't that bad. And if you ever have this discussion, like a large percentage of the people get so mad and say, how dare you? How dare you take money out of the pockets of these hardworking cruise ship employees? And you understand how little they make and the hard conditions they came from at home in their third world country, blah, 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 blah. And I go, no, 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 no. Listen, this isn't going to them. It's going to the cruise ship company. People don't want to hear it. Why don't they want to hear it? Because they want to feel good that they tipped. They're being told that this $14 per day per person while they're on the ship is covering all the tips. So if they don't tip otherwise, they still really have tipped because it's an auto tip. And then when you tell them the auto tip isn't really tipping anyone, they flip out because they want to believe they're tipping. They want to believe that they're doing the right thing. And if you tell them, guess what? You haven't really been tipping. This auto tip is BS. They don't want to hear it. Because people just want to feel good. They want to feel good that they think they're supporting the right things They think they're doing the right thing. And I've never been a believer in that. I've never been a believer in doing something because it makes you feel good about yourself. If something you're doing is not really accomplishing anything, and it's just to make you feel good as if you're accomplishing something, then just don't do it. Unless you have to. And and never hide reality from yourself. Always look critically at things. Always think critically about things. Not saying you have to be negative about everything, but you've you, you got to think critically about everything you're doing. Everything you're asked to do. About rules. I hate when people say rules are rules. Those are the rules. Them's the rules. Them's the breaks. No. Why is this rule in place? Would an exception to this rule make sense? The person you're discussing the matter with do they have the power to make exceptions to the rule and might an exception be correct in this case just because something's a rule doesn't mean you need to blindly follow it or allow it to harm you or inconvenience you or be a problem for you in some way but there's many people out there who believe if something's a rule then that's just the way life is and they never want to question it in fact they look down upon those who question the rules I'm not being one of these idiots who like to say, oh, break all the rules, be a rebel. I'm not being like that. I'm saying just think critically about things. You'll often find that when you do, it leads you to make correct decisions that you may not have otherwise made. All right. I will get off my soapbox now and uh, quickly read the chat. Um, someone in the chat is saying, is this poker related? And then uh, Dupe Samaritan says, is this your first time listening? He says, unfortunately not the other guy, a flipper fairy was the one complaining. This isn't just a poker show. 
This is a show about a lot of things. All right. I'm going to move on, and I'm going to talk about something that is poker-related, kind of. That's Michael Borovitz, who is a longtime career scammer, but his scams don't usually involve poker players. They involve airports. Michael Borovitz has been on this show before to talk about this airport scam. He does not deny doing it. He admits it's wrong. He admits he shouldn't be doing it. He admits he is a scammer. He says he does it because he has a gambling addiction, mainly to Pygal poker, and that when he shoots off all his money playing Pygal poker, that to get more, he scams. The scam he runs is one where he goes to airports and approaches people and asks them for around $200 with some kind of sob story. Usually it's to get a hotel for the night because uh, he missed his flight and then uh, the, the airline doesn't want to give him a hotel for the night. He has, he has no money on him and he doesn't have his credit cards on him. He, he gives some form of a story which sounds fairly convincing that he's going to be stuck at the airport all night, that he has money, just not with him right now or any way to access it. And he's going to be stuck at the airport all night unless someone loans him 200 bucks. Often he'll pull out uh, something to back his story, like uh, a, a phony flight receipt or uh, a phony business card or something about a job interview he's going to in this city, uh, all falsified. And he'll tell these people all he needs is like 200 bucks to get a hotel for the night. And that he'll, he gets their address... He shows them his driver's license. He says, hey, I'll send it back to you. He seems very friendly. He seems very reputable. He is a stranger to them. I, I wouldn't fall for this. I wouldn't just give 200 bucks to some stranger. No matter how convincing their story was. But the story is just so detailed and sounds plausible enough. And people feel bad for him because everybody's had their own airport fails or airport horror stories where things don't go as planned and you're stuck at the airport and the the airline doesn't want to pay for a hotel room. Everybody's had some form of that at some point in their life for the most part, unless you've run really well with airports. So everyone knows how air travel is these days and they feel for the guy. This seems like just a middle-aged businessman who's trying to fly somewhere for an interview and the airline screwed him over, and he just temporarily doesn't have access to his money. I forget what he says in the story of why he doesn't have his credit cards with him, but there, there's some something to that, too. And all he needs is 200 bucks for the night just, just to get a hotel and get by, and then he promises he's going to pay you. He shows you his license. So you see, the, the whole thing on the surface can seem pretty legit. So some people fall for it. Not everybody, but some people fall for it, and he just collects the same 200 over and over and over again. This would actually be a fairly clever scam if he had an exit strategy, but he doesn't. What he does is he stays at the same airport over and over and over again, day after day after day, running the same scam over and over and over again on different people until inevitably someone is suspicious enough to report this to the police who then come over and question him, and they figure out that, yes, this is a scam, 
and they arrest him. He has now been arrested, would you believe, at 13 different airports. 13 airports, he has actually been arrested for this exact same scam. Amazing. 13. Since the last story, or is that the whole, since the last one, or is that no, total? No, 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 total, like total. That. This is now his, his 13th time being arrested. I believe 13 different airports this has happened. Or either, I'm not sure if it's 13 different airports, but there's been 13 arrests with this exact same scam. You would think after 13 times, he would say, well, look, this is getting me arrested over and over. This scam just isn't working. <laughs> it works temporarily, but then they always get me. You'd think at least he'd change something. You'd think at least uh, maybe he'd run a few of these and then ditch out and go to a different airport. No, he, he stays there until they eventually bust him. That's why he's been arrested 13 times. I believe that this is not just about getting money for Gal. I believe he does have a gambling problem. I believe this is somewhat for money. But clearly, he must be smart enough to realize after 13 times that just sticking around running the same scam over and over until finally someone gets suspicious and reports into the police and he gets arrested, that this is going to end the same way every single time. So there must be something that he enjoys about this whole thing. And I'd love to get him on here again. I, I can't right now because he's in jail as far as I know, but I, I would love to get him on here and you ask him You can accept the collect call, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would love to get the answer to this one because I don't believe everything he told me anymore. I at first, I did believe maybe he's just uh, an addicted gambler who resorts to scamming to keep in action, which I'm not defending in any way, but that uh, seemed to make sense. But it no longer makes sense because of how many times he's done this in a row with the same ending every single time, and yet he's still doing it and doesn't change anything. He'll change the airport sometimes, but he, he sticks around every time until he gets busted, and it just doesn't make any sense. So I think he kind of lives for these scams. I think he's actually enjoying the scam itself. I think maybe. Did, did we find out? Try to cut you off, but did he? Did he tell us like how? Like you know, if he gets four of those, that's eight hundred bucks. Then he's gone. Does he have like a goal or a cap? I, I don't remember if we asked that. Uh, I would definitely definitely ask this now. I'm not sure if I would ask that at this point, but. Uh... Uh, I, I, I would ask that at this point. I'm not sure if we asked him back then, but this. Yeah, one, I guess maybe three or four at the max. I don't know if he's like yeah. there all day trying to get ten of them for two grand. I yeah, I, I I don't know either. Uh, he also sticks to these airport scams and nothing else. Why doesn't he try some other scams that may be safer? Why doesn't he re- even resort to these low grade like America's card room scams that have been happening these days, where people just say, hey. Uh, does anyone want to trade money? You know, I'll, I'll send you 500 on ACR if you send me 500 on PayPal or Cash App right now. Like that, That's been going on a lot lately. That that idiot Brian Wojtek's been doing this over and over and getting away with it. Like That's a lot safer than this. What he's doing here is, is a guaranteed ticket to jail the way he's doing it. He has some obsession with airports. He, he hasn't scammed any other way from what I can see. It's, it's always the airport. It's always the same airport scam done the exact same way, resulting in the exact same arrest. So there must be some obsession he has with actually performing this particular scam. I don't know if he gets some kind of thrill when the guys hand him the money. 
something about the airport. He's got like an airport fetish. I, I don't know what it is. But there's something about this where he's actually enjoying it. It has to be. I don't think he's that stupid to commit the exact same mistake procedurally. I'm not talking mistake like as far as committing crime. I mean like he's doing a scam that lands him in jail 12 straight times. He comes back and does it the 13th time without changing a thing. Even rats are smarter than that. You put a rat in a maze, it runs into a, a wall where it gets an electric shock. It doesn't go back to that wall. Here he runs into the wall with the electric shock. He's, he's run into it 13 times. So clearly, there's something he enjoys about this. I don't believe it's just about the money anymore. Otherwise, I think he would have branched out to other scams, especially ones that are safer as far as getting caught, as far as getting prosecuted. I think he has some sickness regarding committing this particular airport scam. Very weird. Very weird. I, I would love to know what's in his head about this. Like, I, do you really think he's shown up at the airport now for the 13th time and says, okay, I think this time it's going to be different. I've gotten busted 12, 12 out of 12 times doing this, but I think this 13th time I'm going to be lucky. It's lucky number 13. It's so weird. But it's happened. Apparently, he's not even a bad poker player either. Like, those who have played with him say that he's, he's pretty good. So I believe he has a gambling problem and shoots off whatever he wins in poker. But it's more than that. It's got to be more than that. Apparently, he's only been doing this since, like, 2015. At least that's the first time he was caught. And... They said his uh, criminal history spans 13 states. He was arraigned on two counts of false pretenses with intent to defraud a misdemeanor. He was given a bond of $100,000. And he has to, they had to put up uh, 10% of that, uh, I think, through bail bonds or something. Anyway, he, had to, uh, he has not raised that, and he's still in the jail as far as I know. In, uh, in Wayne County, which is in Michigan, in the Detroit area. His pretrial hearing for this one is on August 28th. What a mess. <laughs> Some people, I just wonder what they're thinking. Some people just don't make sense. He's one of them. But I will try to get him on if I can reach him after he gets out of jail. At some point, you got to think he's going to do serious time, given his history. At some point, they're going to hit him with a maximum. They'll find some way to hit him with additional charges. I mean, there there will be, at some point... And what do you think the maximum is? I mean, what could they possibly give him? Well, for these charges, probably not that much, but... They could probably add additional charges on this. I don't know. They, I, I bet there'd be some way that he could end up there a lot longer. Just if some judge is pissed off enough or some uh, a combination of some DA is pissed off enough and some judge agrees and he could get, get them real long. He's he's definitely not a sympathetic character at this point in any way. He's someone who's proven he's just going to keep doing this over and over. And, and the sentence that's not that long... It, doesn't deter him 
I believe he will come out and do this the 14th time. Why wouldn't he? Moving on to a different legal matter, though not a criminal one, it's a civil one, but an interesting one. Main event final tableist Nick Marchington, who is only 21 years old, he would have been the youngest World Series of Poker main event winner had he won, but he finished 7th. I think he got $1.75 million for finishing in 7th place. You may wonder if I played with him since I made it to 128th. I did not. At least uh, if I did, I don't remember him. (coughs) Sorry about that. Drinking some water and went down the wrong way. Tried to gulp this down real fast in between words and sometimes that happens. Anyway, Nick Marchington apparently had a staking arrangement, and he also had a previous staking arrangement, which he canceled. So let me explain what happened. There is a two-man company called Seabiscuit Stables. That's letter C and then Biscuit Stables. And it's run by two guys, Colin Hartley and David Yee. And they, uh, one of them lives in Canada. I think Colin lives in Canada and David lives in uh, the U.S. doesn't really matter. But it's called Seabiscuit Stables. It's been around for a while. I actually have had experience with them because they've done my rake back on a few sites dating back years. And... They've always been pretty reputable as far as I've seen. I haven't had any issue with them. Now, with Rakeback, you never know. Like, they tell you what you've earned. So, of course, they could be screwing you. You wouldn't know. But from everything I've seen, they seem like all right guys. I actually got to know this uh, Colin. As I, when I say got to know, he's not a friend of mine. We don't talk about any non-rakeback matters. We uh, don't talk socially in any way. But in my interactions with him, he seems fine. I got to know him through China Maniac. And he's been at this whole rakeback staking thing for a long time, for a number of years. So he and this uh, David Yee have this Seabiscuit staking company. And prior to now, I had never heard of any kind of controversy involving them. So it's, it's not like these are guys who are constantly getting into hot water and messes and arguments. These, uh, I, I Had it not been for my personal interactions with Seabiscuit staking, I would have never even heard of them. So this is what occurred. Nick Marchington, in late May of 2019, approached Seabiscuit and said, Hey, would you guys like to back some of my action in the World Series? And they said, Yeah, sure. So they agreed to have uh, to buy 10% of him in the 5K six-handed no-limit event at 1.1 markup which means 10% markup. 
and uh, 10% of the main event at 1.2 markup, meaning 20%. The 5K No Limit, by the way, that's a pretty tough event. The, the 5K No Limit six-handed, that's a much tougher event than the main event. So if I were Seabiscuit, I wouldn't have bought him in that one. But uh, nevertheless, they did. So they sent him the uh, $550 for the 10% of the 5K, including the markup. And he played it and he lost. So that's the way staking goes. No big deal. No controversy regarding that one. Regarding the main event, they there was... A lot of question back and forth whether he was going to play. And he kept kind of going back and forth with them whether he was really going to play the main. But uh, finally, he said, yes, I'm going to play. And they sent him the $1,200 for the 10% plus markup. And... So far, everything I'm saying, both sides agree on. There's, there's a lawsuit involving this. But so far, everything I've said, both sides agree, happened. But here's where the problem occurred. Two days before Marchington was to play the main event, he got a hold of Seabiscuit and said, Hey, sorry guys, I am still going to play but I'm going to have to cancel your action because I haven't done well this World Series and I found someone willing to buy at 70% markup. You guys are paying 20%. I found someone who will buy my action at 70%, but the problem is I've already sold the action to you. So I'm going to give you back your $1,200. Sorry about that, but I haven't started playing yet, so let's just cancel the whole thing. Well, Seabiscuit was very unhappy about this. That's kind of screwed up to do. This is very non-standard. That's not the way poker backing works. If you have a backer and they buy a piece of you, then it's considered a done deal. Now, if you don't play, then, of course, you give the backer a refund. But aside from that, if you're going to play, they own the piece of you. And even if you find later you can sell it for more to somebody else, it's too late. You've already booked the piece. That's it. Imagine how pissed off you guys would have been. The ones who bought pieces of me. I didn't sell the main event, but think you know the ones you did buy. Think of how pissed you would have been if after I took your money and told you you had the piece, if I refunded it and said, well, I'm still going to play, but somebody else is buying it for more, so I'm just kicking your money back. You don't have it anymore. You'd be pissed. You'd say, what a jerk. This guy doesn't keep his word. And I would never do that to you guys, by the way, but... He did. Nick Marchington did this to see Biscuit poker staking. Now, Nick Marchington agrees that he did this. He is not denying the fact that he did ask them to cancel it. But what Marchington says is that they agreed. So what happened was... They said on uh, July 1st, I might be playing the main. I messaged a few people and can sell for 1.7. 
Oh, this is discussing the main. This is before they actually bought. They bought, but he's. Um, okay, so this is what happened. I'm trying to follow this in an article here. Marchington texted, "I might be playing the main. I mentioned a few people that can sell for 1.7." And uh, then David Yee of Seabiscuit responded. So I'm guessing that 5K is with our action then. Thanks for that. I'm guessing that the World Series of Poker main event is still booked with us then. And Nick said, yes, it's still booked with you, and I have a nice stack. Don't know with the main event. Uh, I apologize for the confusion. We'll let you know. But uh, that response at that point would show that uh, at that point he didn't really think he was back. But but anyway, getting to what happened here. He backed out of it because he, uh, someone was willing to buy it at a higher rate and said he, w- he wanted to give the 1200 back. And Seabiscuit agreed. They agreed to let him refund them, and that was that. But... Let's think about this for a second. There's a 21-year-old that you've sent $1,200 to play the main event, and then he comes to you and says, yeah, guys, uh, I didn't do very well this summer, and, and I need every penny I can get, and someone else will buy this same piece for 1700 that I sold to you for 1200 So, hey, I'm going to give you back your 1200 So if you tell him no, then he may just say, well, screw you. You don't own a piece of me anyway. And good luck getting your 1200 now. Like, you, you don't know. Or he can say, okay, well, I'll give you back your 1200 sometime. Like if, if you act uncooperative with him at that point, he's holding your 1200 You may never see it again. So when the guy says, look, you don't own a piece of me anymore, um, you may just want out of it at that point. But it's really crappy to do on the part of Marchington. To get a backer, and then to tell that backer, I'm still playing the event, but you don't own a piece of me anymore because I'm, I've, I found someone else who buy it for more. Well, the problem was getting the 1200 back to Seabiscuit. There wasn't an easy way to do it that quickly. And they had to track down someone to pick up the 1200 in person, who they trusted to do it. And it took until day two of the main event to get that 1200 back from Marchington. They did get it back, but the person picked it up from Marchington on behalf of Seabiscuit on day two of the main event. And I'll tell you why this is important later. But prior to Nick Marchington playing his first hand of the main event on day one, there was the agreement that no one had action anymore, that the deal was canceled. Seabiscuit was unhappy about this. But there was an agreement on both sides that this was canceled. Well, you can imagine how Seabiscuit felt when they were watching how Marchington ended up doing. And he made it all the way to the final table and cashed $1.75 million, which they would have had 10% of had they still had his action worth $175,000. They lost out on that because of what he did with swapping who the backer was. You can imagine they were pissed. Especially because what was done here was very non-standard. If this happened all the time in poker, if this was a standard part of staking, then 
that's just the way it falls. But uh, this was very non-standard, what Marchington did. You just don't do this. When you have a backer, you just don't do this. If you have someone who has already bought a piece of you, even if you can get a better deal, you don't screw the people who already bought the piece of you. It's tough luck. Even if you can browbeat them into agreeing to cancel it, it's a shitty thing to do. It really is. So what did Seabiscuit do? Seabiscuit was so livid that they lost out on that $175,000 that they would have made had they had that piece that they filed a lawsuit against him. Now you may wonder, what basis would they have for a lawsuit? I mean, yes, what Marching did was crappy, but what basis could they possibly have? Well, what they're claiming is that since Marchington didn't actually refund it to them until after the main event had begun, since they didn't actually receive the money until day two, that it hadn't officially been canceled and that they couldn't cancel it. He couldn't cancel it at that point when he was already doing well after day one. Now, with that argument, I think that's BS. Clearly, Seabiscuit knew that Marchington had canceled it. They agreed to the cancellation, albeit reluctantly and angrily. And they they did angrily agree to this, meaning that they they weren't saying, oh, cool, no problem, dude, okay, it's no problem. Like they, They were very unhappy about it. And from following the messages back and forth, it's clear that they didn't like this at all. But they did reluctantly agree to it. And that was clear before the main event began. Someone brought up the point, if Marchington had not cashed in the main, Seabiscuit would not be falling all over themselves to give him the, uh, the, the $1,200 of the piece that they supposedly had. But since he won all this money, now they want their piece. So a lot of people have been bashing Seabiscuit, saying that they were basically free-rolling him. That if he lost, they're going to say, well, look, hey, he canceled. Of course we don't own a piece of him. And if he won, they were going to say, hey, we owned a piece of him, and he basically uh, didn't refund in time. So now we want that 10%. So a lot of people were bashing Seabiscuit for this, and I understand that. And are they using a very flimsy claim that he didn't actually give the money back until day two? even though it was on their end because they couldn't find someone they trusted to pick it up? Yes, this is all very flimsy. This is all BS. They knew it was canceled before the main event began. But, but, it cannot be overlooked how crappy it is what Nick Marchington did to them. Because this is so not standard. There's some people saying, well, this is business. Business is business. He had to do with right for himself. He didn't cheat anybody. He backed out before the event began, and the other side agreed, and that's the way it is. The contract was done. Signed, sealed, and delivered. That's it. Well, put that all aside. Looking at it from a moral and ethical standpoint, Marchington pulled a real asshole move on Seabiscuit staking. He really did. He really screwed them over, even if legally he could get away with it. And while they haven't stated this, I do think that they reluctantly agreed to this cancellation because they were dealing with a 21-year-old who admitted that he had a bad summer. And they were probably worried if they didn't just get back the 1200 now, they may never see it again. Legally, and I don't need Eric Benzamokin here to tell me this, 
legally, I'm just about sure that Marchington's in the right. Because both sides agreed it was canceled before the main event began. So that's that. But I do not feel the slightest bit sorry for Nick Marchington that he's getting sued here. Because he did a really crappy thing. He is not a sympathetic character. And when you behave this way, when you behave unethically with a company that has agreed to stake you, even if you can legally get away with it, if that company then in turn behaves unethically and sues you with a frivolous lawsuit attempting to free-roll your win, then, well, it's kind of karma. I'm not saying that uh, they should win the lawsuit. They shouldn't. The law is the law, and Nick should win the lawsuit. If I were the judge, I would rule in favor of Nick. No question. But at the same time, I'm not even angry at Seabiscuit for suing him. And I don't feel bad for Nick that he's getting sued. Because he did a dick thing. So they're being dicks back. That's that's basically what's happening. (laughs) That's, That's really what's occurring here. He was an asshole to them. So now they're being assholes to him. Nick is not. Did they have anything in writing, uh, Jeff? They they have like text messages, and the the funny thing is, as far as I can tell, both sides agree that there that that yes, they had the agreement in text back and forth that it was canceled. They're just using this technicality that they because he didn't actually give them the money back in time that it wasn't canceled. It's a very flimsy premise. Very very flimsy. But uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't feel bad for him here with what's happening. Here's here's a. Oh, it's actually on Skype. I guess they were going back and forth. Uh, so there was a Dupe Samaritan posted. I didn't see this until now. Dupe Samaritan posted on August eighth, a Skype log here. So this is dated the third of July, two thousand nineteen. Uh, actually, twelve seventeen. I'm not sure which time zone it is. Um, it's fr- probably a different time zone. Twelve seventeen. The event would have began, but this is probably not Pacific time. He played on July third, but th- th- let's assume this is before the main started, like a few hours or whatever. Nick started with, "Hi guys, I'm playing the main event, but unfortunately your piece is canceled. I know this is bad practice." So even he, even, even he admits it's bad practice. It's not like he said, yeah, I know this is unfortunate, but this is the way it works. It's like, no, 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 it's bad practice. <laughs> he admits that this is bad practice, which it is. But I have to do what's best for myself since I lost a lot on the trip. We'll get back to you about your refund. The response, uh, hey, Nick, sucks to hear you busted the six max. That's about the 5K. We'll get back to you today regarding the main event. Hey, Nick, highly disappointed with this result. This is not normal by poker community standards. This is from David Yee. Uh, we've talked to several backers, and they said once action is booked and money is delivered, it's something that should be upheld. Players can't simply book action as a placeholder and then shop around for better rates. Exactly. I mean, that's a, uh, David's correct there. It's exactly what you don't do. And it is very non-standard. Upon recommendation from our backer group, we are going to post in the negative feedback form and let the poker community know what has happened in regards to us buying action and having action rescinded, nothing, n- nothing personal on the leash, just a warning to others about what transpired and what happened. Please give us your contact information and we'll have someone pick up the money from you sometime within the next day or so. 
1200 is what you owe us. Again, we are not okay with this, and it's very non-standard practice to do this. Please give us the contact information and confirm the number. We will email you this as well. So as you can see, very unhappy. They said they're going to post bad things about him. But yeah, you owe us 1200 uh, Next day, July 4th, Nick, all we want at this point is to take our money back and be done with this situation. Please leave your contact information here so we can arrange a swap. The action is canceled. This is from David, FC Biscuit. So we'd like our money back ASAP. We can have a horse meet you today at whatever casino you're playing at. There's no waiting for you to get home. We'd like our money back now. We don't want that $30 extra you wanted. All we want is 1200 our booked action back. And then they keep going on about uh, emails, your contact, blah, blah, blah. It's not important. Uh, and then they talk about uh, when they can get it. And this is in between day one and day two. Nick even says at one point, day, day one C is tomorrow, so won't be playing regardless. That's as far as picking up the money. So Nick's already played at this point, day one. And then eventually Nick wrote, hi, can you confirm that I paid you 1200 which, but which you were paid to forward to Seabiscuit? He said, 1200 received by C, for Seabiscuit, thanks. Thank you. And there's no dispute about that. It is, it is agreed that somewhere between day one and day two that the 1200 was paid. But they said... In that chat, all we want is our money back. And they said that the action is canceled. This came from David D. himself. So as I said, it's clear they have no legal case, Seabiscuit. It's clear they're suing him more as a big F you to him. They were bitter before he went deep in the main. Imagine how bitter they were when he saw he finished seventh and that they would have won 175000 off of him from his piece so I put it very simply he was an asshole to them so they're being assholes back and I can't feel bad for the guy you do shitty things to people and then sometimes they'll do shitty things to you and then you can't cry foul he should win this case, but the, the people hating on Seabiscuit, they have, you have to understand this was crappy what was done to them. And if they're just doing something back to him out of spite, uh, I wouldn't do this in their position. But if, if this were me, let's say Seabiscuit was my company, I would just be all over the Internet bashing this guy. That's what I would be doing. I'd be like trying to ruin his name as hard as possible. If I were them, I wouldn't be suing him. I wouldn't be filing frivolous lawsuits. But that's the way they're handling it. So I don't agree. And that's why I asked about the written agreement, if there was something about attorney's fees or anything they may have in a standard no standard agreement they have with any of their horses. No, it just seems you know, like... I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, I doubt they'd find a uh, attorney to take this on contingency. Given the facts, they're not going to waste time on it. So no. how much money are they throwing after? Yeah, that's a good question. 
that's a good question. I don't know how much they've thrown into this, but they're probably pissed enough to where they're willing to invest a little bit just to make this guy's life difficult. I, I also didn't like what Nick said back on Twitter. Uh, let's see where I can find this. I, I had it up and I lost it. But uh, he said something on Twitter I didn't like at all, where he was very unapologetic about the whole situation. And it kind of made him look like a jerk. Um, let's see if I can find this here. No, I can't find it. Uh, basically, he tweeted something about... I, I'll, I'll tell you from memory. It, w- it was something along the lines of... This should be an exciting moment for me or something like a very, very happy moment for me. And all this has been is uh, this has all just turned into a bunch of stress, something like that. You're trying to you're supposed to feel sorry for Nick Marchington that that this has ruined his wonderful experience of finishing seventh in the main event. This is supposed to be a good time in my life and you've ruined it. You've made me so unhappy. This is supposed to be all smiles and butterflies and you've just turned it into darkness. Those weren't his words, but that was the message he was trying to convey, which is so stupid. If you screw a backer like this, even something you can get away legally, if you if you do something really non-standard to screw a backer like this, and then it makes you look bad, and then you've got to deal with a lawsuit that they file against you because they're pissed and they're just trying to make life difficult for you, you can't go whine about this on social media. Woe is me. This is supposed to be a happy time, and now I've got to deal with this. No, you don't be a dick to people. Don't be greedy. Don't be unethical. And then your happy moments won't be ruined like this. I don't feel a bit sorry for this guy. I really don't. Not one bit. Even while I agree with him legally, I don't feel... The least bit sorry for him. This has a little bit of similarity to the Jamie Gold situation. Jamie Gold, if you remember, got a free seat into the main event in 2006 from Bodog, but the seat was not only his. The seat was given to him and partner Crispin Lizer, and Bodog said, well, one of you two play it because we're only giving you one seat, but it belongs to both of you. Whatever you want to do with it, do with it. So Gold convinced Lizer that he was the better of the two players. Lizer said, yeah, you probably are. And they agreed to split the action 50-50 until Gold was dominating the event and decided to uh, conveniently forget about that little agreement and uh, started ignoring Lizer, who started furiously calling him over and over and over again during the event, trying to get confirmation in some way that he really had the 50%. And finally, Jamie Gold was rattled enough to where he called him back and yelled in a voicemail, Will you stop fucking calling me? Yeah, you have your fucking 50%. Now leave me alone. And that is what I refer to as the $6 million voicemail. Because Jamie Gold won $12 million, And then Chrisman Lizer sued him when Jamie did not want to give him any of it. But that voicemail was the killer, and eventually... Jamie had to settle for an undisclosed amount, but I have to imagine it was fairly close to the $6 million. Uh, they did actually get 175000 held up by Caesars 
So Marchington has not collected his entire prize yet. They actually were able to get that amount held up while this is being figured out. They're actually not suing for the 175000 Oh, I see why. He actually won $1.525 million. He didn't win $1.75. It was, was $1.525 million. So they're suing for the 10%, which is $152,500. Okay. And the number's a little bit wrong, but it's all pretty much the same thing. One fifty-two five hundred plus legal fees are what uh, Seabiscuit is suing him for. So, we will see where this goes. It's, it's very likely that Marchington is going to end up victorious here. And I'm fine with that. As critical as I've been of him, I'm not going to root for him to lose when legally he's in the right. But I do not feel sorry for him that he's going through this or that his happy moment has been ruined. It's a life lesson for you, Nikki. Treat people honestly. Treat people ethically. And then you will find that this type of stuff will not happen to you as often. When you screw people over, that's when they have the extra motivation to make your life miserable. That's an important life lesson, actually. It's an important thing to learn. That uh, A lot of people have the ability to make your life miserable if they want. But even those that dislike you will usually lack the motivation to actually get up and do it. You have to really piss someone off to where they will actually start taking action to screw with you in some way, whether legally or otherwise. But the more you're an asshole to people, the more you're unethical in your dealings with people, the more likely it is that people are going to go out of their way to make your life hell. And that is what has happened here. Speaking of things that are unethical, oh, what is what is that sound I keep hearing? I'm, I'm sorry, I'll mute it. Um, what is it? Well, I, I, well, I, hold on, hold Bovada, on. Bovada. I, I, I don't recognize that sound of Bovada. What is that? It's like, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the dong when it's my turn to ask. Okay, I, I'm glad I have sound effects off. That, that would drive me crazy, that dong. So what? Ha- so did he end up? Did he just sell ten percent for the seventeen hundred, or he ended up selling more since he was running so bad? I'm know? not sure. I wondered that too. I don't know how much he sold. All, all I know is that the ten percent he sold to them, he wanted to resell to somebody else and canceled it. Right, but he could have. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah, he could have just said, "I'll sell ten percent to you and ten percent to them." Yeah, I, th- I think uh, whatever it is, I, I think he wanted every penny sold at the highest rate possible. So. <laughs> He probably whatever he wanted to sell, he he probably wanted that person at the one point seven to get it all. Yeah, I mean that is so dumb though, being so young, and you have people that are legit backing people backing you. Now he's just ruined that and probably ruined it with everybody else. Right, and so like and and so like 
maybe he can still get people to back him because he just finished seventh at the main. But but had that not happened, his name would have been ruined. They would have put the word out there what he did, and people would not have backed, not wanted to back him. So like this, this Sea Biscuit staking has been around for so many years, and prior to this, hadn't been in any controversy. So as you said, it's a legitimate backing company, and and they they are backing him, and he's only twenty one, and I mean it's unfortunate for him prior to the main that he didn't have a good summer, but that's part of poker. And you've got to honor your agreements and you don't burn bridges. So yeah, is, is this the worst thing that someone's done in poker? No, obviously not, but it was just kind of an asshole thing to do. And then when people do asshole things and there's an asshole response back to them, it's hard to feel sorry for them. That's just the way I see it. Okay. So I want to talk about Bovada and a post I read on 2 Plus 2, which I think is worth talking about. I think you'll be interested in Trader Risky since you play on Bovada. At least in the, you mostly play tournament. Do you play much Absolutely. cash there? Absolutely. Do you play tur- cash? Nah, or? I just play tournaments. Yeah, okay. I, see, I'm the opposite. I, I, I play there, but just cash. So this is an interesting story. A guy made a fake account on 2 Plus 2, and he admitted it was a fake account. He said, I'm a longtime poster who created this account for anonymity. Several weeks back in this thread, that was the just official or unofficial Bovada discussion thread. There was some discussion about the possibility of a rogue employee at Ignition, that is Ignition or Bovada, whatever, and or other strange stuff. Here's my story. For privacy, I'm going to say, quote, about, instead of using exact dates or amounts, which you're going to hear how stupid this is as we we read this on. Uh, He keeps putting about in quotes. About a little over two weeks ago, I tried to log into my Ignition account, and a pop-up said my account was disabled. I decided to check my email before calling support. I had an email saying that there was a chargeback on my account for about $500 from about March. I thought that was strange and maybe impossible to charge something back that late after the fact. I Googled to find out how late a chargeback can occur, and Google said 120 days is the standard longest length. So somehow, right as my deposit was from months ago was nearing the end of being able to do a chargeback, someone of ignition or whatever processor they used is claiming that there's a chargeback. I checked my card, and my card company said no chargeback occurred, and I can clearly see every transaction on my card. Now, now let's stop here. First of all, there's a little problem here. He's trying to do this anonymously, but and I guess he's changing the dates or it's quote about two weeks ago and maybe it was about three weeks ago and it was about 500 when maybe it was 700 but whatever he thinks by changing these small details that somehow if Bovada reads this they won't know who he is <laughs> I mean I, I have to imagine there aren't that many like this and they'll be able to tell who he is and if they can who cares in fact it would be to his advantage if they see that he is making this public but even if he's trying to remain anonymous so they don't see this and link it to him, this is such a specific story that they'll link it to him anyway. So it's very weird. But let's, let's, ignoring that, let's go on. I, I believe the story, by the way. As I'm reading this, don't try to find where the guy seems like he's lying because I believe him. I'm just saying it's weird how he, he he's changing a few small details and thinks that's going to keep him anonymous in the eyes of Ignition when they read this. I called Ignition Support, and they say I can do one of two things. I can make another charge to them of about 500 right now, 
or I can wait ten, five to ten business days for the chargeback money to show on my card and then send Ignition the money. There is no way in hell I was sending them first. I asked the Ignition lady on the phone in great detail and specifics. Let me get this straight. You're going to send me money and then you want me to send it to you? She said yes. So uh, let, let's stop here. So what he's saying happened, if he didn't follow this whole thing, is that from a credit card deposit from back in March 2019, here in August, he got an email from them saying that this deposit he made in March for, let's say, 500 that he charged it back. And for that reason, he stiffed them. And now he has to send them the 500 and if he doesn't, his account is permanently closed. And the problem on his end is that he didn't charge anything back, and he even checked with his bank and saw that nothing was charged back. So here there was no charge back, and they're saying, hey, you did a charge back, send us another 500 or your account is frozen. So it's crappy. I mean, if I got that, I'd be pissed too. So what's going on here? And the option they gave him was you can either send us the 500 now or you can wait 5 to 10 business days and keep your account closed in the meantime and and then see wait till the chargeback actually shows up on your card and you get the money back from your bank and then send us the 500. So he goes on to write, I have plenty of places to play online and live, so having my poker account disabled and waiting 5 to 10 business days for them to send the money to me from a phantom chargeback was no big deal. But I'm sure there are lots of naive, desperate, or impatient gamblers that would have sent the money in first to get their account opened back up immediately. But I waited, and after 10 business days, there was no money sent to my card. Of course, there was not going to be any money sent to my card. There was no damn chargeback. And after about 10 business days, I sent the records from my card to Ignition showing there was no chargeback, and neither was there any money sent to me as part of a chargeback. They immediately opened my account back up. But, and here's the amazing kicker, I didn't get an apology email. I got an email saying that since I was a long-standing player, and since my account has always been in good standing, they are forgiving the about $500, but next time I will be held responsible for any chargebacks. What the hell? There is no chargeback. Either an Ignition employee or an Ignition processor is doing some shady stuff. When PokerStars was still in the gray market around Black Friday, the infamous Daniel Svetkov and his company, Intabil, and that other processor selling source stole millions of dollars from PokerStars. Now, every time I hear about a player processing problem, I figure at least a few of Ignition's processors are stealing from them. So, my account is open. The fake chargeback was for about 500 They restored the amount that was in my account when it was disabled. They didn't try to steal it or claim that it was part of the fake chargeback. I immediately withdrew and was paid. But now there's a threat over my account the next time I'm on the hook for anything wrong with my account. In the last 120 days, I have one deposit with a card, and I'm not going to risk another phantom chargeback is going to be claimed. After the 120 mark passes on that one deposit, I don't know if I will go back to playing Ignition. Also, I don't know the business structure at Bovada and whether they would try to claw back an Ignition claim, so I'm not going to play Bovada either. That's because they're basically the same site but pretend to be different owners. But they have the same player pool and same games. But if I ever did play again, I would need to make a deposit since I withdrew everything. I will never deposit with a card again or anything that chargeback claims can be made. I will instead use something like Bitcoin. Be careful out there. Okay, so this is all good advice. Uh, don't use credit cards in Bovada. And I'll get, I'll, for this reason and many others, I'll get to why shortly. But what happened here? Was it some rogue employee trying to screw him? No. It was the processor. Here's what really happened. And, and I can tell you this without knowing any inside information. I can tell you exactly what happened. 
what happened here is the payment processor, which is probably very shady, shady and probably is in uh, a country like China, is trying to steal. So what they've done is they've contacted Ignition and said, hey, this guy here, he charged back one of his deposits for $500. So we're not paying you this 500 Because the, the payment processor, they owe Bovada whatever they processed minus whatever their fee is. So they say, hey, we're going to send you what we owe this month, but we're deducting 500 because this guy from back in March just charged back to us. So we're deducting that 500 And they did. So what does Bovada or what Ignition do? What do they do is they go to the player and say, hey, you, you, you stiffed us out of the 500 The processor just told us, so we need to collect it back from you. And then the player says, what the hell? I never charged back anything. Well, the problem here is that Ignition has no way to see who is right. They don't have visibility into any of this. They cannot look at the processor's records. They cannot see the chargeback. They just have to take the processor's word for it. But they're also not stupid over there. They're very aware that these processors screw them all the time. They're very aware these processors are shady. They're very aware that these processors could very easily be lying. But the problem is that Bovada needs the processors more than the processors need Bovada. There's many shady things to process payments for, but there are not that many processors out there to do it. So Bovada needs the processors to get money on and off that site. Without these processors, Bovada and Ignition would cease to exist. So they know they're getting stolen from, but as long as the stealing happens at an acceptable level to them, to where it's not happening to everybody, if it's just kind of certain people here and there are getting stolen from, or Bovada here and there itself is getting stolen from, as long as the theft and trouble is minimal or moderate, they're willing to tolerate it. The problem is that there's also shady players out there who really do charge back when they lose. So how do they know who to believe? So what they do is they just decide to accuse the player first and then wait to see his response. So they come at the player very aggressively. Ah, oh, you charge back. You better give us the money. We disable your account. You better pay us back. Figuring that the guilty player will... At maybe after putting up a first weak protest, we'll eventually say, oh, okay, okay, here's your 500 if he really did it. And if he didn't really do it, we'll keep protesting and they'll realize that uh, it was the processor screwing them and then they'll open the account again and just eat the 500, which, which is what happened here. Ignition just ate the 500. They didn't get it back from the processor. So what they do is the burden of the proof is on the player. They tell the player, okay, you didn't do it. Send us your bank statements and show us that there was no chargeback. And if you can't do that, then your account remains closed because they just don't know. They don't know if he charged back or if the processor is screwing them. Now, in a case like him, when he's been around for many years and never done this before and probably is a winning player, the likely culprit is the processor because a player like this guy is not that likely to stiff them on a single $500 deposit. Just not likely to happen. Not impossible. The guy could be hitting hard times or whatever, but it's more likely the processor's doing it. But they just don't know and they have no visibility. So what Bovada likes to do is put the burden on the player 
to prove that he's innocent, and they don't even pretend like they know that they that the processors frequently do crap like this. How do I know this? Because I've been through it. Not this exact story, but I've had issues with Bovada processors related to credit cards. Here's some things that Bovada processors do. On the cash out, they will skim from the cash out when it involves foreign currency. Why does it involve foreign currency? Well, because these are often foreign companies. So when sending the money to you in U.S. dollars, what they do is they send it to you in the equivalent amount in their currency. And then you receive it as U.S. dollars after your bank takes out uh, uh, sometimes some fee and sometimes fr- uh, just the floating exchange rate. You, don't, you just don't get the exact rate. You get something worse than the exact rate. And that's very standard. Well, because you don't get the exact rate... The way they skim is they just send you less. They just take whatever the current exchange rate is and then just cut some money off and then send it to you and figure you're never going to know the difference because you're losing some anyway on the exchange rate. So once you're losing some on the exchange rate, let's, let's say it's a $9,500 cash out and you're losing 200 on the exchange rate, they figure, well, hey, if, if, you, if you're going to lose approximately 200 on the exchange rate, you won't notice if you lose 250 on the exchange rate. If you, if you get 9250 instead of 9500 to the player who's used to that sort of thing happening, it's it, to them, 9,300, 9,250, it's all pretty much the same thing. They'll just chalk it up to the exchange rate. Like the, It's very difficult for the player to look into this carefully and see that there is money skim. They just assume it's the exchange rate and their bank's fees and stuff like that. Now, I look into it carefully. I, I actually look at how much of the foreign currency was sent, and then I look up what the exchange rate was on that day it was sent, and I figure out if it was skimmed. And I've figured out before that, yes, they've skimmed. And it's very hard for them to get Bovada to make it right because, again, they have no visibility into it. They can't see what was sent. They tell the processor to send something, and the processor said, okay, it's sent. But they have no visibility. They don't get any receipt. They don't get anything that really proves it was sent or how it was sent. The processor just tells them it was sent. And only when the player complains about something does Bovada have any visibility into it, and only when the player sends things to them. And the problem is... Again, Bovada always takes the processor's side initially, not because they believe the processor, but just because they they don't want to deal with it. They'd rather the player believe it was on their end, or they just don't understand something. So when I complained about this, I said, oh, no, no, you just don't understand. Your bank, they charge you you fees. You don't get the full exchange rate. I go, no, no, I know all that. And I explained to them very, very carefully how I know I got screwed. And I go, my bank doesn't charge these fees, and my bank does have an exchange rate that isn't the exact amount, but I already accounted for that. I'm taking the amount of the currency they sent to me and going back to the day they sent it, and they didn't send me 9500 And so that by itself is a smoking gun proof. And they go, no, but your bank has fees, and it, it goes round and round and round, and they pretend not to understand. So that was on, on withdrawals. On deposits... They basically do the same thing, but the other way. When you deposit on Bovada through a credit card, they charge a 5.9% fee, which is bad enough. So like a $500 deposit, the fee would be $29.50 for the total of uh, $529.50. In August 2017, I made such a deposit, but instead of getting charged $529.50 on my credit card, I was charged $529.50. 
569.13 for a difference of about $40. Why the difference? Well, just because the payment processor decided to skim. They just tacked on 40 extra dollars, figuring that I wouldn't notice. Just I'd figure, oh, well, these are fees. These are bank fees. These are foreign exchange fees. Because most credit cards do have a foreign transaction fee. So they figured after all the different fees, I won't notice the difference. I'm just some degenerate who deposited 500 and knows that more than that will show up my credit card. 529, 569, hey, it's all the same thing, right? So they just pocket the extra 40. They just charge an extra 40. In fact, it even says your credit card is going to be charged 529.50. I say yes, and then I get a charge for 569.13. It's just wrong. It's just clearly stealing. Again, not Bovada doing it. It's their processor doing it. But when I bring it to Bovada, they say, no, 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 it's your bank charging fees. That's always what they like to say. And you have to beat them over the head over and over and over and over to get them to make it right. In one case, in this particular case I'm talking about, they would not make it right until I threatened them with this radio show. I I directed them to the Poker Fraudler's Forum and radio show, and they actually put me on hold while they went to go investigate whether this forum and radio show really exist. (laughs) And after about 10 minutes on hold, after they examined the site and saw that I had a voice that uh, could get the word out about this type of crap, they came back and said, okay, we'll make a one-time exception and give you back the difference. It was actually two deposits, so it was about $80 worth. It was just the principle of the matter. But they said, don't ever use a credit card again, because if this happens to you again, we're not going to make it right. So, so uh, we suggest you use Bitcoin in the future. And that's what I've been doing. But boy, to get that $80 out of them was like pulling teeth. I mean, it was really, really difficult, and they just were flat out refusing to do it until I threatened to, I threatened two things. I threatened to expose the thing big time on this show and on my forum. And also I threatened to start ruining their processors. <laughs> I threatened that I was going to just like, I, I told them like I knew all their processors and I'm like, you know, I don't want to mess around with your business, but if you're just going to straight out steal from me, then I can get all these shut down real fast. Like you don't know how much I know about this industry. I can, I could ruin everything. I don't want to, but if you're going to steal from me, then I'm going to get real vindictive real fast. Because you guys know I'm in the right, and you just won't give it because you feel you don't have to. So (laughs) they actually thought about it and backed down and said, okay, we're giving you back the $80 this one time, only after they checked the site really existed. We're giving you back this one time, and if this happens again, you know what you're getting into, and you're not getting it back. We suggest you use Bitcoin in the future. So that's what I've done, and it's been okay since then. Also, in 2018, from that same credit card, I saw a $19 transaction on that card, a card that I had only ever used to deposit to Bovada. Interesting, huh? I got a $19 and change charge on there over a year later. It was a test charge, I guess, to see if they could uh, successfully charge something on my card and have me not notice. Presumably they were going to do more charges if I didn't notice, but I noticed right away and had the account shut down and the number changed. And that was that. 
didn't even bother to call Bovada because what are they going to do? They know their processors are shady. I wouldn't be telling them anything new. But it was definitely from them. In fact, it was another company in China that did it. But that was the only usage of that card ever was to deposit to Bovada. By the way, that $40 extra charge on the deposit, the, the same thing was done to a Bet Online credit card deposit around the same time in 2017. Bet Online, though, to their credit, when I called and told them about it, they said, just send us a screenshot and we'll just give you the 40 back. Very quick with them. So credit to them for not trying to refuse it or blame it on fees. They right away said, okay, just you know, send us proof and we'll send you the 40. And that's what I did and they sent me the 40. Sense meaning they added it to my account on BetOnline. But yeah, just don't use credit cards. There's too many chances this will happen. There's so many stories of, of overcharging and and a lot of times it's hard to tell if you're being overcharged. I was able to tell because I really looked into it. But try to avoid anything involving credit card deposits or wire transfer withdrawals. Don't do any of that stuff because there's many opportunities to screw you and they will often screw you by hiding behind the whole foreign exchange thing, assuming most people will be confused by it and not even understand they're being stolen from. In the case of this guy we're talking about right now, they just invented a phony chargeback, which is another danger, something I hadn't even thought of before, but that's apparently happening now too. But Bovada, they basically blame you first and say, prove you're innocent. Bovada isn't gaining from this. In fact, when they denied my refund of the $80 in 2017, their final statement as to why they were denying me was, we didn't make any money off this. Bovada didn't make a penny off this whole thing. Even if you're right, we didn't make anything. And I said, I believe you. I believe they didn't make anything. I, b- I believe you guys are not behind it and you didn't benefit from it. But still, your processor who is acting on your behalf stole from me, so you need to make it right. So yeah, use Bitcoin. And if you don't know how, learn. Ask someone who knows. There's there's a lot of people who can help you. In fact, you don't even have to know someone. You can call up support and they will walk you through it. But that's really what you should be using these days to deposit online and withdraw, withdraw from gambling sites online is Bitcoin. Don't screw with credit cards anymore. Too many risks. Now, I want to bring up one other thing unrelated, but about using Bitcoin for these sites. You need to be careful never to deposit or withdraw directly to or from your legalized and regulated U.S. Bitcoin wallet, such as Coinbase. Do not ever use Coinbase to deposit to a gambling site or withdraw from a gambling site. Why? Because this is against the terms of service of Coinbase, and they will shut you down. They won't steal your money. They'll, they'll let you get all your money and all your Bitcoin, but they'll say, we don't want to do business with you. Here's your money. Here's your Bitcoin. Scram. That, that's what they're going to do, and you'll be closed permanently. 
So what you need to do to avoid this is use a middleman wallet, and the one I would recommend at the moment is blockchain.info. They've been around for many years. They aren't screwing anyone, at least not so far. Blockchain.info. Use them as a middleman wallet. It's free to create an account. So you should send from Coinbase to blockchain, then blockchain to the site, and when you withdraw, it's reversed. The site to blockchain, blockchain to Coinbase. And then you can cash out. But never do it directly with a gambling site. Or otherwise, your Coinbase may get shut down. And this applies to not just Coinbase, but all the other ones too. So always have a middleman wallet in there that does not have a terms of service against gambling sites. One like blockchain, where you can create an account for free. That's something to keep in mind when you use Bitcoin on these sites. Very important. Don't. Don't just say, oh, just being paranoid, like, like, seriously. You don't want to have your Coinbase shut down. But use Bitcoin. The big strength of Bitcoin is there's no such thing as a chargeback. And there's no foreign exchange fee, none of that crap. It's also a lot faster. Bitcoin withdrawals are deposited, or or, or they're processed much faster. Okay, so moving on. Speaking of Bitcoin, there is something you should know if you are playing, if you're using Bitcoin to play online poker and you are winning. Or have one. The IRS has been sending out warning letters to people who have been involved in cryptocurrency, who've been withdrawing it or trading it in some way or receiving it in some way, that they are not properly declaring their income from cryptocurrency and they could be getting in trouble. While your Bitcoin transactions are probably not being monitored by the government, though there is a way to track them. It's not as anonymous as you think, Bitcoin. But while your individual transactions are not likely being monitored in any way by the U.S. government, what is being monitored, for sure, are the wallets like Coinbase the legalized, regulated wallets that you've been using to convert your Bitcoin into real cash and vice versa. And if you have been showing a profit, if more money has been coming out of those sites into your bank account than going in, then the IRS knows that you have profited or likely profited and they expect you to pay taxes on it, whether or not how you got the Bitcoin was legal or not. The IRS position is that any income you have is taxable, legal or illegal. So if you make money in some way online and it's through cryptocurrency, even if it's gambling where you win the cryptocurrency, 
somehow you end up with more cryptocurrency than you started and you convert it to real money, then you have made money. And if you do not declare this as income properly, then you are committing tax fraud, according to the IRS. And they have been sending out warning letters about this. Now, if you haven't gotten a warning letter, then for the moment, you're probably in okay shape. But you need to be aware that Coinbase and the others like Coinbase are opening their books up to the IRS. So everything you do on those sites, the IRS has access to, and they're crunching those numbers, and they are now warning people, and they may come after people soon. The IRS has been sending out letters to certain people telling them that they reported the wrong amount of income from their crypto transactions. One letter, for example, that was shared with Coindesk.com said that the taxpayer owed about $4,000 for the tax year ending December 31st, 2017. And that letter was dated July 29th, 2019. So it was a recent letter. The IRS has been sending these notices to some customers of Coinbase, not most of them, but some, and telling them that they might owe more money for revenue they didn't previously report. This is something that's been increasing in recent months. More and more of these letters have been seen. And I guarantee if the IRS has determined that you probably owe them money, they're going to expect you send it to them. They're going to tell you, you owe us this money and send it to us. And unless you can show them that you don't, they're going to expect it. At the moment, they are not going after people from a criminal fraud standpoint. They're not coming after people saying, hey, you, you purposely defrauded us. We're coming after you and trying to put you in jail. They're, they're not doing that to anyone. But what they are doing is saying, hey, you didn't report enough in such and such tax year, and you owe us more money. Other letters are saying, basically, watch out. We think you're misreporting, and you better be doing it correctly. There's also some suspicion that some of these letters are are using erroneous values. That the IRS is not really looking at what people made, but just in what they cashed out. So someone cashes out 15000 from Coinbase, and they get a letter from the IRS saying, hey, you owe us taxes on $15,000 worth of income, and yet if that person originally bought, let's say, fourteen or, or let's say 16000 worth of Bitcoin and cash out 15000 they actually haven't made any money. They've actually lost and thus should not own any, owe any taxes. But some people are getting these letters telling them that they owe for such and such profits even when those profits either didn't exist or are less than what the IRS is claiming. Some people think that the IRS may not understand 
fully that these crypto withdrawals are don't represent full profit. And some people think that they do understand it and just think people will be dumb enough to pay it anyway. Either way, these letters are going out. Not to everybody, but to some. The IRS is also supposedly going to issue a new guidance memo on how to pay taxes and what taxes you're expected to pay on crypto profits. If you get one of these letters, don't panic. Just figure out whether you really owe taxes on this money, whether you really did make the money they're claiming and that you didn't report it. And if they're right, then pay it. If they're wrong, then send them a letter back disputing it. I recently got a letter from the IRS, not related to this, but claiming that I owed $600 to them from a previous tax year. It was erroneous. It was just a a complete error on their end. I won't bother to go into what it was. But they just messed something up and the computer spit out I owed $600. I got this scary letter, you owe $600, send it immediately. And then I, I simply called them up. You can actually call up the IRS and speak to an employee there. And the, the, the people you speak to on the phone, are, uh, they're actually surprisingly knowledgeable. You speak to an accountant at the IRS, call up their number. Sometimes it's a long hold, but you'll get them on the phone. And I spoke to the person, and they did some research, and they came back and said, yeah, you're 100% right. And she put me on hold again. Whole phone call took about an hour, but when the hour was up, they told me I, I was... Uh, the $600 I owed was changed to zero, and then they sent me a letter verifying that, that it was changed to zero. So just because they say you owe something, you, you can challenge it, and you should challenge it if they're wrong. Don't be afraid to challenge it. They're also not interested in how you made the money. Don't don't panic. Oh, my God, they know I made money uh, online gambling. This isn't legal here. I better just pay. No, they don't care. First of all, you're not breaking any laws by online gambling, but regardless of how you th- made the money, All you've got to show them is that you didn't make as much as they say you made. And then you won't owe the taxes they say you owe. You've just got to show them that they're incorrect. And then they will decide if your explanation is something they agree with. If you get one of these forms, it doesn't really mean you're in trouble. It just means that they're expecting more money from you. And then you need to figure out if they're correct or incorrect, and then go from there. Just know that everything you do through Coinbase and similar sites like that are being reported. Now, those middleman sites I just talked about, like blockchain, they do not report to the IRS. They're not even American-based. But any of these American-based sites where you end up exchanging cryptocurrency for real money, They report to the IRS. The IRS has access to their records. So don't think that you can dodge taxes on those because the IRS will probably find out. Now you may say, well, what uh, what if I have a blockchain account 
and I'm playing at Commerce, and some guy at Commerce says, hey, I've got uh, $2,000 cash with me here. Can you send me $2,000 worth of Bitcoin right now through your blockchain account? And he hands you the 2K cash, and you, you ship him the 2K from your blockchain account. Uh, will the IRS find out about that? Answer, no, they won't. I'm talking about here the regulated U.S.-based cryptocurrency exchanges. They are the ones who have opened up their records to the IRS. And it's very easy for the IRS to see what you're doing through those sites. So this is happening, and it's increasingly happening. The IRS hasn't even completely figured out what to do about cryptocurrency gains from things such as like hard forks. A hard fork is when a cryptocurrency splits into two cryptocurrencies, and then you have both. So if that happens, what do you owe in taxes from that if suddenly you have more in cryptocurrency because of this hard fork. These things haven't really been explored yet, and they're still kind of figuring it out. They're feeling all this out from a tax standpoint as it goes along. Just know that the IRS is now looking to collect taxes on cryptocurrency revenue, at least the revenue they can see. Seven seven five fraud fifty five is the number. Seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. That's how you reach the show. Moving on to the next topic, Trader Risk, are you still with us here? Wonder if he had his tea yet. No, I am actually. I was, I was just about to heat up the water, right? I, mean, I said, I know, Jeff, while well, I got my hands full, he's going to say, am I still here? So I, I always do. I, I have a sixth sense for this. I have a sixth sense when Trader Ruski is a, away from the phone to where he can't immediately unmute it and respond back. And the, I, I ask that just to create the uncomfortable moment for the listener where they have to sit there for like 10 seconds while I wait for you to answer and then where I erroneously conclude that you're gone and then you, as soon as I say, oh, he's gone, that's when you pop in. It's, it's, it's without fail. You're watching. <laughs> yeah. I, I I should be good for another hour or so. Okay, well, this show may not be going another hour. It's, it's going to be a shorter show, I think. But we'll see. We never know with the show. A home game. Actually, I think we have more than an hour. We have, we have some topics left. A home game near Cherokee, North Carolina, has had a scandal involving marked cards and uh, marked cards in a way that I haven't really seen before, but one that you should know about where the backs of cards are pre-marked to indicate the suits of the cards. Cherokee, North Carolina is near Harris Cherokee. In fact, there's two Harris Cherokees in North Carolina and these are Caesars' own properties. World Series of Poker circuit events frequently go in these locations. This is near the Great Smoky Mountains in Asheville, North Carolina, but if you're not into all that type of stuff, there's not a lot to do in those areas. 
there are dealers that come to Cherokee to deal the World Series of Poker Circuit, and then once they're done dealing, they're not allowed to play there while the World Series is in town. They're, they actually have to agree they're not going to play at Cherokee during the the time that the tournament's going that they're dealing for. So they can't just get off their shift and start playing cash. They just aren't allowed to play there. So if, if they want to do something and the, the, th- the thing they want to do is poker, what they have to do at that point is find some underground game. So there is a fairly big home stakes ga- home game that was near Cherokee and that a lot of dealers were there for the reason I stated, because they couldn't play poker otherwise while the circuit events were going on. Well, a dealer named Ethan Briggs posted on Facebook that he discovered that there were marked cards in these games. And keep in mind, he said that there were several people at the table who had more than 5K on the table. I'm not sure what the blinds were in this game. But there was that much on the table to where you, you can... Oh, it was 5-5, five, five, I see. It was mentioned later here. So he figured out that the people who were linked to this marked deck of cards together won about $15,000 in about 8 hours of play at 5-5 five, five, no limit. This wasn't a single person, but the the people that were playing there using these marked cards who knew they were marked and knew how to read them were the big winners winning about 15k combined at 5-5 in 8 hours which is pretty big there was a lot of action in the games a lot of people were deep and by seeing the suits of people's cards then it's almost like being a super user. Not quite, but it, it's pretty good. Where you can tell if someone's on a flush draw or if they made a flush, it gives you a lot of information. Or let's say there's a, a four flush on the board, you know the person doesn't have that flush at all. You can run them off the hand even if you have nothing yourself. Or you have, uh, so, or, or you you can snap off big bluffs. Let's, uh, let's say you have the three card, the, the three high one card flush. Well, that's a very weak hand, obviously. But let's say someone puts out a big bet on the river, and you can see that they don't hold, uh, they don't hold that suit at all. Then you know your hand is probably good, especially if the board's not paired. You know it's good for sure. And then you you call and snap them off, and they can't believe it. So if you can see the suits of people's cards, then you can know a lot. In addition, apparently they also had marks for kings and aces. So they could see that in their hand. Now, we have a caller here. I think this is uh, A. Hoosier A. who brought this to our attention in the first place. Is this you? Yeah, hey. How's it going, bro? Yeah, hi. So uh, hey, just, what, what did you want to say about this? Listen, I, know, I know you brought us this story in the first place, so go ahead. Yeah, just uh, listening to the show. So not only could he tell the suits, but he later went on in a video to explain that you can actually tell the rank of the cards. They're marked, uh, like the Kings are marked in one spot and then the Queens are marked a little further down and kind of, uh, 
figure eight motion down the side of the deck. Oh, okay, um, okay. So that's even that's it is so, like being a super user then. <laughs> you can pretty much see almost yeah, everything. You, yeah, as long as you knew the 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 markings and they were, you know, clearly visible if they weren't uh, protecting the top of their cards, um, then a person that knew the deck could tell exactly what two cards suit and everything that you could have. Yeah, so you can tell from that how the person would have crushed there or the, or the people who did this were could have crushed. Now, this this Ethan who called it out actually took pictures of this and you can see it on the Scamp Scandals and Shadiness forum on a thread that A Hoosier A who's on the phone with us started called WSOP Circuit Dealer Allegedly Catches Cheaters Marked Cards at Big Stakes Home Game near Cherokee. You can see pictures. Oh, sorry, we going to say? Yeah, so the the uh the people that were involved in the scandal at least uh one of them was actually uh, so Ethan Briggs is a WSOP circuit dealer, and it was his roommates who I believe were also circuit dealers that actually had the marked deck of cards. Right, right. I was about to mention that. That, that. So that's how he got the cards. Is he actually got one of the two decks and took pictures of them to show on the backs of the decks, which kind of just look like traditional cards, where the the back of the deck with some kind of like design kind of almost look like an Asian type design on the back but it's a very typical just busy looking back of a card that it's so busy that unless you're really looking for these small variations you're they're all going to look the same to you you'd have to really know this was happening or suspect something was happening to figure out that these small variations in the backs of the cards were now, it wasn't as subtle as, like, the, the thing that uh, Phil Ivey and his partner did when playing Baccarat, and to, where they won all that money and then got sued. That was a little different. That was from a manufacturing defect, and that took, like, a really, really trained eye and a lot of practice. These were markings that if that didn't take very much practice. It, once you know they're there and get used to looking at them, you you can see it pretty quickly. And he showed... The, the deck, he had a lot of different pictures where he'd circle the part that was different and how the difference represents each suit. If it looks like this, it's clubs. If it looks like this, it's spades. If it looks like this, it's hearts. It looks like this, it's diamonds. And then as uh, Ahujere mentioned that also the rank of the card was uh, somewhat it was based on where the difference occurred on the card. And you, you could kind of figure it out from there. So with all this information they could know your hand or very close to your hand and of course then play you like a fiddle and you, you everything you try to do won't work against them and you go how are they reading my soul like this it's because they've marked the cards and unlike most marked card situations which are done with standard decks of cards where the person marking them then does something to the cards you're either putting some kind of smudge on them or some dirt on them or they or in some more advanced cases where they're wearing special sunglasses after where they can only see certain marks that you have to be wearing the sunglasses to see these are the cards themselves that are pre-marked that it's believed these can be bought online so someone bought these shady cards online for cheating they're they're made for cheating and then brought them to this home game and then cleaned up there. Uh, now, Ahujere, did this guy mention the names of these culprits, or he didn't? 
Well, so he, he actually didn't. Um, what he did is I guess he, uh, from what I had read online, is he actually confronted them and uh, gave them the option to pay back the money that they scammed from people. And with them paying the money back, he gave them basically a, a second chance without outing them. Ah, I see. Well, and that's a tough spot. Like, you guys can say, oh, well, if, if this happened to me, I would out them. Screw the money. Well, if, if you, especially if you can't afford to lose the money, if, if you have to make the agreement to, to get the money, like, give us the money back and I'll uh, not not reveal who you are, then you, you may have to do that. It's unfortunate. But, uh, of course, the first priority in these types of cases is to get your money back. And it is good, at least, that he put out the scam and showed the cards so everybody could understand what this was and look out for it. Now, if you play in a home game, or by a home game I don't necessarily mean on someone's dinner table or on some fold-out table they, they bring out from the garage, I mean any game that's not running in a licensed and regulated casino, especially one that's more informal. If it's a home game that's been running for many years and is well-respected, it's probably safe. Not certainly, but it's less likely this is going to happen because in that case, it's been running successfully for a long time, probably making a lot of money. They probably don't want to screw around with things like this and ruin their reputation. But at any kind of one-off home game especially that you join, you have to be aware that there will be scummy people like this who will use decks like this or who will do one of many things to screw you. And the only way to stop this is to be very particular about what decks are being used. And it's, it's, it's very hard to even inspect. Like there, there should be some sort of agreement where the cards come from. Now, if you're playing some low-stakes home game just for fun, they wouldn't worry about this. Or if you know all the people involved and know they'd never do this, then that's fine, too. I'm not saying if you go to your buddy's house with four other buddies that you have to treat them like they're criminals and say, okay, you know, I better supervise us buying this deck. Like There you don't have to do it, obviously. But I'm talking about with strangers, especially if you're playing for decent money, you need to know where the decks are coming from and preferably see them being opened and things like that. And if you can't, which I know is often not practical, then you have to understand that this type of stuff is out there and you may get screwed. And if you start noticing that some guy is reading your soul every time, that there's a good chance you're being cheated. And you should just leave at that point. If you can't, if you can't prove you're being cheated, then at least leave and, and prevent the damage from being further. Because there, there's so many different ways people can cheat if it's an unregulated game and they're providing the cards. There's so many different things they can do to see what you have. And that's what was happening here. Uh, even if it's simple as just saying, hey, let's let's go buy a deck of cards in the casino gift shop. Something, like, something where you're getting something new and if it's not ever in their possession outside of your view, then it's pretty safe. Now, you're not safe from things like the, them marking it with substances while they're playing that they 
can then see or wearing some kind of special glasses to see. And that's another thing to watch out for. Someone's got some kind of weird-looking glasses on. They might be marking the cards that way and using those glasses to see the marks that are invisible to everybody else. Just always be aware at these unregulated games that it really is the wild, wild west and anything can happen. So if you'd like to see these cards, you can go to that thread in these scam scandals and shadiness form, and you'll see the differences are subtle enough to where there's no way this would jump out at you if you were playing this game. Like, if I played in this game, I, w- I would totally uh, not catch it. And, you know, another thing, Gruff, that people can do to, you know, if they are uh, worried about that is always, you know, whenever they're in a hand, just stack their cards on top of each other instead of putting them side by side to where they can only read the top card if uh, if they are marked or, you know, hold their cards in a way where the top of the deck isn't, super visible. Yeah, or you could also even put chips on top of the cards to kind of block them so it's harder to see as much of them. That that is something you can do. Or or if you have a big card protector, you can you can you can bring a big card protector there and uh it can't be huge and take up a lot of the table, but you you could bring a a, a larger than average card protector and, and put them on top of the cards and make it harder for people to see too. So these are that's you might- you might need to bring a full shampoo bottle. Yeah, that's of, that's uh, right. Shoulders. That's true. In fact, I I did the very first time I, I when I brought it, <laughs> I did it hastily. I I couldn't go buy one of those small travel size ones. I actually did play with a full body of bottle of Head and Shoulders. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you got some pretty good looks. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you got you got to watch out of these things. You've got to watch out. There's always people out to cheat you in these games, and if ever it just seems that something isn't right, if it ever just seems that someone is always making the right move against you, it's probably because something isn't right. It's not It's not just because you're being outplayed. Sometimes you are being outplayed, but a lot of times in these type of games, you've got to be careful or you lose your money and then it's a very hard thing to prove after the fact. Fortunately, this guy got a hold of the cards because these were his roommates, so he had access to them. He watched. He probably waited until they weren't watching and then grabbed them and, and, and analyzed them carefully. And was like, oh, my God, I was screwed here. So did, did he say how he got the cards aside from them being his roommates? Did he mention, like, like how he grabbed it from them or it just? Yeah, so a- after the game when they went to bed, uh, he knew where they had put them up at, and he just grabbed them while they were asleep. Okay, that's uh, that, that's kind of the equivalent of if you think your spouse is cheating on you, wait till they go to sleep and then go on their computer and you know go go read uh, their, their email, their chats. It's, it's pretty much like that, except it had to do with cards. Well, we lost Trader Ruski, by the way. I didn't bring him back. I got a text from him saying we we lost, we did lose him. How did that happen? Well, it's an interesting story. It's, it's unfortunate that this type of stuff is happening, but it's interesting, especially with his roommates. And I, I guess that's a lesson to the scammers out there who are marking cards. The lesson is that uh, only be roommates with those who either aren't in the game with you or are cheating along with you. Don't uh, don't have a, a person in the game you're cheating as your roommate. That's also a lesson to be learned. So see, a lesson for everybody, a lesson for those in the games who don't want to be cheated and a lesson for the scammers or would-be scammers on how to do it better. You, you learn it all on this show. 
that would have been an awkward conversation too. Like <laughs> the roommates, like, hey, you know, while you were sleeping, uh, I, I kind of grabbed the cards and I, I, I see that you've been marking the card. You, you have a marked deck, a pre-marked deck that you've been using to cheat me and other people. So, uh, yeah, you, you owe us about like $15,000 and uh, I'm not sure if we should be roommates anymore. Maybe, maybe we should go the other way. I'm back now, I think. Yeah, you are back. That was weird. And I'd say even if they're not like bicycle cards or any standard cards, be suspicious. Yeah, they're not. They kind of look standard-ish, but yeah, they, 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 they're probably just some kind of special cards that were bought online that uh, probably made in China. Right. I'm just saying, if you go to a game and they're not using bicycle cards, it's just something you know. I'd be suspicious. Hey, hey, hey! Bicycle card is not a sponsor of the show yet. We, we can't we can't promote uh, them too much. I'm trying to get them. You know, yeah, but trying to get them. Yeah, but we're we're giving away the milk for free here. If we're, if we're just going to recommend them, they're not going to pay anything to be a sponsor here. I've got I've got to think of these things. All right. Uh, let's uh, thank you, Hujure, for uh, calling in here. Oh, one other question, hey, Hujure, are you still here? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, I wasn't going to bring this up on the show, but since you brought it onto the forum and since you're here with us, um, tell us about the weird uh, masturbation story involving this uh, pervert that's been bothering your wife. So, yeah, she, she, I I can't remember the exact dates. It's been a couple of weeks though, but she calls me on one of her lunch breaks and she is just sitting there and I guess she looks over and this uh, white Toyota Camry uh, has a guy sitting in the front seat and she can clearly make out his dick, um, even see the color of his boxers. And he's just beaten away and uh, ends up finishing in an envelope. I, I have to say I've never finished on an envelope before. Like was was Kleenex? I don't know. Like was Kleenex or toilet paper not available? Couldn't he get this in the office somewhere? Couldn't he just uh, take this out of the bathroom? The the envelope's really strange. But yeah, go, go ahead. So actually, that's the weird thing is he doesn't actually work at her office. Um, he drives to her office and he parks there, and he does his business, and then he drives away. And you mentioned in the the post that the guy has tinted windows, but not enough to where she could still see what he was doing. Yeah, well, so she she drives a Jeep Wrangler, so her you know the the vehicle sits up pretty high, and I guess just uh, with the you know the time of day, it's one o'clock in Las Vegas. Just the sun hits just right to where she can basically see <laughs> through the uh, the tinted windows. Um, but she. You know, so the the first time she saw everything, the second time uh, he had some kind of cow or something over his lap, but she could still see his hand moving up and down. And uh, I think it was like the third time she was walking out to her car and she kind of loudly said, like, seriously, go somewhere else, man, or something along those lines. And... You know, after that, he kind of drove away uh, pretty quickly. And then, like, the very next day, he came back 
and she was already sitting in his car in her car uh oh before this she actually moved on a completely different side of the parking lot just to see like maybe if that was his favorite spot and uh again he parked right beside beside her uh to do his business finally she went out and took a picture of his license plate and as she was doing so he tried to speed away but uh she did get the picture of his license plate she did take a picture of him but just with the tent like and the the camera the, the phone camera quality uh it didn't turn out very well now he hasn't been seen ever since right like since he, she took the picture he hasn't come back yeah, so actually, I mean, I, I only I only work about a 15-minute drive from where she does. So I've been uh, taking my lunch breaks and driving towards her work and sitting in her parking lot, not beside uh, her vehicle, but kind of actually not even in the same parking lot, just off to the side to where, like, he couldn't, where he couldn't see uh, that I was watching the vehicle or anything like that. But it's been... I think the last time she saw him was on Tuesday of this week, this past week, and he's not been back since. Okay, so I, I, he, she probably won't see him again, especially if he doesn't actually work in that complex and he probably went to this parking lot. I, I, I do wonder if he purposely parked next to her the first time because he noticed a woman in the car and, and he, he wanted to do this and have her see it, or if, if just the fact that she noticed, then he got a thrill out of that and just kept coming to her even when she moved to a different spot because he really liked the idea of, of doing it and her seeing him and he, maybe even her getting mad about it. And then m- maybe once she took the picture of the license plate and of him, he got nervous that he's going to get in trouble and uh, and figured, okay, he's not going to do this anymore. But I, I wouldn't be shocked if he did it again, if he just couldn't uh, resist the temptation to come back and uh, perform once again in front of her. And are, are you going to keep coming there every day or, or are you pretty convinced that this is done? Uh, I'm probably going to come back at least on Monday and Tuesday because uh, the first time that she saw him, I think was on a Monday as well. So, you know, maybe it's just uh, his schedule doesn't line up with the days that I've been there. So we'll go on a couple of days where he's been known to do it. My plan, if, if I catch him, like I'm not going to fight the guy or anything like that, but I'm just going to confront him and say, Hey, Stop masturbating around my wife. Go somewhere else. <laughs> um, you know, then also, once I confront him, we haven't... She talked to the cops the first time before she actually had his license plate number. And basically, they told her that she would have to catch him in the act or they would have to catch him in the act. But I think if I, I have a talk with them, I'm going to actually file a report. Uh, you know, she didn't actually file a report. What, what she didn't say? actually follow. Is that her? Is that her in the that's that's her in the background giving you a, a coaching on this conversation? No, no, I'm in the I'm in the Sonic practice. Oh, okay, okay. I thought I thought, I thought that was your wife, like saying, no, 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 no. This is what happened. Okay, okay. So go, go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, like, but the police would that. even try to track him down and look for um, full fill, filled envelopes in the car or anything. <laughs> No, well, like I said, she, she contacted them before she actually had his license plate number. So, um, since, 
so that was the time before. Then she got his license plate number, and then since then he's not been back. So I'm going to try to, you know, basically if he shows up again, if I'm not there, she's going to call the cops and file an official report. Um, if I'm there, I'm going to talk to him and tell him that I'm going to call the cops and that, you know, we have his license plate and stuff like that. Basically, hopefully he gets scared to the point where he won't come back. You know, I, I'm worried right now that he's going to actually mail some of those envelopes. <laughs> imagine getting that in the mail. You go, what is this letter? It's a little bit heavier than, oh, my God. I can only imagine. <laughs> Maybe he'll follow her home and get our address and send it to her. You know, now that I'm thinking of this more, for some reason when you posted about this, I, I, I thought about this less critically than I'm thinking right now on the radio. But. I'm th- I'm thinking right now that he probably did want to be seen doing this because I I had to think about this now in a way of, of putting myself in that situation and and the way I put myself in that situation I'm thinking okay let's say I want to jerk off in some way during uh, work or whatever if I want to do this and I, I want to leave the site let's say I, w- I work down the street or something and I don't, I don't want to do it in my own lot. What I would do is I would uh, go somewhere far away from where everybody could see. I'd go, I'd go to like the corner of a lot where nobody's around for a long time and then uh, do it there quickly. And if anybody comes anywhere near, like kind of stop so no one catches me. That's what I would I, I wouldn't pull up right next to someone sitting in their car. You, you pull up to someone sitting next to their car, sitting in their car if you want to be caught. And that, that's got to be what he was doing. Yeah, I agree. Uh very strange i just hope you know obviously with him sitting next to her and that's the weird thing too is that he's not said anything to her um from what she's been able to see uh he's not like staring at her as he's doing it um he just seems to be focused in on uh on his member well okay but but, see there's there's i can understand that though because here, the thrill may not be that he's doing it with her or that she's part of the whole thing, but more like he's doing it and she's actually catching him, like that uh, that, that that she's really not supposed to be catching him, and oh, no, now he's caught, and so, so he's not supposed to be looking at her. It's almost supposed to be like, I don't want to be caught, even though he does want to be caught. It, it's something like that. It, it's got to be something where he wants people to see this, and, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if he's done this many times before, and then he... He, he he drives around the parking lot looking for women parked there, and then parks next to them and do it. And then once uh, he notices your wife has been there every day, then he uh, he keeps doing it again, and then looks for her car if he can't find it in one spot to look and see if she's anywhere in the in the lot. Or maybe he just scans the lot and say, okay, well she's not here, but who can I find? Oh look, there she is in a different spot. And so he he parks next to her. Uh, one question though: Why does why does she persist in eating lunch in her car if this keeps happening? Why doesn't she just go eat inside for a while and stop this? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, it's a smaller office. Um, her work only has about 14 or 15 employees, so I don't even know if they actually have a like a official break room. But she she takes her lunch and uh, just enjoys the the weather even though it's hotter shit here in vegas right now yeah i and, uh, just like 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think she'd have justification to eat the lunch in, in, inside the office, even if it's small. Like, like, hey, hey, do you mind taking your food outside? It's kind of making the, the office uh, smell too much like this food here. Well, look, there's, there's a crazy masturbator out there. Can you please let me stay in here this week? Okay. Okay, fine. You've, you've, convinced, me. you've convinced us. You, we'll make the exception here. Uh-oh. And I, and I think you guys that. should definitely send in the license plate to the police. Because who knows? He might have gotten caught ten times before, you know, or might be in front of elementary schools or something, this fucking weirdo. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, this probably isn't the first time. I, I, this has got to be something he's done many times. And he, I bet he I bet he is driving these lots, driving around these lots around that time looking for women sitting in their cars. And it, it, it couldn't be a coincidence that he happened to pull up next to her. It just, it doesn't, I, I wish we had Ken Scaler on. He's, yeah, Ken Scaler doesn't like jerking off in front of strangers in public. That's not his thing. He likes going into, into Starbucks bathrooms or other places where he can be alone. But uh, if you, if you asked him, I'm sure he would say that uh, he, he would have a list of things he does to make sure nobody sees him or catches him. And, that, and that's what most people who want to jerk off in public but not be caught do. They, they, they take care not to be seen. They, they don't go pull up next to cars with people in the car. I think the real question for Ken Scaler is, has he ever came inside of an envelope? Yeah, I, I, I wish we could ask him that question, too. That is, that is a good question. Now, I guess the good thing with the envelope, as opposed to uh, something like, like tissues, and by, by the way, this, this is a great topic for this show here. I'm, I'm sure that on uh, Daniel Negreanu and Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan's podcast, I'm sure, I'm sure they talk about this t- topic all the time. But uh, I guess the, the advantage of the envelope here is that you can close it up and the whole thing is self-contained at that point. See, we're, 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 with tissues you've got to have a place to throw it away fast or otherwise it can leak, it can, it can be a problem. You, you, now, if you're at home, you can just you know, drop the tissues in the toilet or in the trash. But if you're in your car and you have tissues, then what do you do with them? So I, I see with the envelope, you can just close the envelope, and as long as it's a pretty good quality envelope, then uh, and you can drive somewhere to dispose of it soon or maybe mail it then that, that's actually a good thing to do to get revenge on your postman. If you don't like your postman, then start uh, putting letters in the mailbox of that that he has to handle. That uh, <laughs> That's that's a good idea. I'm, I'm, I'm coming up with more and more ideas on this show as it goes along. This is such a weird... Well, and it could be, too, like if he gets pulled over and there's a stamp on the envelope and it's made out to somebody, maybe they need a warrant to uh, open the envelope. <laughs> or they go, we're going to do a search of this car for semen. He's like, okay, so, okay, look, we got, I got nothing in here except uh, just, just me and some letters I got to mail. Okay, looks like you're clean, sir. Go right ahead. So not only do we uh, coach scammers on this show, you coach serial masturbators yeah well. yeah i know i've i've given some questionable advice here i'll admit that <laughs> and then just like you bring in eric benzamokin for the legal questions i think we you know have to go to ken scaler for the masturbators yeah you I, bring I, him in as like a topic expert i, I wish i knew a who jure was going to call in i would have made sure ken was around if, if if ever we needed him it was tonight i mean he he, he can't give us the expertise on the car thing he's never driven in his life but uh the rest of the stuff yeah but he he might he might like sorry go for it 
maybe the uh, masturbator is kind of like Borovis, to where he only likes masturbating next to Jeeps. Right, it could be something like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's something about her car that we're we're overlooking. Maybe it's not her; it's the car. Yeah, and Ken might like that people are in line waiting for the for the bathroom while he's in there <laughs> masturbating. That might be the thrill. There's people on the other side of the door. Yeah, the only problem is for, with Ken, with Ken since he does it in bathrooms. It's only dudes in there, and I know he's not gay in any way. So I don't think I don't think he gets any thrill about the guys there. But uh, um, but I, I will say Ken seems to. He seems to at least try to avoid others catching what he's doing, where uh, this guy seems the reverse. It seems like this guy wants it known. And uh, But, yeah, so you move to Las Vegas, and, and then this happens. You're, this is one of your wife's uh, first experiences living in Las Vegas. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I assume this didn't happen. I, I assume all the envelopes were, were more pure where you came from. They were, definitely. That's too bad. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff happens in Las Vegas. That uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas unless it gets mailed away from Vegas in an envelope. <laughs> right. I'm so glad he was using an envelope. It provides uh, endless jokes about the situation that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Well, I guess I guess you had two good topics to bring to us tonight. You you were a, a big contributor tonight to the show without even realizing it. All right, guys. Take care. All right. Thank you very much, A. Hoosier A. Yep. See you. Thanks. All right. You know, I, I also just realized I have, like, no control of this show with the phone calls. I, I can remove people, but I can't I can't mute anybody. I think because you called me. Uh, because when he had all that, that sonic noise in the background, I was going to mute him while I was talking. And then I, I the mute option is disabled for me. And I think that's actually because you called me, Trader Ruski. So I think, actually, you're in control here. I can hang up on people, but I can't, uh, and I can add people, but I don't, I can't mute people for some reason. Weird. Okay. So let's, uh, let's move to the next topic here. Poker journalist Haley Hintz, who we've talked about a lot of times on this show, had a scary experience also in Las Vegas. Not a very flattering show about Las Vegas this week, but uh, Haley had a bad experience at the Candlewood Suites, and I use the Suites term very loosely, but at the Candlewood Suites, she had a, a scary experience of a room invasion while she was sleeping where a guy came into her room at 9.30 in the morning while she was in bed. Here's what happened. Uh, she put this out on Twitter. That's how I know about it. Uh, she actually did like a 21-part uh, Twitter story. And this is pretty much everyone's nightmare with staying in a hotel since you know, the, the those doors with those key cards... The nightmare is that you're in your room and just some strange person just opens the door and walks in and just some strange dude's in there and you're trapped in there with him and you probably don't have a weapon on you and it's uh, you, you better hope that nothing bad happens from that point. And usually when some dude just walks in your room, it's not a very good situation at that point. So... 
This was uh, this. This is what Haley wrote. I'll read you the whole thing, all 21 tweets, which will go pretty fast because tweets can't be very long. She says, this is why IHG, which is the owner of Candlewood Suites, Candlewood and Las Vegas Metro PD can go fuck themselves. This was the second straight summer I've stayed at the Las Vegas Candlewood on Paradise, just north of Flamingo. I plan on on starting my drive east on July 17th. That's after the World Series. She's, she's uh, She works... For the World Series During the World Series of Poker Doing various reporting type things The 16th Was the last night of the World Series My 50th night in Las Vegas And it was a normal late night The last event was on And I and got done just before Jose and Ensign won the main event And I didn't get back to my room until close to 4am I had back to back Double event days and I was wiped out I made the mistake from being overtired In my fatigue I simply forgot to throw the security latch I remember to throw that And or the deadbolt about 9 times out of 10 But I was tired and it didn't happen But also remember those those are secondary Security devices That's usually my case too I, I almost always do the Second lock on the door Or second and third if that exists But uh, Occasionally I'll wake up and notice I didn't do it Once in a while I'll notice that I've forgotten Usually if I was just very tired Or my mind was occupied with something else She goes on to write I was up briefly At about uh, 9.15am But uh, but I was back asleep Almost instantly Then Rousing me Though just in a groggy, into a groggy state Around 9.45 or 10am I hear that distinctive the sound of a key A key card being inserted into my door lock So she heard the You know, in a hotel room As your as a key is coming in to Open the door I'm not that alarmed when I hear the door being pushed open I figure it's cleaning Seeing if they can get an early start on my room Especially since I told them not to bother With the once a week cleaning due the day before Do the day before But it's not cleaning that's coming in So she's thinking that She's staying in like a long term Suite where they're not coming every day But uh, they were supposed to come in the day before And do their once a week cleaning And she said don't bother I'm leaving tomorrow So she thought that maybe They were coming in thinking she was already gone Or something like that And since you know, 9.45, 10am That's a very common time for the maid to try to come in Like, uh, How many times have you been in bed In Las Vegas After a late night And then you hear, you, you hear Housekeeping, housekeeping You want service, housekeeping And you, you keep shouting no, 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 go away Like she thought it was something like that That she just forgot to double lock the door And now housekeeping was trying to come in So she wasn't that scared She writes I roll over just in time to see a guy walking in Mind that I'm really groggy And still mostly asleep So a couple of the details are iffy He's about 6 feet tall Medium orange brown hair Neatly cut with a mustache And he's medium to thin I'd guess mid to late 40s Now I'm glad there's a few details here different than me Otherwise uh, I think I'd be Prime suspect here I mean a little taller than six feet But he's about six feet tall So it's a tall guy Mid to late 40s That's exactly what I am um, Short Short brown hair Well, my, But see mine's not orange brown though Mine's kind of like between brown and black This guy's got like Orange brown hair So that starts to count me out and he has a mustache, and so do I, but I also have a beard, and she didn't mention that. So uh, I think I'm in the clear. I'm definitely not medium to thin, though. So I, at least 
at least I don't have that going on. I guess medium, just not not the thin part. She says he's not in cleaning or maintenance garb. He's dressed in a dull blue and white button front shirt with some plain floral leaf design and beige shorts or cargo pants. He's got an off white. He's got on an off white uh, Panama hat or something like that. Shoes I don't remember. He's also got a backpack or satchel and is pulling a small wheeled piece of luggage. Again, this is all in a couple of seconds. He's like five or six feet into the room when I shout something intelligent like, Hey, get out. The guy pauses, then he takes another step or two forward. I get out of bed. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. I'm not small. Get out, I repeat. He stops and says, The clerk said I was in room 202. And he looks down at the key in his hand. I'm in room 302, not 202, and I don't care. But even as I step forward and again shout, get the hell out, I'm thinking maybe this is a weird clerical error and maybe the clerk had a brain fart and mistakenly gave him the room to 302 while telling him 202. Now keep in mind, something similar happened in the Rio that really was a mistake where a guy got double-checked into a dude's room and then the guy who got double-checked in came in, saw stuff there, no person was there, and that guy stole stuff from the room and stole money. And we had the victim of this on this show, who fortunately eventually got the Rio to make it right after the Rio refused. So this does happen. This wasn't at the Rio, by this is Candlewood, but still. It, it's not tough for Haley to think that it could really be the guy who just misassigned or told the wrong room to go into. Of course, you're told the wrong room to go into. Uh, he would have to have the keys to 302 while she assigned 202, so it's a little bit weird. But it's, it's possible at this point. She says, remember, I'm barely awake and not thinking that clearly. But he, he backs up and leaves, and this time I throw the latch, and I immediately call the front desk and tell them what happened, including him coming to my room and telling me he was supposed to be in 202. The desk person does sound a little concerned, says they'll look into that and get right back to me. I'm still in fogginess, so I sit on my bed and wait five, ten minutes, and, and all of a sudden I realize it's been 15 minutes and I've heard nothing from them. I call again, and the desk person says, well, we checked, and there's no one registered to... Room 202. Uh-oh. To my knowledge, they did nothing else. I you, called... you mean 302, right, Jeff? No, she's in 302. So she said he claimed... No. Oh, she's in 302. My bad, my yeah, bad. He, he claimed right. I'm supposed to be in 202. So they like, well, look, there's nobody in 202, so we know what you're talking about. So to my knowledge, they did nothing else. I called within seconds of the guy exiting, and if they'd moved six feet from the front desk, they could have seen the elevators. It's also hitting me that the 202 thing was a lie and the guy was just a probable room thief. So I tell the front desk person that I'm calling Metro. I do that. It takes probably 15 to 20 minutes to actually get the non-emergency line and speak to someone. I give a brief description of what happened and what the guy looked like, and they say that an officer will be stopping by to take a report. So I start packing for my cross-continent drive. I've been there for seven weeks, and it takes a while to pack and load my car. While I'm packing, the manager calls and says he wants to come up and, and take readings off my door's electronic lock. He does this. Later, when I see him futzing with his laptop downstairs, I get into space about what it showed, and he says, no unusual activity. Mind that I've gone from groggy to awake to, to alert and aware and getting highly pissed. I'm aware that he distinctly did not say no activity, and I let him know that they'll be hearing from an attorney. I haven't retained one yet, though it's an option. The thing is, I can see no other explanation other than this intruder was someone who had obtained a master door key from an employee or a contractor, in other words, an inside job. The manager declined to detail exactly what his lock audit showed. 
I'm sure my room was chosen at random, but had I not been there, any valuables not on my person would have been gone. That would have included a decent laptop and camera and some of my jewelry, plus some other electronics. Metro is still a no-show, because of course they are, so I demand to file a written report at the hotel and demand to leave a copy of it, uh, Candlewood complies. I have this form, and what I basically write is a short version of this recap. I'm on full-on livid tilt as noon approaches, and I have nearly 900 miles to drive. The manager tells me I could be more cordial as I depart. I say, fuck that guy, and fuck IHG, and Candlewood as well. It could have gone down much worse for me. Okay, now keep in mind, this story was already from four weeks prior. She posted this on August 12th. She was talking about something that occurred on July 16th. So, uh, why she took four weeks to bring this up here, I'm not sure. But that's when she chose to tell the story. Uh, I agree with her. It was probably not a mistake. It probably was someone with a key. Maybe someone who was working with an employee to steal from people here. Maybe it was someone who got a master key from a contractor who had access to all the rooms. Something happened there to where this guy had access to come in and steal things and for whatever reason believe that uh, that room was empty. Uh, 10 a.m. is a little funny time to come in. Most people haven't checked out by then. And they're, if, if they're in the room, they're probably sleeping. I would think it would be better for the guy to kind of mill about the hallway and see, wait for someone to walk out their room and break in. Uh... There is some possibility that, that this was a double check-in and they didn't want to admit it. It is pretty bad that the front desk didn't attempt to stop the guy coming down the elevator, though I guess it's possible they didn't think of this or that Haley didn't mention that, uh, you know, watch, he may be coming or something like that. Maybe they just kind of thought, hey, she's reporting this happened. Let's try to figure out who was in 202. So it's possible the front desk employee just didn't think of watching who comes down the elevator. Uh, the most suspicious part of this story, and by suspicious I don't mean Haley's account of what happened, I mean the way the manager there acted, was the fact that he downloaded the key accesses, which, which they have. They have a record of who enters each room and which keys were used to enter each room. And he just said that there's no unusual activity. So what, what does that mean? No, no unusual activity. So who was it? Who opened that door? What key was it? Who made the key? When was the key made? What is he seeing with that entry at 9.45 to 10 o'clock? Who was it? And if he won't say, that's really suspicious. She, she does have a right to know who did it, who that was, what key they were using. She has a right to know that. It was her room. She paid to rent that room. She had a right to know who entered it. Now, it is possible, as I said, especially since she's a woman, that they didn't want to open themselves up to uh, lawsuits or whatever by admitting that this guy was double-checked into 302. And so they just didn't want to say anything. It's possible that's what happened. It's also possible that they saw it was some key that someone shouldn't have had or it was it was associated with some employee there, something they didn't want to tell her because it was going to make him look really bad. So he just got, oh, nothing unusual, nothing to see here, no, no unusual activity. 
So the fact that the manager wouldn't explain what happened, he just wouldn't tell her, apparently. And, and keep in mind, Haley, she's a smart woman. She's the type who's going to ask a lot of questions. This is a very good investigative reporter. So I, I don't see her as the type where the manager says, well, there's no unusual activity, sorry. I don't see her saying, well, okay, well, thanks for checking. Like, I'm sure she kept pressing, well, who was it? Like, I'm sure she asked the same questions I did here, and he just didn't want to tell her, which is weird. Now, her story here doesn't explain what his explanation was, why he wouldn't tell her, but he wouldn't tell her, which is highly suspicious. Now, I don't know that much about Candlewood Suites, but it may or may not be a franchise property operating under the umbrella of IHG, in which case... uh, Most of the power there is at the franchise owner level, and IHG only has kind of minimal power to make sure that they are keeping up to franchise standards. But as far as things like this, uh, they probably won't get much involved. But there's still some way you can get them involved. Like what you could do, and I would suggest this, I already did suggest this to Haley in a tweet, is to really, really press them to get first get the name of the general manager because the manager and the general manager are not always the same thing. The manager is just whoever's the manager at the moment. The general manager is the person in charge of the whole place. And you, you want to first get the general manager and get, demand answers. Just demand to know who that was, how they got the key, when the key was made, how this could have possibly happened. Just say, be honest with me. Tell me what really happened and I, I'm not going to give this up until this makes sense to me. Then if you don't get info out of him, then find out if it's a franchise location or if it's owned by the corporation. And then if it's franchise, call the owner, get a hold of the owner somehow and demand answers from them and threaten lawsuits if you don't find out the truth. And then uh, or also threat, you can threaten social media because, you know, Haley has uh, a journalistic following. She 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 has a, a site. It's not her site, but she writes for it. She could write about the whole experience there and tweet it out. And there, there could be a lot of consequences on social media for this Candlewood to people who aren't going to want to come if this gets out what happened there, that someone invaded your room while you're sleeping. That's, that's, that's horrible. People are not going to want to stay there if they hear that type of thing happens there. So if the, the franchise owner knows that sort of thing could get out, he may want to satisfy her and, and cooperate. But if it's, if it's the corporation, while that type of threat of ruining that particular location's reputation is not going to scare them as much, uh, corporations also have a lot more standards as far as what goes on at each individual property. And even if the general manager of that property is an asshole and doesn't want to do anything, the corporation, you can usually find someone there who will and who will force the answers out. You've just got to be very persistent. And I know Haley has it in her to be persistent. I I know a lot of people just don't really have it in them to be that confrontational and to be that persistent and to keep pushing for answers. But I know she does. And I I don't know how much she did that. I'm not saying she did none of this. I'm just saying that uh, what I would do is I I would not give this up until I kept pressing for answers. As far as the police, uh, that was pretty much useless I'm not saying it was wrong to call them, but the problem here is that while it was very disturbing that this occurred, 
And while I can understand why this was very stressful, when it was all said and done, the guy didn't steal anything and he didn't touch her, nor did he do anything obscene. He just came in and acted confused that he thought it was his room and then left when she seemed pissed. So I don't even think they're going to really even investigate that as a crime. The police are just going to go, okay, well, you know, that sounds like a misunderstanding to me. And, you know, what are your damages? What happened to you? Well, I got scared. Well, okay, did he touch you? No. Did he do anything obscene? No. Did he steal anything? No. Okay, well, we don't care. Like, in a small town where nothing else is going on, the police may want to spend time investigating this. In Las Vegas, there's no chance. In Las Vegas, they're never going to care about something like this when, when nothing, no damage actually occurred. Right, but Drop, one thing they would know is if it's happened before, you know, maybe this is the third call they got this month, so somebody is running around with a key. Yeah. I doubt she was happened to be the first one. He just got the key. If it, if it was a, a burglary attempt, then yes. You're, you're probably right that it, it may have not been the first one. Uh but so I'm not saying it's useless to call them, but it's also not surprising that the police weren't particularly interested in this, especially in a city like Las Vegas, which the, the police have plenty to do. And this is very minor compared. Well, to the they also leader. want to make sure. Yeah, but still, did, did they um, did she I'm assuming she researched and saw if anybody else had complaints about people walking into rooms or things being stolen? Um, I don't know. At I just, that hotel? I'm just I'm just reading her, her tweets. I, I don't know. If, she did anything further. Uh, but I, I would definitely press this with IHG and demand answers. And uh, as, as far as the uh, – and, and also I would have made a major complaint about the way the manager acted at the end about saying you could have been more cordial about the whole thing. I mean, what, what, what a kick in the ass that is when this happens to you and then the manager's like, you know, you didn't have to be so rude about it. You know, yeah, someone walked in your room while you're sleeping and, uh, you know, how dare you be pissed about that? How dare you be pissed that I won't tell you about it? You could, you could have been more cordial about the whole thing, Haley. Where's a thank you? Where's a thank you that I, I, I even put my laptop on it? <laughs> what the hell's this guy's problem? Well – I don't know how much investigating Haley did about this, but we are going to. We're going to call up this Candlewood Suites in Las Vegas, and we're going to find out a few things here. I have the phone number, and we're going to make a phone call. And we're going to we're going to find out some details about the whole matter. Not about this matter, but. About a matter. Oops. Well, that's not that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. Let me try this again. Just trying to add that number to the call and somehow it. Uh... Why is this not working? I'm trying to see. I I, I made. Could it be because I called you, Druff? Do you want to try calling me back? Yeah, let me try calling it. you. Yeah, I think it's because I can't add people together. What a pain in the ass Skype is. Okay, I'm going to call yeah. you. <laughs> Always something with Skype here. I'm back. Okay. I think I now I think I'm in control. Let me see. Nope. I think it's the new Skype is a piece of crap, but well, hang on. We're going to see this. I did get a new Skype. I guess my better judgment. Yeah, see, 
I'm trying to. It says add call. And it, it does give me options. It says uh, call number covered by the subscription, which is great, except if I attempt to call and it, it doesn't. Uh, I swear, if this new version doesn't let me add phone numbers to the call, this is the worst. Why would they change this? It was working fine. Then they have to ruin it. Hold on. Let me try this. Okay, this might work. Thank you for calling the Candlewood Suites Las Vegas. To be connected to one of our guests, please press 1. To check rates and availability for reservations of six nights or less, please press 2. For group sales or to inquire on rates and availability for reservations consisting of seven nights or more, please press 3. If you'd like a key to somebody else's room, please press 4. Please press 4. To be connected to a front desk representative, please press 5. The embarrassing thing is I can't figure out how to press buttons on this new Skype. <laughs> please hold. I guess I don't have to this time. Thank you for calling Candlewood Suites. This is Mark. I'm a director call. I had a kind of Nigel Fapsham here. Um, I've got a question about this uh, Candlewood Suites location. Is is this owned by IHG or is this uh, individually owned, or disfranchised uh, to, to uh, the owner? It is a franchise, but it is managed by IHG. All right, all right. Now, um, if I were to get a room at this property, um, it, it does have one of those uh, little key cards that people use to, to get in and out. It doesn't have one of those traditional locks. Is that correct? It's one of those key cards to get in, in and out of the room? Well, here, let me transfer to reservations. They can answer all your questions. Well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm asking about your, your, your individual property. I don't, I don't want national reservations. They're just going to say, oh, at all, all our properties, we have such yeah. and such. And I, I, I want to speak to someone. No, I'll go ahead and transfer to them. They can answer all your questions. About no, no, no. Questions. But I, I, don't want, I want to speak to someone there at the site. I want to speak to someone who, who's right there where the action is. You know, I don't want to speak to someone in reservations. They, they, they've never even set foot in Las Vegas. But I'll probably get someone in the Philippines who's never even been in the States. You know, I'm already across the pond as it is. I wish to speak to you about your own property. I'm asking, does it have a key card? You do not know the answer to this question? Yeah, it does, sir. All right, so it's, it's quite simple. All right, so, so, so okay, so, so moving along. Um, if the key card is made for my room, uh, is there any chance that anybody else would have access have, to it? We, have, we take very – sir, um, I'm going to have to have you call during the day and speak to a manager. The questions you're asking, I need you to talk to them. Well, why is this? Is this rather basic questions? I don't understand why I have to call because back. Because you're asking a question that you know the answer is safety and security is number one. We check for ID. All right, so, so, so that's an answer. So I'm asking you a question. You're giving me an answer. This, see, now this is a conversation. See, before – um, you're telling me oh, I can't, you can't answer me, but in, indeed you can. So, so if we can continue here, um, so I'm, I'm consider- I, I have a guest here. I have a guest here. I need to check in. Can I call you back? Well, okay. I, I, I don't think you can call to London. It's, uh, it's a, probably a rather pricey call for you, but uh, I, I can make a call back and uh, I can give you a ring back in maybe about um, five minutes or so. How about like after seven when my supervisor is here? After seven, where would that be? I, where, where I am right now, it's, it's nine a.m. here in uh, in London. Okay, so another six hours. 
Six hours? Have you gone mad? Six hours? I, I have many things to do. I'm quite, quite a busy gentleman, and I, I, I can't uh, sit around six hours cooling my heels before I call a hotel back. This is r- rather absurd. Well, um, I mean, I can transfer the reservations if you want to book a room. I mean, but, but I've got questions before I book. I, I don't, don't wish to book until I know the, the answers. If, if you need to deal with a guest, I understand. I don't want to hold someone else up. But, you know, I assume after you check this individual in, you'll be twiddling your thumbs for the next 25 or 30 minutes, and then we can have a conversation. No, actually, um, is, there, is there something specific about our hotel as far as the room itself? Well, I, I, I just want to make sure. I, I just want to make sure that that nobody, even it, whether they're from an outsider or or someone who works for the hotel or once worked for the, has any way to get access. So you're asking a, a risk management question. I can answer the question that we take safety and security very seriously. But but that doesn't matter. Ma- that doesn't matter. ID with guests. You know, like in any hotel I've ever worked at. When you check in, when somebody asks for a key, we verify ID. No, no, but I'm not, I'm not asking about just some some um, regular bloke coming in off the street saying, hey, can I have a key to Mr. Fabersham's room? And they go, here you are. You know, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about someone who works for the place that has access to doing this, uh, to, to getting keys to rooms. That's, that's what I, I, I had this occur to me one time, and um, I want to make sure this doesn't happen again, because I'm, I'm planning on, upon staying here for about uh, seven weeks. Okay, we, we take our safety and security very seriously. Well, you've said that many times, but I'm trying to say I want to know that the, the employees here do not have access. I, I know you can make keys and such, but uh, that that there, it just isn't some way for people to just uh, have yeah, a master key to all the you're rooms. You're asking me questions that I don't feel comfortable questions with. I, I'd be happy to have someone email you all the questions. I can give you my email address, and I can relate it to a manager. If you, I feel safe and secure when, as a guest here, as an employee here. All right, we, so, take, so. we take safety and security very seriously. We don't. We don't. Um, so, so, so wait, wait, wait a minute. Uh, hold the phone. You see, you're telling me that you're both a guest and an employee. You you live there as well. No, what I'm saying is, as a guest in the hotel, I feel very comfortable when they're staying here, as well as an employee taking safety and security for our guests and employees very seriously. All right, that's, that's a rather beautiful, kind answer. But if I can, if I can ask you one more question here, um, have there been in the last, uh, I'd say, thirty days? I, I can't answer any more questions. Have there been any incidents of, of someone entering a room when they weren't any supposed more to be there? Regarding the safety and security, I've already answered the question. Well, this seems that seems like a rather You're cover, cover up to me. Question needs to be addressed with my manager. You know, I, I think I may have to go to Motel Six, where Tom Bodet is going to leave the light on for me. I, th- I, I feel rather more secure over there. But you're asking questions that are regarding risk management and safety. It's not risk management. I just want to know if someone's going to come in my bloody room when I'm trying to sleep. That's all I want to know. Well, it's a very common question that that anybody would know, that safety and security is very serious. The hotel looks at it very seriously, but they're not just Take it lightly. Okay, but I'm trying to ask, in the last 30 days, has anybody I, entered I any room? Any questions regarding anything? Well, this seems, like a, cover, this seems like a cover-up. This is like I'm asking about why Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his cell. It's like, can't I get a direct answer here? I don't know anything about Jeffrey Epstein. Well, it, that wouldn't be surprised me if he did. All right. Um, uh, I guess we've, found, I guess we've uh, gotten the answers we need here. Uh, tell you how, pip, well, pip, and let's go. What, well, let me get your email address, and I'll have my manager reach out to you. All right, I suppose we can do that. All right, uh, the the email address is uh, Nigel. That's N I G E L, with a period. Then Fabersham. That's F A B E R S H A M. At Tower. That's T O W E R of O F London L O N D O N dot com.
Actually, sorry, I don't Tower know. Tower of London. Actually, 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 we, we've changed it. It's, it's now uh, Tower of London. UK. It's no longer dot com. I forgot we changed that. Uh, so about, uh, it's three not tower is tower. Tower, just tower. So one, one tower. Tower of London. dot UK. Tower of London. UK. Yes. So, so have 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 them send these these uh, answers to me. Lickety split. Yes. S A B E R S H A M. Yeah, that's correct. That, that's, that's correct. Right. Nigel Fabersham, um, a colonel. Uh, Nigel Period Fabersham at uh, TowerofLondon.uk. Ha- have them uh, send these questions, the, the answers to these questions to me, lickety split, and uh, I'll make my decision of where I will uh, make my domicile in the next seven weeks. All right, uh, Tally Hope, uh, Pip Pip, and let's get on with it. Okay. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Sounds like they're nervous over there. That's kind of a funny call. Uh, that was amusing. It's <laughs> kind of a funny call. <laughs> oh boy! All right. Well, I have to say this. Uh, you know, it actually has a pretty good rating on Google reviews. It has four point three out of five stars, and then on TripAdvisor, it has four stars. So I guess it couldn't be all that bad. And in fact. The fact that Haley, well, and I'm sure she checked it out quite a bit. Right, she decided to stay there. I, I was going to say the the fact that she even stayed there at all shows that it probably wasn't a dump. So this this may have been an unusual problem there, in that this doesn't normally happen. But uh, yeah, I went through the Yelp reviews through February. I didn't see anything about breaking. Yeah, so it, it, like and, and there is still a chance. I have to say. There is still a chance that this was a misassigned room and that this guy with the orange-brown hair actually was innocent and didn't do anything wrong and is like, who's this angry woman in here shouting well, at maybe, me? maybe, but if they said there was no one even registered for 202, then, you know. Well, I, I, and I, that he, seems he, like he, something you'd say. Yeah, well, here's what something could, could have happened, though, is that they assigned him to 302, and that's why he went to 302, and then came into 302, but he's like... If he thought it was 202, why would he have gotten off on the floor 2? Why, why, why would he have gotten off on floor 3 instead of 2 and then used the key that worked in 302? Like if they told him 202 and they gave him the key for 302, he would have gone to 202 and it wouldn't have worked. So it's possible they really gave him 302 and then he entered it, especially because she was supposed to check out that day. Maybe they thought she was out. Like it was her last day there. And... So maybe they thought she was checked out already, and, and he went up there and, and found her, and then it was like in his own head. He's like, well, maybe, hold on, maybe it was 202? Like, maybe something like that. Remember, she was also half asleep, so maybe what he said was, wait a minute, it might have been 202. So it's possible this guy really didn't do anything, and it's possible when the manager looked into this, it was like, oh, crap, we double-assigned it. Well, I don't want to admit this to this woman who was traumatized by it. I better just uh, kind of pretend like everything's fine and just uh, hope she drops this matter. It could be as simple as that. It, it could have not been a burglary attempt, but it also could have been. But, and it's also possible it was a burglary attempt uh, that was bungled in some way where the guy really thought that she was not in the room for whatever reason. And, uh, and she was. Maybe there's even an insider working there who was supposed to tip the guy off or who had come back to her room, the room and who hadn't, and they didn't see that she came back at 4 a.m. It could be something like that. Because there's a lot of possibilities. I could believe it was something nefarious. I could also believe that it was incompetence and that this guy was innocent. 
But the, the one who was really at fault here was the manager for just not telling her. She, she's owed an explanation. And I've, I've said this to businesses before. I've never had this particular situation occur to me or anything like it. But I've, when there's been some screw-up that was pretty bad, I, I have said, I'm, I don't have a right to know what you do to, you know, what discipline, disciplinary action you take against this employee, but I do want to know what really happened. Like, you, you agree something wrong happened to me. After you've looked into it, can you at least tell me what happened to me here at your business? Just, just tell I, I'm owed the explanation of what occurred to me here. And what you do from that point, that's that's company private, but what actually happened to me, you should tell me. And I'm not talking about legally. I'm talking about uh, what a customer should have the right to just expect from uh, good customer service practices. And uh, when someone enters your room while you're sleeping, the hotel owes you an explanation of how that happened, even if it makes them look bad. And I, I've even told hotels and other businesses when, like, this is nowhere near like what happened to Haley. This was stupid crap but uh i remember i was in washington dc and i actually paid for a special package that uh, gives you both uh, chocolates and the 4 p.m checkout i didn't care about the chocolates so much but i wanted the 4 p.m checkout because of when our flight was and it was convenient to have the 4 p.m checkout so first of all we don't get the chocolates and it's like pulling teeth to get them to deliver it. It was supposed to be like waiting for me in my room and the chocolates weren't there. And I kept calling them, well, where's my chocolates? And finally they brought them. But, uh, when the, the day to check out, I'm actually, we stayed up late that night. So we were actually sleeping like at 1230 PM, but knowing we had hours to leave because it was 4 PM, the checkout. And we we're just going to check out at four and go to, directly to the airport. So we're like sleeping at 1230 and the phone rings and I answer, and I hear in the other end, well, when are you going to check out? And I said, uh, four, when I'm able to. She says, well, did you request this? And I said, no, it, it was part of the package I bought. She says, uh, well, well, you need to request it. I go, why? This is the, the package I bought says very clearly 4 p.m. checkout. So I didn't think I had to do anything. Well, uh, you didn't request it, so you need to leave. Uh, we'll give you till one. And I said, no way. I paid for... I paid for a package that gives me a 4 p.m. checkout. I have it right on my laptop. I'm not leaving till 4. I don't care what you say. So we have this big argument. Uh, eventually, I get the manager on. After I had to wait for the manager to call me back. Anyway, finally, the manager calls me back and uh, and says, okay, yeah, 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 fine. You can have the 4 p.m. checkout. Uh, so, you know, sorry about that. Um you know, usually we want we just want people to give us a heads up. It's going to be 4 p.m. I go, well, you shouldn't be wanting that. You shouldn't be selling this package if you think if you need a heads up about it. When someone buys this package, you should expect they're going to be at all four. If you don't like that, then don't sell this package. And she's like, oh, no, I understand. She's giving me all these weird stories that don't make any sense. And I'm like, uh, like, finally, I just interrupted her. and I said, stop, stop. Just I, I think I've put it together what's really happened here. Uh. I didn't get my chocolates. When I called up about the chocolates, they seemed very confused about it. And it took like a long time for them to finally bring them and even acknowledge I should be getting them. Then they don't know I'm supposed to be checking out at four. So to me, what it looks like is that you guys just 
there was some error in your system and you didn't correctly show that I had this package. I just seemed like a regular guest with, with a regular stay, and that's why I didn't get the chocolates, nor did I have the 4 p.m. checkout. And she's like, well, no, no, we, we just need uh, notification. Blah, blah, blah. And I go, no, no, just, just be honest with me. I, I know it'll, you think it'll make you look bad, but what's getting me angry is it seems like I'm being lied to here. It seems like you're just inventing stories on the fly. Just please be honest with me. I'd much rather hear the honest truth, even if it shows that you guys made a mistake. Just please be honest with me. She says, okay, fine. Yes, our computer had an error. We didn't, uh, somehow the reservation didn't come through. When we, when we checked your booking after that, we see you did book this, but it didn't come through the right way. We had it the wrong way down there. That's why you got all the calls, and we were embarrassed to admit that. That's why, we, that, that, that's why the other employee called and argued with you about the checkout. Uh, so, so we, 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 yes, so we told you about the requesting, hoping you wouldn't notice. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> so she actually owned up that they lied to me. And, uh, yeah, so sometimes you just got to level with them and say, look, I, even if the truth makes you look bad, I just, I really just want to hear the truth. That's what, what's getting me angriest is you're not telling me the truth. And I think what's getting Haley the angriest is that she's not getting the answer here of what happened to her. And I think if they told Haley, sorry, and an employee there thought you were gone and accidentally checked that guy into your room, and I'm really sorry about this, but it was nothing bad. The guy was just an innocent guest who walked into an occupied room that he thought was empty. Then she probably would have dropped it. Maybe asked for a little money off the bill. When she, after she'd stay there for 50 nights, I think that they could afford to give her a little bit off. And that would have been that. But uh, it's it's one of these things where like the cover up is worse than the crime, unless there really was like a real crime here. Of uh, this is some conspiracy to break in rooms. But I don't know. The more I think about it, the fact that the guy came in at nine thirty, ten a.m. that just doesn't seem like the right time to break into rooms. I would think dinner time, or or at least have someone watching when the person walks out, or you watch yourself. You kind of hang out in the hallway and watch when people walk out of the room and see if they look like they're leaving for a while, if they're carrying stuff with them. Like that, that's when you break in. Just to walk into a random room at 9.45 doesn't seem very smart. 9.45 a.m., that is. Yeah, that's true. He was, he, and he was probably very disheveled, too, just because... Well, yeah. You know, he, he, walked, he, oh, some yeah, ladies yelling. What the hell's going yeah, on? Yeah, right. He might have said the wrong thing, too. Yeah, I, like if I walked into somebody's room and they... they jump out of bed and scream and be like, like, I don't blame Haley for this, by the way. Obviously, it's very scary for a woman to have some dude walk into her room. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm not I'm not criticizing her at all for this, but I'm, from this guy's perspective, like, if, if, if this was innocent, I could see why, to him, it would have been kind of traumatizing for him, too. Like the, the, not as bad as for her, but but still, like, you don't want to be in that situation. I'd, I'd feel very uncomfortable if I walk into a room I think is empty and some woman thinks I'm invading her room. It'd be very... Uh, Stressful situation. So uh, the, the big problem here is they're not telling her what happened. That's the big problem. And they, they need to. And I hope she finds out. And that's that's the big issue here. I, I like the guy on the phone. I realize he's like a late-night employee. But how many times did he repeat, we take our safety and security very seriously? Like, how insincere was that sounding? Hey, for the guy working the overnight shift, I thought he did a great job <laughs> as far as protecting the hotel, you know? <laughs> Maybe Trader Risky wants to hire him if he loses that job. The colonel couldn't break him down. I don't know who can. <laughs> At least he stayed on the phone with the colonel. I'm sure he's going to hang up, but he he wouldn't. I think he wants the colonel to call back in six hours because he'll be off by then. He doesn't want to deal with the colonel. He wants he wants his manager to answer at, uh, at six. He said six hours because I'm sure he gets off at, at 7 a.m. 
It's like a, you should write him a recommendation on Yelp, Jeff. <laughs> Can you call back at, uh, let me see here, my shift ends at 7. Can you call on 7? That's a good time to talk. 701. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told this story, but it's almost 30 years ago now. But uh, my, I, I had a girl that I was dating for, uh, I don't know, like six weeks, the beginning of 1990. And I just wasn't, this is the first girl I ever dated. I wasn't that attracted to physically. And I, I, I just talked myself into believing that like, I shouldn't be so shallow and I, I you know, the looks don't matter. And I, I really gave myself the whole speech that I was like, since she was very nice and uh, we got along well, that it didn't matter that I wasn't attracted to her at all. Because the, the previous girls I had dated, which wasn't that many. I was, I, I was not even 18 yet. I was almost 18. But, uh, the previous girls I had dated, I, w- I was attracted to all of them. And then this is the first time I wasn't. So after about six weeks of this, I kind of just like wasn't into it at all and decided to end it. But I, I wasn't going to be a jerk and tell her why. That would have like crushed her self-esteem. So I just made up some generic bullshit about uh, why I was ending it. So anyway, she seemed to take it well. And I thought, okay, well, that was easier than I thought I was. Well, it wasn't because she was, like, super bitter about it and didn't tell me. So then I started getting these prank calls from some girl who have never, like, a voice I'd never heard of before, but, like, really, really annoying girl who would say, like, just real weird shit to me and hang up on me and just constantly called me and pranked me. And I was getting real tired of it. And, and I just, like, this girl, who, whoever it was, well, I learned later who it was, but uh, I was, like, she was driving me nuts with these calls and I, the voices of a voice I'd never heard in my life before. Well, finally something got screwed up and, uh, I figured out the the calls had to do with this girl I had dumped a few months prior and that this was her best friend that she, that I had never talked to before. And she sent to prank me. So, I called up this ex-girlfriend and confronted her about this thing. And at first she denied it, but after a, a short period of weak denial, she admitted that, yes, she, that this was her friend who was doing it. And at first she said, oh, her friend did it without her knowledge, but then she later admitted that, yes, she knew and, in fact, encouraged it. So she admitted to everything, and I said, okay, that's good. Uh, but th- you don't know how much this girl was harassing me. And so she claimed she didn't know the extent of it. She thought the girl was just making a few calls to me. I said, well, okay, that's fine. Uh, uh, just give me her info and, and we'll be done here. And she's like, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. This is my friend. I said, well, your friend screwed up and has been harassing me for the last three months uh, every single day, and I'm not going to just drop this. So give me your info. And she said, no, I can't do that. I said, well, okay, then I'm going to have to take this back out on you. And she says, uh, okay, fine, fine, fine. I'll give you the info. I'll give it to you in 48 hours. Just just give me 48 hours to break it to her that I have to give out her info. And then, then I'll give it to you, and then, then we'll be out of it. I said, okay. I'll give the 48 hours. So what I did not know was that 48 hours from then, she was moving. So I called up in 48 hours after not hearing from her 
and her line was disconnected. I felt like a chump. Then I called up her parents' number, which I had. And on her parents' answer machine was a message that the family was moving. Fortunately, uh, it, the, her dad said at the end of the message that you can still leave a message here, and they're still checking the messages remotely, and they'll call back. So I said, well, okay. And I had remembered something. I remember her dad was like, her dad like hated foul language. I had heard her younger brother use the word fuck once, and the dad went like ballistic and started yelling at me, you don't use language like this in this house. So like that, that girl who had been pranking me had been saying like the most obscene shit on my machine. So I played some of the messages to her dad and said like, you know, your daughter had this girl leave the, you know, leave these messages for me and prank me every day saying this type of stuff to me. And, uh, and I did nothing to cause this, you know, she was mad that we broke up and I didn't, she, she acted like she was okay about the whole thing. And then she had a friend harass me the last three, three months with these obscene calls. And so the dad was furious about this and, uh, he actually forced her to, uh, write an apology letter to me, which was an insincere letter, but it was funny that, uh, I thought that was fitting that she got to, she had to had the humiliation of having to write me an apology letter that her dad made her write. So I dropped it at that point, and her dad called me up and gave me like this apology of his own too that he's promising me this won't happen that he's that they've called the girl that they've called the friend and told her that she has to stop or they are going to give me her info and the that was that but. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I think this guy with, with telling me to call back in six hours, it was the same trick. Call back when I'm not here anymore. How sick was that? Though? I figured this out 48 hours before she was moving. But you never know. Sometimes people are bitter about something and you have no idea. Sometimes you think that they're fine with it and then they're they're actually secretly bitter. Much like... Uh, a poker staking operation when you think you've canceled the stake and in reality they're quite bitter. But actually they told him they were bitter about it. They weren't they weren't shy about expressing their displeasure with him. Even before he cashed. Okay, uh let's let's move on. A follow home robbery occurred to a poker player in Harris, North Kansas City, where after a guy had won just a few hundred bucks, he was followed home and robbed at gunpoint. The good news is that this story is about the perpetrator being caught. Harris, North Kansas City is in New Jersey, not New Jersey, in Missouri. And on July 1st, a poker player at Harris, North Kansas City, won a few hundred bucks and was followed home. And then the uh, perpetrator cut his car off and uh, then got out of the car, broke the guy's window, and fired shots in the air with his gun to show he meant business. So he didn't even just break the window. He broke the window and then fired shots in the air to show, hey, I'm willing to use this gun and said, give me all your money. So the 
victim, very scared, obviously handed over the money, as I would have in that situation. And uh, he only had 500 bucks on him, which only some of that were his winnings. Some of it was the bankroll he brought to play in the first place. But between the winnings and the role he brought to the casino, all he had was 500 on him. It's not like he was a huge winner. So it it took a little time, but a month and a half later, they have arrested Oscar C. Glover, who is from uh, that same area in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And apparently he was just watching the poker game to see who was winning and then followed this guy out and tailed him a long way and then finally made his move, cut off the car and did that. Oscar C. Glover is 39 years old. He's from Harrison, Missouri. And he's facing charges of first-degree felony robbery and armed criminal action. He's also been ordered to not have any further contact with the victim, who is described as a semi-regular player at Harris North Kansas City. So, this was yet another one of these follow-home robberies. But there's been others that have occurred at Harris, North Kansas City. There was one where someone named Chuck Stanway was followed home and robbed of uh, $6,000 during the day. And those people were never caught. Usually these follow-home crimes are aimed at those who are less likely to fight back. Usually very elderly people or uh, small women. Like small Asian women are frequently the victim of this type of thing. I don't know anything about the victim here. But it doesn't say that he's old, and it's a, it's a male who was the victim. Actually, you know what? The male, the, the victim may not have been a male. It just says the victim. I assumed it was a male, but I don't know why. Oh, no, no, it, it was a male. Never mind. I see somewhere else in the article it says it was a male. Yes, that's not, that's not as common. It's not like it never happens, but they, most of these people who do it tend to go after the lower-hanging fruit. These are people they think are uh, least likely to be a danger fighting back. This is why, even though I'm careful walking in parking lots and always watch who might be following me and look around me and all that, uh, I don't think I'm the typical target here. Because usually, I've seen the profile of who they go after, and it's usually people who were either really old or, or small women, not uh, tall, middle-aged men. But, you know, if the person has a gun, they have a gun. It <laughs> doesn't uh, matter so much uh, who you are at that point. Though I usually use boxes in these places and don't have much cash on me anyway, so it wouldn't be a very lucrative robbery. Uh It's good that they caught this Glover guy. The way they did, by the way, if you're wondering how they got him, they reviewed casino surveillance footage 
and found that uh, Glover followed the guy out and they were able to get enough out of the footage to where they were able to identify him. It's unclear if Glover was a regular patron to the casino or if they use other means to figure out who he was. It's possible they had seen him other times in the casino upon other footage and at some point saw him do something which would have identified who he was, like put his card into a slot machine or whatever. I'm just guessing here. The follow-home robberies were quite common in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s at the Hollywood Park Casino in Inglewood, California. A lot of those happened from there. In fact, some resulted in murders. But they happen everywhere. If you are seen winning in poker, even if you don't think you're seen, if you have won, you're more likely to be a target and be very careful that people are not following you out. Take a weird route around the casino to where uh, you, it's easier to see if people are following you through that weird route. And also look around a lot when walking in the parking lot. And if you do follow someone spotting you, then find a way to get back into the casino without making it look like that you notice you're being followed. And if you are being followed while you're in the car, you should call 911 to give your location. And also try to lose the person following you by making very abrupt turns that would be hard for them to see coming. And make sure you don't turn down a dead-end road, but uh, uh, something like... uh, you, you get in a uh, right turn lane and then only make the right turn as soon as other traffic is about to come and just barely get ahead of that traffic so it's where someone behind you can't also get behind them. And then just start driving in a bunch of random places to lose whoever might be trying to catch up with you. And if you think you might be followed, uh, definitely don't go back to your house. Just Keep driving, preferably find a police station and drive to the police station. It's very unlikely that uh, once you get to the police station that uh, anyone will commit crimes in the parking lot there. At least they caught the guy, and at least... uh, I don't think the victim here got hurt. It doesn't say what previous crimes this guy would have been convicted of, but I have to imagine he hasn't lived a pristine life if he's 39 and and doing things like this. Okay. Moving to our next topic here. Trader Risky, you still with us? I am, but fading fast. Yeah, even your voice is fading fast. I can hardly hear you. It's kind of like garbled now. That's okay. All right. Uh, it's a T. It's a T. Even the T is ruining the, the, the microphone, too. Did you spill tea in the microphone? I don't think so, but... Uh, it sounds like it. Maybe, maybe I'm just... I don't know. I may have even dozed. It sounds like you're using the microphone as a pillow at this point. 
Okay, well, we'll move on here. You can, you can drop off whenever you uh, fall asleep. John Mahaffey, who has been a longtime critic of WSOP.com, he's John Mahaffey is someone who follows the Nevada casino industry pretty closely, writes about it, uh, runs a number of little websites that uh, he operates that have a lot of useful poker and gambling news, and then he has affiliate deals on there. I don't know how much those make, but uh, he, he has good stuff. He writes good articles. He's a smart guy. It's rare that I read an article of his and find an inaccuracy or something I disagree with. It's it's usually very good stuff he writes. When I see a John Mahaffey article, I, I almost always click on it and read it and am happy I did. He's not someone I know very well personally. I don't believe we've ever met. If we have, I don't remember. We've interacted on Twitter before. We're kind of casual online acquaintances. We're not friends in any way, but we've never had any problem with each other. He's posted on Poker Fraud Alert a few times. Anyway, just giving some background on him. And he was a big advocate for legalizing and regulating online poker in Nevada. And now he's regretting it because of his battles he's having with WCP.com and the fact that uh, he feels these sites are incompetently run, which I have to agree. In fact, it's not really these sites anymore. It's one site because Nevada only has one site left standing, which is WCP.com. In 2018, John had an issue where he had a big argument with Seth Polanski and Caesars regarding his criticism of WSOP.com, and we've covered that on a previous show. At one point, uh, it was suggested that he might be banned from all Caesars properties so that it never ended up happening. But uh, since then, he's turned into a, a pretty big critic of WSOP.com, and I, I have to say that even though he does have a personal beef with them, everything he writes about them is pretty true, and there is a lot of room for improvement both on WSOP.com itself and also the Nevada Gaming Control Board needs to start regulating better because they these are regulated sites and they're not being regulated well. So here's the article he wrote. This, this appeared on a site called thenevadaindependent.com. He wrote, I worked my first job in the online poker industry in 2001, and I was involved in it until 2018. Some call me the industry's historian. I became a player advocate during online poker's Wild West days. I worked hard to keep the games clean, exposing many bad elements over the years. When regulated online poker appeared to be in Nevada's future, I lobbied for it. I regret that now. I am embarrassed by the fruit of my efforts. It is an industry low point. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't say it's an industry low point, but I would say the whole thing has been done poorly and has been a big fail. It is no secret that I've been an outspoken critic of Nevada online poker. I feel strongly that it has been a comedy of errors. Three licensed poker sites launched in Nevada since it was legalized in 2013. Two failed. The last one standing is the subject of constant customer complaints. Unfortunately, anything I've tried to do to improve Nevada online poker has either fallen on deaf ears or gotten the Monopoly operator angry with me. It is time to do something about the situation. The protection of Nevadans is too important. Then his second, he wrote, issues discovered since June. 
The latest wave of issues with WCP.com started with software bugs. A player tweeted a video of a pot awarded to the wrong player. Other players complained about the software automatically buying them into tournaments. Heads up, WSOP main event satellites did not bracket correctly. I didn't even know about that one. Withdrawal issues plagued the site in July with some players waiting weeks for their money. Then he wrote a section called uh, Problem Gambling Protocol. My poor experience at WSOP.com included being pushed back to the tables when I tried to withdraw my funds after a cash deposit. I was challenged by support as to why I wanted my cash, and, and my withdrawal was reversed back into my playing account before allowing me to reply, making it easy to return the chips to the tables. This is an old trick used by offshore sites to tempt compulsive players and get them back into action when trying to withdraw balances. Support claimed that I did not play enough to get a withdrawal and wanted an explanation. This was absurd, as I paid the site about $273 in rake on a $400 deposit, winning $11. I wagered about 6000 Regulated sites should not be permitted to hold player funds hostage and push them back to the tables. Withdrawal requests must be processed immediately. Question 14 at Gamblers Anonymous asked, Have you ever gambled longer than you intended? The answer should not be yes because a licensed poker site pushed me. 888 operates most aspects of WSOP.com. The company was fined £7.8 million in the UK for for problem gambling violations in the same time frame as my incident. Let's stop there for a second. I want to comment on this stuff. He's absolutely right that this is absurd, that they would tell him that he can't withdraw, he hasn't played enough, when he played enough to rake almost as much as he deposited. <laughs> uh, they, they shouldn't be able to do this at all, in fact. This should be part of doing business. Yes, it's bad for them when someone deposits, plays like two hands, and goes, eh, I don't like this, and wants to withdraw, but that should be their right. And yes, they'll lose money on that player after the deposit and withdrawal fees that they have to pay, but that's part of doing business. It's kind of like owning a brick-and-mortar business and and someone walks through your business and takes up a lot of employees' time asking questions and then walks out buying nothing. If every customer did that, then you'd be out of business, but fortunately they don't all do that, and that's just part of what you have to put up with, that not everybody's going to buy as much as you want or... Not everybody's going to buy anything. Then he wrote a section called Verifying Deposits When Processed. My experience at WSOP.com involves the company repeatedly requesting the same documentation at the time of withdrawal, even when cash is deposited. Because you can deposit cash at the cage is what he's talking about. On the other hand, deposits are instant and without hassle. This process allows the site to free roll players. If a Nevada poker site determines a problem with a player funds or identity, the same security issues exist when that money exists at the poker tables. The only difference is that the poker site may profit from the money if it cannot be withdrawn, as it will be raked until the player busts, or left on the site until an inactivity fee takes it. A documentation check at the time of withdrawal is not, and not at the time of deposit only protects the poker site. This is a good point. Nevada poker sites should be required to verify identities and funding at the time of deposit. If there is an issue, the deposit should immediately be reversed to prevent a free roll on security issues arising from fraudulent deposits. That's a great point, that there should be not additional security from withdrawal compared to deposits, with one exception that he didn't mention there. The only exception is they should be able to do a check about winning patterns just in case uh, there's something involving chip dumping or, uh, or money laundering or cheating, something like that, collusion. 
So when someone wins a bunch of money and suddenly hits withdrawal, they, they should be able to get their money, but it's, it's fine if there's a short delay while they check if everything was on the up and up. But there should not be identity checks. Identity checks are, as he said, are just as important at deposit time as at withdrawal time. And if deposits can be super fast without much effort and withdrawing requires a bunch of documentation, then that does place the importance on withdrawal and not deposits and does greatly benefit the poker side and is kind of like a free roll on their part. So I agree. Then he wrote a criticism called geolocation failure refunds. Nevada poker sites are required to use geolocation services to ensure that a player is in the state. While significant strides have been made in this technology, there are still failures. WSP.com refuses to give refunds when geolocation fails. Players lose money because their hands are folded. Tournament blinds and antes continue to be posted while players are booted from the site with this error. Nevada poker sites should be required to give refunds when its software fails. The risk should not fall on players. I think one way to fix this and this this should be done at the regulatory level, by the way. You know, WSOP has to comply with whatever Nevada says they have to do regarding geolocation. But there should be some sort of grace period, especially in cash games, where if it suddenly detects you've left the state in the middle of a hand, it shouldn't kick you out of the hand. That at the very least, it should let you play the hand, and then at that point, when the hand's over say that your geolocation's failed and you're being sat out until this can be rectified. At least in cash games, you're not going to lose out. Aside maybe from free hands if you posted your blinds already, but that you're not going to be folded in the middle of hands because suddenly the geolocation isn't showing you in Nevada anymore. It shouldn't be a tragedy if someone leaves the state in the middle of a hand, which is unlikely anyway. It could only happen if someone was driving and playing or in a car that's driving as they're playing and it crosses the border. But as long as you're in the state when the hand starts, the state should allow it to finish. No matter where you are when the hand finishes. As far as tournaments go, there should be some common sense. And this, I guess, applies to cash games, too. If someone just has been seen in Nevada for a long time and all of a sudden they're not there anymore within the same tournament... That's also not likely to happen, especially because there's not a lot between the California and Nevada border. The The only place I can think of where there's really something on both sides of the border in a particular location is Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe has two sides to it, a California side and a Nevada side. Other than that, wherever there's a border, there's either really nothing of significance on either side or there's only something on one side and not the other. So it just isn't likely to happen. Someone will be in Nevada at the beginning of a tournament, but not at the end, or, or at the beginning of a cash hand, but not at the end of the cash hand. So with that, they need to not boot people as easily as they do when there's a, temporarily geoloca- a temporary geolocation indication that the person has left the state in the middle of the tournament. And as far as refunds go. I I agree they should have to do that because of software failures. And that's a separate issue, but they should also improve the geolocation to have some more common sense. Then he writes, 
the section, most WSOP.com jobs are not in Nevada. A previous CEO's promise of jobs was used as a reason to regulate online poker. This is a common lobbying angle for the industry. Most of the jobs created by Nevada online poker are, are offshore, though. When Nevada players need support, a team that handles it is in Antigua. That support department is among the worst I've ever encountered. He's right. I, I've dealt with them, too. They're, they're horrible. Nevada law does not require operators to keep its support staff in the state. However, New Jersey does. The industry created 821 jobs in New Jersey during its first three years. Most bills in states studying online gambling include this job requirement. Nevada needs to add this requirement to its online poker operations or online poker regulations for quality, taxation, and economic reasons. Totally true. They, they totally need to add that because that Antigua support's awful. And they also get access to all kinds of uh, confidential, like, financial details and stuff that you wouldn't want them having. That's another problem. Of course, banks do that, too. But definitely the, the, the support should be within Nevada. Bad actor clause. The legislature included a so-called bad actor clause when it passed online poker regulations. This kept operators that remained in the U.S. market after 2006 out of the state's new industry. This clause does not exist in New Jersey. PokerStars was issued a license after thereafter a two-year delay. Nevada needs to follow New Jersey's lead here and repeal its bad actor clause. Our state has a monopoly poker site with a low consumer satisfaction rate. Permitting c- competitors that have demonstrated compliance in d- dozens of jurisdictions should be a priority to help Nevada compete in the industry. I have mixed feelings about this, as I've explained before. PokerStars got the big edge they did because they broke the law for many years that the other sites wouldn't, or certain other sites wouldn't like party in 888. So poker stars getting an edge in research and development money that was generated by all the illegal games they were offering for all those years. That shouldn't screw the other operators who kept within the law. So that's the reason the bad actor clause is reasonable, but this is all kind of a moot point. The, the, there just hasn't been interest for the most part in online poker in Nevada. There just hasn't been. It's just something that people really don't want to do. Yeah. People play those online bracelet events during the world series and that's about it. But just people aren't really into Nevada online poker and Nevada. It just doesn't have much of a population. People visiting Nevada aren't coming there to play online poker. They're coming to gamble live. So I don't think poker stars would even want to open there. Any online poker site opening in Nevada is probably going to lose money at this point. Player protection from monopoly. It is not unusual for governments to create added protections when a private company has a monopoly in a regulated market. There are no such protections in Nevada online poker because nobody could have predicted this scenario when the regulations were written. WSOP.com banned me after I publicly criticized the site for the poor support and stalling tactics during its withdrawal request. It claimed I was... I, I requested the banning. I did not. When I challenged that false assertion, the site changed its story to terms and conditions violation, which I also dispute. With no other Nevada license site available, banned players are, are left with no choice but to play at offshore ones. I chose not to play at all as the experience ruined me for online poker. An arbitration process should be set up to protect Nevadans from a monopoly poker site with a reputation for being thin-skinned. A player should only be banned for violating terms and conditions or a gaming law. Regulators should identify areas where monopoly can be abused and create solutions to prevent future situations like mine. 
I hope Nevada legislatures and regulators will continue these suggest will consider these suggestions. I am happy to work with all with with all. I'm, I'm happy to work with all. I think I meant to say thorough through discussions and committee testimony at any hearing to obtain the goal of protecting Nevada and his, Nevadans and its visitors. This is uh, pretty good. I agree with most of this, with the small exceptions I mentioned as I was uh, noting here. They... This is funny. Some guy uh, named Steve Morrow actually put a, a comment to it that he was uh, offering his services to WSOP.com to hire him for support. Yeah, the problem is WSOP.com is not going to hire any people like Steve Morrow for support when they can get these cut-rate Antiguans to do it for much, much cheaper. And they're not going to switch that until they are forced to because the site is not making money or if it maybe it's making money by now but I'm guessing still not so they definitely don't want to sink any more money into it something that Mahaffey does not mention is that the poker room manager Bill Reney is just it's not he's not fit for the job uh the guy actually has protected tweets because he doesn't want people seeing his tweets that don't like him from uh, who play on the site. But he basically hides from everybody. He doesn't want to answer questions. If you ask him anything difficult, he just shuts down on you. And this is just someone who does not want to really take on the responsibilities that come with managing a site like WSOP.com. You have to be able to answer questions and interface with customers and address concerns and answer the tough things that people want to know. You can't hide from it. And he doesn't seem to want to face anything head on. He's incredibly non-responsive. And you can't have that in a poker room manager especially an online poker room manager. As I've said many times, if, if you do not like dealing with the public and if you don't like answering tough questions and making tough decisions that are scrutinized by the customer, if you don't want to deal with angry and disgruntled customers, you should not be a manager of any kind. You should work behind the scenes where nobody interfaces with you from outside the company. If you do have to interface with people, and especially if you have to deal with customers as the manager, whether it's a top manager or even a middle manager, then you need to be able to do that and not have thin skin and not get stressed out by it, but be able to handle customer dissatisfaction in a proper and professional manner and be reachable. And he doesn't do this. And it's, it's been a big issue. It's been a very big issue. I also haven't really seen what he's brought to the table. I've seen nothing innovative that he's done. It's a tough job to get WSOP.com 
out of its inactivity doldrums. I understand it's uh, you just don't have much of a market there, and even the best run site possible is not going to be that successful. I know that, but they're doing themselves no favor having Bill Reaney as the manager. And it's it's not just me who thinks this. I mean, you you look on the internet; you're not going to you're going to be hard pressed to find one regular player there who thinks he's doing a good job. And that's not the case everywhere. It's not like every site, everybody hates the poker room manager. It's you're always going to have some people who are not happy, but there's wide dissatisfaction with WSOP.com, and not just because of its inactivity. So I thought that was interesting. So I read it to you guys. And I'm going to cover another WSOP story, but not about WSOP.com, but about WSOP itself, that I believe now that it's very likely that the World Series of Poker will be coming back to the Rio in 2020. If you have not gotten enough of the Rio, if you're sad that your days walking through those Rio hallways are over. If you want to freeze your ass off in the Amazon room one more time. If you want to stay in a 1990-style hotel room that hasn't been updated since then with all kinds of maintenance problems and weirdness. If... You want to stay at a hotel where, despite a very large number of people staying up very late, there's no room service after 11 p.m. for whatever reason. If you want to stay in a place where there's buttons missing from the elevator and holes in the wall, a place where people get Legionnaire's disease from the water supply, if you miss staying in a hotel where Doug Stanhope actually got banned You can feel good because you'll be able to come back at least one more year. Right now, the new Caesars Convention Center, which is almost certain to take over as the venue for the World Series of Poker, is running a bit behind schedule. Originally slated to be completed in the spring of 2020, now it has been pushed back to summer of 2020, making it the home of the 2020 World Series being an impossibility unless it gets back on the spring schedule which is unlikely it's a, usually when they push something back it's because they know for sure they're not going to make the previously stated deadline or projected deadline I had said before that even if they were going to be completed let's say by April it still probably would not be feasible as the venue for the World Series of Poker because there'd be too much planning that has to go into it that could only be done if the place was finished. So it's very, 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 very likely that the Rio will be the home of the World Series of Poker in 2020 and that 2021 will be the year of the first usage of the convention center, which is going to be center strip by the link that that will be the year that the World Series of Poker moves there 
Someone had said that they think 2022 will be the year. I don't agree with that. If it's finished in the summer, they will have plenty of time to prepare and to notify everybody. Because notifying all the players is important, too. You don't want a bunch of people booking rooms at the Rio only to find out the last minute that it's been moved to the convention center. That'll get a lot of people angry. So everybody has to know far in advance where it's going to be. But if they let's say they finish it in August 2020. That's plenty of time for everybody to know and to make plans for that venue to have the World Series there. So I, I think that's when it's going to be. I think 2021 is the year. Which means the second year it'll be there will be the year I can play the seniors event there. All right, finally. I have made a decision that I'm going to play mixed game tournaments at the World Series of Poker starting in 2020. That's not going to wait till 2021. That's going to happen in 2020. The game of poker changes every year. And if you don't change with it, then you're going to be left behind. And that's what's happened to some people who haven't changed with it. I resisted for a long time. And in tournaments, I played a mixture of Limit Hold'em and No Limit Hold'em. And that was it. Nothing else. I didn't even have a desire to play the other games enough to where I could really play competitively. So it wasn't just, oh, I don't want to play other games at the World Series. I wasn't even good enough at the other games to be competitive at the World Series in those games. Finally, in 2016, I decided to learn how to play Omaha better. And I I focused on Omaha 8 or better. And I, I practiced by playing a lot of it in cash format on Bovada. And between 08 and then PL08, I felt comfortable playing the game at the World Series of Poker. And in 2016, that's what I did. I played my first non-Hold'em event ever. In 2016, I played the 1500-08 event and did not cash. But I was still happy with my decision to play because there were a lot of bad players there. A lot of people who were playing just horrendous starting hands and didn't know what they were doing. And I said, well, okay, I should have been playing this a long time ago. The next year, I couldn't make the 08 event for scheduling reasons, but I, I did play the uh, the mixed Omaha, which is the PL08, 08, and Big O, and I did not cash. But then in 2018, I played my third ever non-Hold'em event. I played the 1500-08 again, and not only did I cash, I had a pretty deep cash. I got like 59th out of 1100-something. Then I played the 1500-PL-08, and min cashed it. And in 2019, 
I had a very deep cache in the 1500 PLO8, where I'm now two for two, by the way. And I've never bricked that one. Well, I kind of bricked. I did. I bricked the first bullet this year, but uh, I've never bricked the whole event. I've played the event in 18 and 19 and cached both years, but uh, I got a very deep cache, 30th place, out of like, I think, 1,300 people or whatever. I forget the field size. It was well over 1,000. I got 30th place in 2019. And I also min-cached the mixed Omaha. So since 2016, I've played 10 times in Omaha events, split Omaha events, high-low. And I've cashed four of those times, two of them being deep. So that's pretty good. I'd, I'd call that mostly a success. I also was the Stone Bubble Boy in 10th place at the WSOP Circuit Ring event at the bike in uh, 08 in uh, November 2018. And I was a few off the bubble at the, a similar 08 event at the LAPC just a few months later, in 2019. So these, these Omaha tournaments, I've been very competitive in them. Four out of ten times I cashed at the World Series, and both times I played outside the World Series, I, I came a hair away from cashing. One of them being a hair away from the final table. So I've decided that since uh, my expansion to Omaha has resulted mostly in success so far. It's not like I decided to start playing those and got crushed. The funny thing is I've been getting crushed at my best game, which is Limit Hold'em. That's where I haven't done well at the World Series lately. I've lost 10 events in a row dating back to 2016 in Limit Hold'em. I've decided to expand further and play games that are now not either Hold'em or Omaha, but to play other games and mixed games at the World Series of Poker. The ones I probably will be focusing on, and I probably won't be able to play all of these, but these are the ones I'm kind of looking at that, that I might do for 2020, are the 1500 Horse, the 1500 stud, the 1508 game, the 1500 stud eight or better, the 1500 deuce to seven triple draw, and the 2500 mixed 08 and stud eight. The reason I selected these are because they're 1500 events, except for that last one that mixed uh, 08 and stud eight. The reason I'm picking 1500 events is, is pretty simple. They're, they're, they're the easiest by far. The 1500 events tend to attract a combination of recreational players, players who are pros but not good at that particular game, and then actual good pros. And also good players who aren't pros. So it's kind of a, a, a mixed bag of everything. But you do get a lot of people in these events who just aren't very good. 
So even if you're not the best in the world at the game, you can be competitive because there's going to be a lot of people worse than you there. You have to play competently to be competitive. You can't be a fish yourself or you're, you have to get really lucky to get anywhere deep in these. But on the other hand, you're not playing against uh, the very top players with virtually no fish. There, there's a lot of fish in all of these 1500 events. So that's where I'll be focusing. I think that's a, a good thing to start doing with these mixed events, which I've never played before, or these non-Hold'em, non-Omaha events. And feel them out and, and see which ones I like and want to continue playing in 2021 and beyond. And maybe even seeing if there's some I want to take a shot at a 10K once I feel comfortable enough to do that. The 1500s events also attract bigger fields because it's a lower price point, obviously. And when there's a bigger field, you can still cash without winning a ton of hands. And the reason that matters is because even if you're not shooting for a min cash, which, which I don't, I'm not a min cash, uh, I'm not a guy who's shooting for min caches. I, I, I'm happy when I cash, but on the other hand, I'm like, I'm not like, okay, I've min cashed, now my work is done here, now I don't care what happens. I'm not playing for the min cash. But it is still nice to cash. And I've noticed that the bigger field events, you can't run bad and still cash, but you, you can kind of run average and still kind of skate into a cache and sometimes get really deep if you skate into the cache and then uh, start to run better, one of you key hands. But you can kind of skate into a cache without winning a whole lot of hands. So if you're not running all that well, you can still kind of stretch it into a cache anyway. Whereas the smaller fields, you really have to do very well for a long time in order to cache because there's just not many people who cache in the event. So the bigger the field, the more you can kind of coast into a cache, even if you're not running all that great. So that's another reason that the 1500s can be easier to play. Now, I still need more practice in some of these games before I feel I'm ready to play in these events. If uh, someone asked me to play these events today, I wouldn't feel comfortable in them yet. But there's a long time between now and the end of May. So I will be practicing these other games and hopefully I will be ready to play them. I should be, not hopefully. I'm going to make it a point to be ready to play them for the 2020 World Series. There's also a scheduling issue. I can't be there the entire seven weeks because I, I do have a family. This year I was at the World Series for about four and a half out of the seven weeks. And that was the longest I've been there since I stopped living in Las Vegas. And the reason I was there a little longer this year is because I was there longer for the main event than I have been in a long time, which of course was a good thing. 
but really what I usually plan is about two weeks near the beginning and two weeks kind of near the end, and, and that's my time there. So whatever other events I want to play in this list here, if they fit into that, then I'll play them. If they don't, I won't. I'm not like a, I'm not going to drive all the way to Vegas to play a single 1500 event and drive back. I'm not doing that. Nor am I going to stay all seven weeks so I can cover this stuff. Like I, I'm just going to find what I can squeeze in there. And keep in mind, this will probably increase the number of events I play. I still want to play most of the events that I've been playing all this time. I don't want to drop these Omaha events I've been playing now. I like those. I don't want to drop the Limit Hold'em. And I don't want to drop the No Limit Hold'em. I, it's like I don't play that many No Limit events. I still enjoy playing some No Limit events at the World Series. And as you saw, I was able to get very deep in this year's main event. Last year, I got to 33rd out of like 1,300-something in just a regular 1,500 event. I got deep in the Big Fofty this year, which is a No Limit event. So it's not like I'm a No Limit event fish. I'm not one of these... Uh, no limit tournament crushers, but I, I can play these competitively, and I think the number of deep runs you've seen out of me in these no limit events, which I don't even play many. It's not if I played like twenty no limit events every World Series and I, I ran deep in one or two, then that, that wouldn't mean much. But I, I only play a few of them each year, so I, I think that you can see that I can play these competitively, and I, I, I enjoy those. I think if I had to play too many of them, I'd get sick of them, but the, I, I still want to have some on the schedule every year, so I don't want to just throw those out. So these will be more in addition to what I'm already playing, and I've got to find a way to fit them in. But these are now on the table, and you'll probably start seeing me at Events like 1500 Stud, 1500 Horse, whatever. And for many years, I ignored these games. And I really shouldn't have, because uh, even as recently as like 10 years ago, a lot of people were not that good at a lot of these other variants. And I could have picked these up very quickly and become good at them and uh, been very competitive in these World Series events. And and I still can, but it would have been easier then. Now there's a lot of good players in these, but there's still a number of bad players in these too, these 1500s. There's a lot of like no-limit guys that are good no-limit players, but don't really know what they're doing with these mixed games and they just play it because they, they want to play it. They they know the rules, they know how to play the game, but strategy-wise, they're not very good. And then you just have outright fish who just are recreational players and just want to play them. You know, the recreational stud player who's played stud for many years but was has not very, ever been very good at it and just 
That's his game. He likes stud. He wants to play stud at the World Series. Like, I, I want to play against players like that. So, of those type of players, I'll have some okay players. I'll have some really good players in the event against me. But the thing is, I, I can sit down in these events and, and not be facing like a table full of top-rated competition. At least not until the, near the end. So maybe next year I can have my first non-Hold'em, non-Omaha cash. My first Omaha cash was in 2018, but that was only my third Omaha event ever. I now have four Omaha caches in the World Series of Poker. And in 2018 and 19 combined, I cashed four of the eight. So that's my future plan for the World Series. And I can actually become a complete poker player, not just the guy who sticks to hold them, and not just the guy who sticks to hold them in Omaha. I've kind of always wanted that. I just didn't put up the effort to do it. But I'm going to do it this year. You'll see. All right. We're done. I actually ended up a little longer this show than I expected. Not a long show, but not a super short one either. About five hours or so, looks like. We'll be back on Thursday. Which will be August 22nd. And uh, with my vacation now behind me, with the World Series now behind me, I should be able to be on here every week, provided uh, my health stays okay. If I have a cold or something, I can't do it. If I have other health issues creeping up on me that I do not expect at the moment, then... We will not be able to do shows, but other than that, you should be able to hear me every week for the foreseeable future. It is important to me to do this show and to not let too much of a hiatus go. When I couldn't do the show last year because of my problems, it was very depressing. And I would think about it. I would sit there thinking about how much I wished I could just open the laptop, connect the equipment, and just go on Poker Fraud Alert Radio and talk. Bring the show back. And just act like everything's normal for the moment, but I couldn't do it. Wasn't in the condition. Especially mentally, but also vocally I wasn't, because the LPR was killing my voice so much I couldn't talk for more than like 15 minutes without my throat hurting. And I did an eight-hour show a few weeks ago. So you see, I'm mostly over that, though. I'll tell you, I feel a little sore after this one. I'm not sure why. Anyway, that'll be fine for next week. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Tell your friends about this. If you think this is a good show and they'll enjoy it, tell them. Have them listen to it. 
A lot of times people find this show and they go, you know what, this is better than I expected. I actually kind of like it. Good night. And as always, Shalom.